I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you know, listen to? Um... <laughs> Chart music. <laughs> Chart music. Hey, you pop crazed youngsters, and welcome to the latest episode of Chart Music, the podcast that gets his hands right down the back of the settee on a random episode of Top of the Pops. I'm your host, Al Needham, and the wind beneath my wings in this episode is being provided by Simon Price. Hello. And rock expert David Stubbs. Oh, goodness. Hello, also. <laughs> Boys, if you want to see me in me pants and ting, tell me something pop and interesting. <laughs> Go on, David, you first. Oh, um... Well, I suppose the biggest thing that's happening for me at the moment is that my book just come out, Different Times, A History of British Comedy, with an emphasis on A. Um, You know, if you use the, then, you know, people just think it's a directory and they object when, you know, you don't have um, every single thing in comedy-wise, which, um, you know, it's sad, really. You can't include everything. I've actually dedicated the book to um, people who go straight to the index, look in it, and see that the name's not in it, you know, and I'm sorry, Mm. sorry, but there you go. So who's not in it then, David? Well, I mean, there's... OMD. Oh, well, there's no... Yeah, that's right, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Those unfunny bastards. (laughs) I I mean, I didn't really go about people like Jim Davis and people like that, obviously, because, Mm. you know, it's it's kind of a category error, really, you know, talking about them and comedy, but um, oddly enough, I didn't really talk about Peter Sellers that much, really. Really. And people just think he's a great towering comedy classic. But actually, I just think he's more of a of a character actor, really. So, you know, there's there's little emissions like that, really. Right. But, I mean, I talk about Boris Johnson and the whole way that he was elected prime minister for a laugh, you know, because that's what British mm. people are like. And the, the, the sense in which we're kind of a bit overdetermined by comedy. You know, other countries use that energy and declare themselves republics and things like that, for example. But, um, yeah. but one of the things that I touch on later on is in the 21st century, actually, that there was a lot of cruelty in the first decade, some of it was brilliant. I mean, it was things like The Thick of It and Peep Show and all that kind of thing. But then also you had like mm. Borat and then you had Little Britain and some of the horrible stuff. You also had a lot of sort of blackface or whatever. And I just think it was a sort of time of, I don't know, lassitude, basically. That it was just this like long period of Labour government, but nobody really believed in it. You know, people had sort of lost that sense of sort of idealism or that things were going to get better. But then from 2010 onwards, you've got a Tory government. And of course, they introduce almost immediately austerity. Mm. And I think ever since then, there's been this kind of emphasis on kindness. Now, when I use kindness, you know, I've not, I've not gone soft, Al. Uh, you know, because I mean, it is one of those words that's kind of banded in a slightly kind of trite sort of way. Mm. I mean, kindness 
as distinct to civility, like fuck civility. But you see it in a certain amount of comedy that, that there is a more sort of spirit of considerateness, inclusiveness, um, decency. And, and, and again, you know, there's been a kind of reaction against that. You see it even in someone like Frankie Boyle. So in the first decade of you know, the 21st century, you know, he's making jokes about uh, Rebecca Adlington looking like, you know, her face is looking in the back of a spoon or something. And then mm. he's just doing much more kind of inclusive kind of politically, you know, much more sound comedy, you know. It's a political reaction, I think, on the part of especially young people because they have experienced, you know, actual cruelty, prospective cruelty, perhaps, you know, in what kind of, like, world they're going to be left, you know, in terms of the environment or whatever. Mm. And there's just a sense in which they're being you know, absolutely fucked over in all kinds of ways, in terms of job security, in terms of rent, all kinds of ways. Mm. But anyway, this, this idea about kindness, I've noticed it a lot in... Quite recently, in, in quite a few manifestations in pop culture, especially like Glastonbury, for example, right. Rick Astley doing the whole sort of Smiths covers. Mm. You know, what was great about that is that, like, you know, you were able to kind of enjoy these songs, but not from Morrissey, because Morrissey's become this very toxic figure. So, in mm. a sense, having them delivered by Rick Astley, which is kind of fun in itself, also detoxifies these songs. And you can really enjoy them in a kind of communal, fun way. Yeah. There was another one. There was that Billy No Mates, you know, when she came on and she did a really good set, but, you know, she did it to you know, Backing Trap rather than having a sort of real band there. And, of course, the camp paying for real music people were sort of piled on her for that yeah. but I, you know and that really upset her but there's this great counter reaction says no don't worry don't worry mate you know don't listen to these fuckwits you know yeah and there was lewis capaldi you know right at the end of his set where he just basically loses it he just can't really carry on he's overcome by ticks whatever and you know the crowd there they're brilliant they say don't worry mate we understand we've got you back mm. and fill in for him and it was just such a touching moment because you just wonder 15 20 years ago when maybe people didn't have a kind of a comprehensive understanding of mental health issues or whatever. Mm. He might have got booed for that. He said, like, we paid 80 quid for this. Fuck you. you know. <laughs> and is it funny, this book? Yeah. Is there a chortle on every page, David? I like to think so. I mean, I've tried to be funny about funny, you know, which is, um, you know, where I can, you know. I mean, especially, like, with on the buses, you can sort of take the mickey there a little bit. Mm. But, um, yeah, I've tried to be funny about funny. Ooh. Who's doing the audio book? Joe Pasquale or someone? Ah, no, no, that's not been decided yet. Well, not even remotely discussed yet. <laughs> oh, what a shame Don Estelle's not still about it. Ah, oh, oh, poor old Don, yeah. <laughs> I also hear that Farmer Price has a big fat book to take to market as well. That's right, yeah, my long-awaited, not least by my publisher's uh, book, <laughs> um, Curepedia and A to Z of the Cure. It's interesting hearing David talk about using the indefinite article in his title because I was very insistent on that as well, yeah. that it's an A to Z of the cure because it's you know it's it's my personal take on them and i noticed that the american version of the book i've seen the cover they've gone with the a to z of the cure which i you know i'm not particularly happy about but you know it probably means i I will get angry emails or messages from american cure fans saying how could you have left out the you know engineer Mm. on their third b-side or something like that but the thing is the reason the book took so long is because it really is comprehensive. Yeah. I've just gone over the top. I didn't know where to stop. No. I, it was just this monster of a research job. And I think I went a little bit nuts doing it, to be yeah, honest. I, I, I think I just lost sight of everything. I was listening to every kind of, you know, Australian radio interview from 1981 or something on Fuck. audio that nobody else was even aware of. And, you know, like Swiss television appearances and reading interviews that he did in Belgium and just anything to find some little nugget that shed light on a particular aspect of the band and then trying to sort of shake that down into some kind of sense because I think always when when you're writing a biography you're trying to apply structure to chaos because life is chaos Mm. 
And in this case, that structure just happens to be alphabetical, which is completely arbitrary, but it, it's no more or less sensible than any others. And, and it, it's allowed me to sort of write thematically in a way. So I can write about, I don't know, the cure's relation to mental illness mm. or, or sex or drugs or alcohol or any of that stuff. Um, I, I can put all that stuff into an essay or in, into its own section rather than just saying, oh, well, in 1983, they had a bit of a fight when they got drunk or something like that, yeah. you know, and then saying, oh, and it happened again in 1989. It's enabled me to sort of take this this overview of things, this structure. Mm. It wasn't my idea, but once it had been given to me to do it in a sort of A to Z format, I thought, well, you know, I, I can work with this. I can have some fun yeah. with this. So what's the first entry? Oddvox. <laughs> <laughs> I cheated slightly because I decided that um, A, the indefinite article, counts, whereas the, the does the definite article does not so that allowed mm. me to have a forest yeah, yeah, yeah. as the first entry because it's such a um, emblematic song yeah. if it wasn't for that it, it might have been i don't know a is for associates who supported them on tour ones or something like that you know which would just mm. wouldn't feel right to start the book that way so yeah mm. yeah fortunately uh, that happened i've also sort of done things like there wasn't a lot for the letter q so I thought, hang yeah. on a minute. Robert Smith supports Queen's Park Rangers. Oh, God, so, yeah. yeah. There we go. <laughs> yeah. There's Q is, Q is for Queen's Park Rangers. And in, into that section, I threw everything to do with their love of football. So what, you know, the teams all the other members support and uh, the fact that Robert did this sort of photo shoot with Stuart Adamson, where Adamson's in a Scotland kit and Robert's in an England kit and they're, they're jumping for the ball. That was, yeah, that was yeah I remember that. That's the maker, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I, I played around with the alphabet a little bit. When it gets translated into Spanish, I wonder, because obviously... <laughs> You know, different words, different language. I, I wonder if that might fuck up the alphabet a little bit. But what's the last entry? Um, I think it's for zoology. Z is for zoology um, oh. because so many Cure songs are um, about animals. You know, you've got light cockatoos, you've got the love cats. You know, you've got all, all these caterpillar. Yeah, the caterpillar. There's yeah, so uh, uh, bird mad girl, and yeah, there's just so many Cure songs that reference animals. And I, I sort of speculated as as to why that is and what it, what it all might mean. Also, mm. zoo, as in zoo wankers, um, have, have an entry. Oh, really? They have an entry because. Uh, Yes. Do you know about it? Go on, you, you tell me. They obviously danced to something, did oh, they? Oh, no, no, that's no. It's actually not that. But one of um, the zoo dancers was in a band with Robert Smith. Of course, um, yes. The Glove. The Glove was a super group glove, with yeah. uh, Steve Severin from the Banshees and Robert Smith McHugh. But Robert contractually wasn't allowed to sing lead vocals um, on anything right, other than yeah. The Cure. So they had to draft someone in. And it was Jeanette Landre, who was one of zoo which had spiky blonde hair i don't know if you can picture her very sort of 80s looking hair so so zoo get uh, get a mention as does chart music i, I refer yeah. to the whole zoo, zoo wankers <laughs> thing in there the weird thing about doing a book like this is that the further you drift into the peripheral stuff and the absolute trivia the more you think well actually this is the gold mm. because the central stuff like oh just like heaven was released on blah 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 the release dates that's stuff that they can get from wikipedia mm. you know mm. it's when you get to something like you know an instrumental track they recorded that came out on cassette only and was named after an obscure Shetland island then you go into, into the history of that island and see if there's any connection with the history of that island to the cure and why they might have named a song after this island which is so obscure it's, it's so out there on the edge of the stuff but you th but then you think this is actually what people are going to enjoy the most. Mm. Yes. That really weird stuff that appears to have fuck all to do with anything. But it's the stuff that took the really hard yards and took the deep research to, 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 to get that stuff. And that's why the book is so long. It's, it's twice the length it was meant to be. It looks massive. Have you actually got a physical copy? 
No, not yet. Proper chunk of book, isn't it? <laughs> I think it's um, a, a third the length of the Bible or something like that. Right. Uh, or maybe about half the length of the Bible, I'm not sure. They've had to send it to China to get it printed. Ooh. They don't normally do this, but because I wrote so much, um, the only way to make it economically viable was to get it printed in China, and that's why it's taking till November for copies to actually come out. But it's going to look quite deluxe when it does, because... Mm. Uh, We've got Andy Vella, who is um, one half of Harched Art, along with Pearl Thompson, ex of The Cure. Right. The two of them have done most Cure record sleeves um, ever. Andy's done these plates for the letter of the alphabet, 26 of them. And they look very, very Cure. Um, and and nice. the whole design, it's, it's, yeah, I think it's going to look great. I, I think when I started it, I thought, well, it's a decent job and I'll, I'll just do it. And, you know, it's something that I'll hopefully get well remunerated for but mm. the more I got into it that the more I started to really love the process yeah. and then of course about halfway through started really hating the queue I never want to hear a fucking yeah. queue record again <laughs> yeah. in my life but I sort of came out the other end of that and decided I, I kind of really like them you yeah. know if they asked um, you to do the same thing now about another band which band would it be that's a really good question um could you follow up the Mannix? two man sound uh, two man sound yeah um the Mannix book is something i, I do need to follow mm. up that book and I, I don't quite know how i'm going to do it because more time has elapsed since that book than is covered in that book mm. but it's also the period of their career where nothing very dramatic happened compared to the, the first 10 years yeah you know? mm. so that that's a difficult one to know how to approach but in terms of doing an a to z format i don't know if i'd want to do it again but it'd have to be somebody whose work i would not resent diving into so you know somebody like prince for example but there are enough fucking prince books out there already mm, yeah. there, i mean it's so. it, i mentioned it, everything because it sounds like there's possibly a degree of that in this book even despite the format that you know the, 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 the sort of the meaning of the cure as it were you know the kind of slightly thematic approach yeah. that you're taking you know and and actually some of the stuff like you talk about the periphery but i guess that just shows that the kind of cultural reach that they've had, I guess. You know, it sort of marks that as well. Well, that's it. Yeah, I mean, it is something I did in my Mannix book where I, I ended up writing essays about the Rebecca mm. riots and stuff like that. Um, and, the, you know, the Chartists and things like that, that, that you know, were, were tied into this grand tradition of Welsh rebellion and, and Welsh cross-dressing as well. And that's a sort of idea that I stole from Greil Marcus from Lipstick Traces, mm. um, yeah. where, where, you know, he starts off with the Sex Pistols but expands it into this entire history of, of European and dissent and it, it seems that I can't not write like that I, I, I don't know if I'm able to write a straight biography uh, maybe it's a failing of me now but, but it's the sort of thing that once I start digging into a band and what they mean I start finding mm. all these threads and all these sort of parallels and cross-referencing everything and it, it just seems to be what I do I need to snap out of it. I need to write a good short hundred thousand word biography of, of somebody who who didn't last. You know, their, their heyday was about five years long, and just get it done, <laughs> just so I can prove I can do it. Because the Cure have been around for forty odd years, and yeah. so it's it's not not only the length of their career, but mm. so many literary references in in, in their works, poetry, and so obviously I've I've got to dig into all that and. Uh, yeah, it's 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 going to be the, the mother of all toilet books. Put it that way. This sort of thing. I, I don't think people can read it sequentially. I think it's you know it's going to be something you dip into. You yeah. Flip back and forth between chapters. So, so for example, if if I mention uh, Dylan Thomas in another chapter, that that will link you to the poetry section. And when we do the uh, the ebook, hopefully that will actually work. There'll be sort of yeah. hy hyperlinks that will take you there. So it, it really will be this sort of interactive. Mm. Book, you're skipping back and forth. Yeah. 
And it comes out on the 9th of November, I ought to say. And uh, and around that time, I'll be doing a lot of promotional work. Uh, I'll be sort of doing book signings and doing events up and down the country. So look in your local listings or look online and see what's going on. Um, Hopefully I'll be coming to a a bookshop or a record shop uh, near you. Well, I've got three things to impart, chaps. Uh, Number one, I've not written a book. (laughs) Uh, Number two... Tickets still available for our appearance at the London Podcast Festival, but not many. Let me remind you, chaps, Saturday, September the 16th, 4.30pm, King's Place, King's Cross, London, 90 minutes of a concentrated evisceration of a Top of the Pops episode with Team ATV Lads. So I suggest that you get your arse over to kingsplace.co.uk now and get them last seats. And don't forget, 20% discount for all Pop Craze Patreon sermon over at last <laughs> thirdly you may recall that during our discussion about aha in chart music 70 i mentioned that i've been to norway to speak about how the grot industry was making money off the internet while the music business was being rinsed by LimeWire and the like and i was told that there'd been an article written about me well <laughs> I have it here. Yeah. All praises due to Victoria Kleste, a pop crazed unger from Sweden who translated the following article for me. Now, chaps, before I read it, I want to make absolutely clear that none of the people who wrote or were quoted in this article spoke to me (laughs) beforehand. I passed on no information to them, and this has absolutely nothing to do with me, okay? Oh, and in the interests of fairness and balance, let's run it through the lie detector, shall we? <laughs> so, from Dags of Vision, dated 23rd of November, 2000. <laughs> Looking to learn from the porn industry. Al Needham is the name of the man who will share his experiences from internet porn during the Norwegian music industry's annual gathering bylaw in February next year. The Porn Industry, A Model for Success, is the title of the lecture he will give. (laughs) For several years, the porn industry has been a teacher and guide for how to best and most conveniently use the internet as a sales device, a marketing tool. (laughs) Al Needham is considered the porn industry's absolute most skilled and visionary in the field, according to the press release from Bylarm. (laughs) (laughs) The porn industry is different from the music industry But the porn industry was among the first to use the web commercially So we have something to learn from them Said Bylom leader Erland Mogdard Larson He heard Al Needham speak to the British record industry During the In The City seminar in Manchester earlier this year And invited him to the Norwegian industry gathering Bylom's head of seminars, Stein Bjorge from the industry company Playground, says that Needham is a very frequent speaker in the record industry. <laughs> the big record companies discovered Needham during the, in the city, and he is now a regular speaker and a consultant for, among others, entertainment giant BMG. <laughs> Of course it's controversial to gather information from someone who's worked with porn, but nobody has used the internet as efficiently as the porn industry, Bjorge says. But uh, unfortunately, chaps, as you'd imagine, 
the bloody feminists get involved, don't they? Aww. And this is something the music industry should learn from. How difficult is it really to sell sex, says Anita Overove, leader of AKKS, Active Women's Culture Centre. AKKS works to recruit and make women visible in the music industry and has, amongst other things, been behind the girl band compilation CD, Stiff Nipples. <laughs> yes, yeah, so there we go. They must have been so fucking disappointed sitting there expecting the Steve Jobs of film. <laughs> And me turning up in my fucking suit, starting off with an impression of that Norwegian football commentator. <laughs> of course. So, chaps, I just want to assure the readers of Dags of Vision that when they were reading that article over their herring on toast, <laughs> my skilled and visionary abilities were being deployed on photoshopping zits and bruises off the arses of readers' wives, uh, <laughs> responding to emails from women who wanted to be poor models by writing them a letter that basically said, well, if you're OK with all your dad's men, seeing you finally get back in touch with them <laughs> and getting no replies back and uh, getting absolutely pissed up with the editor of Mayfair and just basically sitting in an office wondering when they were going to call me in and lay me off because I was absolutely <laughs> shit at that job. Mainstream media, man, oh, they're, they're all liars. Yeah. Anyway, less about me and more about the true visionaries of the age, the latest batch of pop-crazed youngsters who have paid their tithe to short music and this month in the five dollar section we have jonathan roberts killian foley dean burnett marae monroe p baker matthew james grace harrison tim ward tim healer paul wilson andrew barker sean coward john mullen gordon kennedy Mark Cooper and Lucky Piss. Oh, you <laughs> fucking beautiful people. Let me oh. kiss your face right now. Mm. We yeah, do. We love you like the Rolling yep. Stones. Love. Maybe a bit more Indeed, yeah. yeah. Without that sardonic edge, no. We love you. Yeah. And in the $3 section, we have Radio Atlantis, Rob Patterson, Ali B, John Thorpe, Chad Hayden, and Action Edmonds. <laughs> and Ben Squires, Martin Riley, Denise King, and Jane Webber. Oh, you nudged it up a bit, and it hurt, but it hurt nice, <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> oh, and and by the way, if you are a pop craze patron in the five dollar or the three dollar tiers, and you've not heard your name read out yet, well, that's because I'm a thick twat and you've slipped through the cracks somewhat. So you know, please send me a message on Patreon saying, "Come on, how you can sort it <laughs> out," and I shall respond in the adequate fashion. Yeah. Thank you. And we should specially uh, thank all the pop craze youngsters this month because we've all got sexy new microphones, haven't we? Yeah. So yes, we yeah. Have. So so you know, it all gets ploughed back in. Yep. To Absolutely. Make a, a better podcast. Yeah. You know. And also, speaking of pop crazed youngsters, um, mm. there's a group called Microfilm that made rather an excellent mm. album called Body Arcana. Right. Um, and these are like, yeah, fans of the show. They're actually based in Portland, Oregon, actually, but big, big fans of the show. Really? And oh, they've God. made a cracker of an album. I mean, you know, no disrespect, Al, but it's a jolly sight better than a lot of the rubbish that gets featured on this show. I can put it that way. But, uh, um, <laughs> but no, no, it's, you know, it's, it's excellent stuff. I mean, I'd compare it faintly to sort of the Junior Boys. It's kind of sort of got that kind of electronic age but a bit more sort of slightly slightly out there like you know nicely twisted but um yeah very addictive you know i've listened to it a fair few times so good work chaps mm. 
And as we all know, chaps, the pop crazed Patreons get to distract the manager of the record shop with a full size cutout of Brit Eklund with a crystal ball over her bits, slip into the back room <laughs> and fiddle with the chart return book for the brand new chart music top 10. Are we ready, chaps? Yeah. Yes. Hit the fucking music! We've said goodbye to Noel Edmonds' wank fantasy, Jeff Sex, and my fucking car, which means one up, three down, three non-movers, and three new entries. It's a new entry at number 10 for Bjorn Bingabonger. <laughs> Last week's number three drops nine places to number nine, the Birmingham Piss Troll. <laughs> oh. Last week's number eight stays at number eight. Here comes Chisholm. It's a two-place drop for this week's number seven, the bent cunts who aren't fucking real. Yeah. And another two-place drop from number four to number six for Bummer Dog. Into the top five and up one place from number six to number five, Eric Smallshore of Eccles. (laughs) New entry at number four, Toto Coelho Ultras. The highest new entry at number three, Ian Interesting. (laughs) Another week and still no change at number two for the provisional URURA, which means... (laughs) It's still there at number one in the chart music top ten. Ghostface Scylla. (laughs) Fucking hell, what a chart, boys. Yeah, it's good to see some movement in there, Mm. but without losing completely some of the all-time greats. Yeah, it's not the 90s here, yeah. is it? Yeah. I mean, Bummer Dog's a bit of a dark side of the moon, isn't it, obviously? Mm. Uh, yeah, and here comes Jism as well. Oh, yeah, is, indeed, is one yeah. Of those. yeah. But, yeah, yeah. I, I've, I've grown uh, very fond of, of some of the other ones as mm. well that, that are, that's hanging on in there. But, yeah, good to see a bit of churn. We like churn in the chart. Yeah. Yes, we do, yeah. The provisional Uaruway are the Vienna of chart yes. music, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the new entry is Bjorn Bingabonger. Well, obviously a, a Eurovision winner who thinks mm. he's got a career now in the UK. Yeah, velvet suit, uh, dress shirt, definitely. Yeah, yeah. and uh, wearing Harmony hairspray. Uh, Toto Coelho Ultras. No fucking idea, to be honest. <laughs> Bit electro clash, I'd say. Mm, mm. And Ian Interesting. Well, yeah. you know, Howard Jones, Nick Kershaw. Yeah. Ian Interesting, the, the triumvirate. Yeah, a bit like, or Jasper Fascinating. I remember that was a... Mm. Yeah, I remember in the Romo days, you you did get people who just tried a bit too hard and got a bit too on the nose. Mm. There was was a guy called John Pretty in one of the Romo bands. Mm. (laughs) So if you want in on all the excitement of being officially pop-crazed, as well as getting every episode in full without any advert ramble, you need to get that lovely little arse of yawn over to patreon.com slash chart music. Chaps, we're coming up to seven whole years of chart music now and and what's kept it going is the love and the commitment of the pop craze patreons because come on now we've gone past podcasts these are fucking audio books that build up (laughs) month on month ish into Mm. a library of music and pop culture criticism and bummer dog and it's thanks to them the pop craze patreons 
praise them, I say. I praise indeed, yes. These are sort of like dark red leather bound uh, Mm. instalments Mm. with, with maybe sort of gold leaf uh, writing on the spine yes uh, yeah it's, it's classy it's something that you'd see advertised in the back of the sunday supplements yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah so this episode pop craze youngsters takes us all the way back to november the 3rd 1985 oh dear chaps we're just on the wrong half of the 80s aren't we yeah. mm-hmm on the other side of Live Aid, which, of course, according to chart music orthodox, it is a very bad place indeed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It got people all standing together in fields again. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, we yeah. thought we'd done away with that with punk, yeah. basically. And now look where we are. Those are the only gigs that happen. Yes. People standing in fields and paying 250 quid <laughs> for it. Mm. Fuck me. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you ask people what happened in 1985, you know, Live Aid's probably going to be the first thing that comes out of their mouths, or at least the only only good thing after you know Heisel Valley mm. Parade all the plane crashes the Mexico City earthquake AIDS the end of the miners strike and you could say that this is a year that Pop gets pushed into growing up and being responsible for a few years don't you think yeah yeah it's also I think that um with Live Aid, it's almost like the old order returned um, to sort of see off the last vestiges of like post-punk and all that kind of thing and that kind of sort of fractiousness and scrappiness. Yeah, I always think that Live Aid, in a funny kind of way, was a sort of precursor to things like Rave, then later on Oasis, this idea of us all being together. Mm. Yeah. Um, and after the kind of tribalism, the fragmentation of the 1980s. Yeah, that's the thing. You know, um, piling everybody together in a massive stadium to all watch a load of pop groups that we all agree on. Four years earlier, that would have been unthinkable. You'd have had yeah, yeah. all the sort of all the mods and the Teds and the Skins and the Rockers and stuff just having a massive God, fucking yeah. fight. Fucking hell! No, by '85, no, we'd all grown <laughs> out of that, and we're all together. Yeah, yeah. Everyone's in their Choose Life T-shirts, and everyone's responding to Dale from Freddie, and it's just one one big loving. Mm. Live Aid a few years previous would have been the opening scene of the Warriors, wouldn't it? <laughs> With more Parkers. <laughs> Somebody shot Bob Geldof. It was the Warriors. Come out to play, yay. <laughs> It, it was a doldrums year in lots of ways. And yet, you know, you look back and actually there were some fantastic records made that year. I mean, you know, Kate yeah. Butch and that was running up that hill. There's Steve yeah. McQueen, Prefab Sprout, oh, Scritty, yeah. yes. Cupid and Psyche 85, you know, Prince, Surrounding the World in a Day, you know, Dexies, if you like that kind of thing, you know, various other things that were kind of coming through. It actually feels yeah. quite halcyon, really. But no, at the time, felt like things were sort of getting a bit overripe, you know. I didn't feel that the battle was lost yet, put it that way. Yeah. Obviously, I had no idea how bad things were going to get in in the later 80s but I think that the main difference was that between 79 and 81 the good stuff was just laid in front of you on a plate you yes. know, look in the top 10 they're just mm. brilliant record after brilliant record now it was more a case of if something good flew into the top 40 it was an event and you'd be cheering it on and yes. you know every half decent record in the chart was a sort of cause to, to rally behind mm. and wave a flag for yeah. Simon you advance the theory that years of pop kind of stand or fall on the number ones of that year yeah so let's have a look at the number ones of the year so far. So, do they know it's Christmas, Band-Aid? Mm. I want to know what love is, Foreigner. Oh, fuck mm. I know him so well, Elaine Page and Barbara Dixon. Yeah. Mm. You spin me round, dead or alive. Yes. Okay. Easy lover, Philip Bailey and Phil Collins. Banger. Yeah, that's all right. Yeah. We are yeah. the world, USA for Africa. Oh. Fuck off. Move closer, Phyllis Nelson. Mm. Oh, trauma. 19, Paul Hardcastle. Oh, I never liked that. Oh, yeah, it was all 
elsewhere. You'll never walk alone, the crowd. Fuck me. Franke, Sister Sledge. No, absolutely no. That is to Sister Sledge what my ding-a-ling is to Chuck Berry. (laughs) There must be an angel, the Eurythmics. Into the groove, Madonna. Yeah, Yeah. good record. I got you, babe, UB40 and Chrissy Hyde. Nope. And Dancing in the Street by David Bowie and Mick South Jagger. America! Mm. <laughs> oh, you're rubbing your hands looking forward to the Christmas Day top of the pops of this mm. year, aren't you? Mm. Fucking hell. Oh, God. It looks bad, doesn't it? It looks really bad. Mm. You had to look at the charts upside down in those days. It was a, a, a question of, mm. right, what's hovering around sort of 35 to 40? That's probably where the good stuff is. Whereas in the early 80s, it was the right way around. Mm. But it has to be said, chaps, that this episode that we're going to be looking at, it, it's a proper look bag of randomness isn't it I mean yeah there is your dinosaurs and your mid 80s pap for the mug masses but there's also a hint or two of a more interesting future and a smattering of our bands mm. if you will mm. yeah, yeah. it's funny revisiting 1985 for this episode I get a recollection of actually beginning to feel a bit old, right. actually, because I think there were just so many... I mean, I, I don't know, there was just an example there. Um, you know, UB40 and Chrissy Hine doing I Got You, Babe. That was just the 80s just gone bad, really. And a lot of people just yeah. sort of lingering, really, you know, probably sort of, you know, picking up sort of much bigger hits than they'd enjoyed in their early days in some cases. But it just felt like everything, the whole punk-funk thing was petering out and... And there was a sort of void that was just being filled by a lot of synthetic balladry and competent songwriting mm. dullards, whatever. It just felt like, you know, despite the really good records that were made that I mentioned earlier on, it just felt like it's this kind of momentum was gone, that the old was malingering and the new wasn't quite being born yet. Mm. Yeah, everything was getting very Americanized. We've mm. talked before about the influence of Jonathan King's Entertainment USA. Yeah. And of course, you know, uh, Live Aid opened the floodgates to a lot of American dinosaurs. Mm. Uh, there's no need for Jonathan King now in 1985 because no. all the American shit's here. Yeah, yeah. But that said, you know, I, I complain about it, but at least a couple of the best songs on this episode are American. Mm. It tends to be black America, really, rather than white America. Of course. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, I mean, you know, this is still the era of, like, Jam and Lewis or whatever, and Prince is at the top of mm. his game. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's not to be sniffed at. Shall we tuck in, then? Yeah. Onward! Radio One News. In the news this week... Rioting has broken out in Brixton over the weekend after Cherry Gross was shot in her bedroom by police looking for her son, leading to the death of a press photographer. Further riots in Peckham and Toxton, and in two days' time, after Cynthia Jarrett dies of heart failure during a police search in Tottenham, the Broadwater Farm riot. Meanwhile, the Scarman report on the Toxteth and Peckham rights of 1981 puts the blame on economic deprivation and racial discrimination. Rock Hudson died from AIDS-related complications at the age of 59 in Beverly Hills, while today's newspapers are plastered with a still from Dinister, where he snogs Linda Evans in a forthcoming episode. His admission and subsequent death leads private donations towards AIDS research in America to double, and by the end of the week, Congress approves a $221 million cash injection towards finding a cure. Fucking hell, you must remember that, chap. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I remember yeah. my mum screaming mm. at the telly when he kisses her on Dynasty. Fuck me. <laughs> the weird thing was, I didn't really know who he was because he mm. seems such a historic figure. And I, I know yes. people talk about it as the first major star who died of AIDS, but 
that he seemed like a figure from, from the days of black and white. And mm. when he said he's only 59, that surprised me. That That's younger than, uh, I think, Keanu Reeves is now. He's younger than me. Shit. And, and he's doing John John Wick and all that kind of stuff. So mm. I guess, I suppose, we know what, what it was just, you know, the revelation that uh, there are some gays out there other than Quentin Crisp, you know, and uh, some of them yeah. are not like, you know, not the chaps you'd expect, you know. And I think, I guess it was just an eye-opening in that respect to a lot of people. The Labour Party conference in Bournemouth sees Neil Kinnock winning a vote against the militant tender set and Arthur Scargill over the reimbursement of fines imposed on the NUM and slapping down Derek Hatton for his council sending out redundancy notices by tax air. A Labour council! All three of us yeah. there have to do it. You can't not do it. The Achille Laro, an Italian cruise ship, has left Genoa today on its way to Ashdod in Israel via Alexandria and will be hijacked by the Palestine Liberation Front on Monday, resulting in the death of Leon Klinghoffer, the safe passage of the four hijackers in Egypt, the pursuit of the hijackers while they're flying to Tunisia when the US government find out they killed one of their own and their plane being forced down to US Air Force Base in Sicily. An article published in Vanity Fair this week which claims that the marriage of Charles and Diana is up Arsenal Street <laughs> with him described as a wimp, her compared to Alexis Carrington and both of them completely incompatible for each other has been savaged by close friends of the couple. These claims are totally ridiculous. I don't know why people write that kind of stuff. (laughs) They've just got their wires crossed somewhere because what they're saying is just sensational rubbish, says one of Prince Charles's closest friends. Camilla Parker Bowles. Camilla Parker Bowles. (laughs) I was going to say that's a joke. Oh, Oh, my God. Doris Stokes pitches up on TVAM to tell Henry Kelly that she's had a very interesting chat with Elvis from beyond the grave recently. After telling her that he's made up about being in heaven, although he doesn't like his bathroom, which is black and horrible, he tells her that he's well dischuffed about the way Priscilla has been coating him down in her biography and that he has a very special message for boy George. You may be the queen of rock, but I'm still the king. <laughs> There's a new Madonna film out, but she's not massively keen to promote it. It's A Certain Sacrifice, a film she made in 1980 where she has three love slaves, one male, one female and one trans, and she ends up performing a satanic ritual in a theatre. It goes straight to video next week after a premiere in New York. (laughs) A nightclub in Liverpool has caused a row after announcing that women will be given free entry and a complimentary glass of champagne at their disco nights, but only if the hems of their miniskirts are at least eight inches above the knee. A doorman have been issued with tape measures to ensure the rule is adhered to. No fucking way. Oh, my God. When asked to address the criticism emanating from Scouse Women's Libbers, club DJ Chris Cross said, I don't know what some women are carping about. Let's face it, their main function in life is to be attractive to us guys. Personally, I would like all the girls to wear stockings and suspenders because that would be nice for our male customers. 
All we are saying to the girls is, come along, have a fabulous evening and prove how attractive you are. Uh. But Labour councillor Anne Hollins had counter by saying, these male morons should be put in their place. Would they like to turn up in their underpants so we could measure their inside legs? No. Oh, crisscross. What a downfall from Arthur's song. <laughs> you should probably fuck off somewhere between the moon and New York City. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Man United have won their 10th game in a row in Division 1 after beating Southampton 1-0. But the big news this week, according to the Sunday Mirror, Fizz star Mike in pub brawl. (laughs) Bucks Fizz star Mike Nolan revealed yesterday how a pub landlord rescued him during a barroom brawl. Mike, still recovering from head injuries after a coach crash last year, had been having a quiet drink with singer Lynn Paul. Suddenly, three yobs burst in. When they were refused a drink, they threatened to take the place apart and made a beeline for the hunky Bucks Fizz star. <laughs> but they reckoned without the pluck of Noel Farrell, landlord of the Coachmaker's Arms in Slough. He raced around the bar and tore into the trio. Noel floored one thug with a single punch and bundled the other two out into the street. I can't thank the landlord enough, said Mike last night. Although I'm well on the way to a full recovery, I dread to think what might have happened if I'd been badly beaten up or hit over the head with a bottle. Oh, Mm. man. Were there any photos to sort of back this up? You doubt the tale, Simon? Well, I just think the camera never lies, and I believe Uh, that. Yeah, that's true. The CTTTV never (laughs) lies. (laughs) On the cover of Melody Maker this week... The Water Boys. On the cover of Smash Hits, Paul Young and Nick Kershaw. On the cover of Record Mirror, Echo and the Bunny Men. The number one LP in the country at the moment is Hounds of Love by Kate Bush. And over in America, the number one single is Money for Nothing by Dire Straits. Mm. And the number Mm. one LP, Brothers in Arms by Dire Straits. So, I know. So, boys, what were we doing in October of 1985? Well, um, I'd actually just arrived in London um, I've lived here ever since. Um, like your name was Jimmy Somerville, <laughs> eh, David? <laughs> I was, yes. I was a big town boy now, yes. A stick with a, with a knotted hanky. Mm. You know, <laughs> yes. uh, yeah. Seek my fortune, yes. Working as a, a temping in a place called Freightliners. That was my first job here. Doing what? Oh, just, I don't know, clerical work, you know, nothing... You know, just, just yeah, it's just temp, temping rubbish, you know. Uh, but I think at that point, I was still kidding myself that I wasn't going to be a music journalist, you know. I, I, if the call came, I'd refuse it, you know, <laughs> their loss. Because, you know, because music was in such a kind of terminal state. And in fact, at that point, the only music I was listening to was imported R&B and avant-garde classical and jazz, you know. I was... Fun guy, fun guy. You know. <laughs> I mean, Simon Reynolds has actually started writing for Melody Maker about this time, but we were still putting out Monitor, which is the magazine that we'd sort of, you know, did at Oxford. Yeah. And I think one of the dominant themes in that was, 
you know, the exhaustion. You know, Simon talked about music being overdetermined by punk. You know, and it was, it was it was true. You know, that whole punk to pop thing hadn't really succeeded in fully radicalising the world as we'd hoped. Yeah. You know, and everything just felt tired. So I kind of turned away from the music press. I, you know, I've been reading the Enemy or whatever, but I felt like in a way I was growing out of it. You know, and certainly that very credulous relationship I'd had with, you know, both Melody Maker and Enemy, you know, when I was long ago when I was in my teens. But I think I kind of knew that the world of things as it was in 1985 just had to be torn down. It just had to be deconstructed, you know, mm. the the mullets, the big heads, since the jackets with the sleeves rolled up, you know, the Miami vicification of pop, you know, yeah. the poodle hair, the highlighted hair, the big boxy empty productions, the post-Morlean pen enemy, you know, this aimless discourse now, the white socks worthiness, it all had to go mm. so that something new, something already born, but kind of lacking the, I don't know, the rhetorical thrust to make it happen. And I was going to have a role in that. <laughs> but anyway... The moment I did get the call, I practically bit the telephone receiver in half, but that was... Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash people today. Several months away. Bravo. Oh, Simon. I'd, uh, I'd had a very eventful couple of months leading up to this. And um, yeah, I hope you'll bear with me because I've been piecing together the sequence of events, just figuring it all out. Um, <laughs> I can just see your bedroom wall now, man, with all the Polaroids and bits of string. Yes, that's something from the wire. Really is. Yeah, yeah. Um, so some of it is stuff that we've kind of talked about. I was just starting the upper sixth of Barry Boy's Comprehensive School. Um, I should say mm-hmm. Barry Boy's Comprehensive School, for reasons I'll come to. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I'd started in music journalism in a tiny way by writing for the Barry District News. Of course, Ooh. Simon says, Simon says Colin was in full swing. I was chafing against the shackles of being a man, or, or at least the, the pathway of being a man that was offered to me by the, the macho culture of, of South mm. Wales. Uh, I, I honestly mm. might have declared myself non-binary if we'd had the words back then. We just didn't have, <laughs> didn't have the words. But, you know... The... You would be like that Rock Hudson you do. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I was kind of forging my own identity. My, my hair was growing out from... I, I'd had this Dave Garn slash Morrissey flat top, but it was growing out into something more approaching a gothic mullet. And... Uh, right. Um, <laughs> I was dressing more flamboyantly. I was wearing frilly shirts with my grandmother's brooch holding the collar in place. Oh, um, yes. Mm. Um, eyeliner, inspired by Robert Smith. Black lace gloves, very much inspired. 
inspired by Prince in Purple Rain. Wow. My dad had dragged me to Fairport Convention's Cropperty Festival in the summer because <laughs> uh, he was the compere. I hated the music. I, I didn't like folk music at all. But um, I got to play football with Robert Plant. And, uh, Fuck! Yeah, yeah. Did he pass? Yeah, he was, he was, he was pretty good. Uh, better than me, although, you know, I was wearing winkle pickers, to be fair. Um, <laughs> Do you remember those games that Damon Albarn used to take part in a Regent's Park? Did you ever play in any of them? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I played every yeah, Sunday yeah. with... He never passed. He up. never passed. But, of course, he was by far the most famous person who used to turn up. So <laughs> every, everyone gave yeah. him a pass, as it were. Yeah, so I had a kickabout with Robert Plant. I, I met Billy Connolly and Michael Elphick, uh, which was a boon. Fucking um, hell. I sh- uh, just to uh, pause for a moment of respect for that joke. Um, I, I, yes, I, that's right. Elphick. I, so I'm I, just I, rolling I, in the aisle here. I should have said to him, what do you want, you old spunker? Yes. What do you want? Um, <laughs> but um, the best thing about that festival was the market stores where I was able to buy a load of hippie beads and, uh, and, and a peacock feather earring because I was also under the influence of Ian Asprey from the cult. Mm. So I was um, developing this kind of outlandish look and on the one hand, I was very pleased myself. I thought I was fucking great. And, and, and I, you know, I thought the world was at my feet and I thought I was going to go to Oxford University. I'd, I'd applied to, to do PPE at Balliol College, um, but they fucked me over and I failed. Um, I'm not, not that I'm bitter. Um, but back in Barry, I, I didn't fit in. Um, almost willfully so, you know, mm. you might say, which brought its problems. I mean, for one thing, I had no luck with girls, OK? Yeah. And this is where the school situation comes in. Barry bought... Boys County Comprehensive School, to give its full mm. name, was the largest single-sex school in Europe, we were told. Not sure if that was true, but there were about 2,000 of us. And I genuinely believe that's child cruelty, separating everyone mm. off like that. Because mm. between the age of 11 and 17, I, I barely knew any girls at all, which meant I couldn't relate to them. I didn't know how to act around them. I didn't know how to talk to them. And I entirely blame the school system for that. And I think that, you know, trauma from that kind of lives on a little bit, really, Mm. throughout life. But in 1985, something miraculous happened. I finally got a proper girlfriend. What had happened was a group of my friends and a group of girls from Bryn Haveron Girls School down the road had sort of gravitated towards each other and started hanging out. There were maybe 20 of us in total. And... uh, most weekends, there'd be someone whose parents had gone away or gone out for uh. the night. And we'd all descend on their house for a party, you know, tins of woodpecker, bottles of Malibu and all that. <laughs> but I was always the one left out when it struck snog o'clock, you know. Oh. And uh, <laughs> Move Closer by Phyllis Nelson came on, which is why I said trauma <laughs> when you mentioned that one. <laughs> um, until suddenly I wasn't left out. And I, I figured out the exact date. It was Saturday the 3rd of August. And it was the birthday party of a girl called Claire who was very much the Marilyn Monroe of our little group. Everyone fancied Claire. I was no exception. But it was tactfully conveyed to me, Claire thinks you're nice, but she thinks you're a bit weird. And (laughs) fair enough, I was. So anyway, we all turned up at Claire's house with gifts of seven-inch singles. That was the currency. If it's someone's birthday, you'd all turn up with with singles to give them. Um, I remember I I gave Claire We Don't Need Another Hero by Tina Turner, (laughs) which she liked. And then I just sort of retreated to do my thing, which was leaning against the wall, Mm. looking tragic and misunderstood like the pathetic Smiths fan that I was, you know. And... um, of course, being a pathetic Smith fan, other people's rejection made me feel vindicated. Yes. You know, it, it just proved that they were shallow and superficial and, and I was superior. Mm. But at some point during the night, I went to the kitchen to get myself a drink. And out of the blue, um, a girl I'd never seen before sat on the sofa, pinched my ass as I walked past. Ooh. 
<laughs> which immediately solved all my problems, right? Because I couldn't talk to girls, but it didn't matter. If someone pinches your ass, yeah. there's only one thing you can do, and that's burst out laughing, which yeah. kind of it shattered this tragically cool persona I was trying to create, <laughs> you know, and it, it broke the ice. And bless her for being so forward, because it's yeah. not like I was going to make the first move, you know what I mean? Yeah. So suddenly I had a girlfriend, and I, I, I wrestled with whether to give her name, but I'm going to. Her name was Wendy, uh. and... Uh, the amusement park rose bold and stark. Kids were huddled on the beach in the mist. I wanted to die with Wendy on the street tonight in an everlasting kiss. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, we, we, we had very little in common. Um, she had a horse and I didn't care about horses. Um, <laughs> she was obsessed with Pierrot's and I didn't care about Pierrot's. Oh. She liked Limal and I liked Morrissey. Um, <laughs> but she was really nice, loads of fun to be around. Most of all, we fancied each other. And at that age, I think that's kind of all that matters isn't yes. it? so you know we we spent the second half of 1985 just sitting on park benches snogging each other's faces off Aww. so basically in terms of girls i've gone from zero to 100 i mean not wishing to be overly crude but i'd never seen an actual real life pair of tits in the flesh before you know and Aww. suddenly here they were all for me it was a lot to process it was almost psychedelic like you know adrian mm. yeah i mean seriously i uh, i could relate to that and and wendy had a poster of pete burns on her bedroom wall so right. my, my first sexual experiences took place under the watchful eye patch of Britain's most livable bisexual <laughs> of course to, to whose cousin I am now married weirdly enough so it's funny how this, that's the circle of life right there and those those experiences <laughs> took place to the sounds of now that's what I call music six so to this day I only need to hear that opening run of One Vision by Queen When a Heart Beats by Nick Kershaw and A Good Heart by Fergal <laughs> Sharkey and I'm triggered you know by the time it gets to Lavender by Marillion it was game over I mean lucky if I got as far as Empty Rooms by Gary Moore if I'm honest oh man so, so, so we'd been going out for a, a few weeks uh, when I had my 18th birthday party which was just a week before before this episode of Top of the Pops, in fact. Right. And uh, I got together with this other kid called Soggy, who shared my birthday, and we held it at Feathers Nightclub over Barry nice. Island's classic 80s disco name, uh, which was taking the piss, because I'd already been going there for years, telling the bouncers I was already 18, <laughs> and suddenly I'm having my 18th birthday there. But anyway, and uh, I remember Wendy walking in, and some other girl was already sitting on my lap. So it, it wasn't even someone I particularly liked, as I remember, but there was a bit of a scene, and I think we broke up for a few days. Oh. and Then we got back together again. We were always doing oh. that. Uh, we, we were together for about 16 months on and off, which is an eternity when you're that age. Um, God, yeah. when, when I went away to London for university, we, we did that whole cliché thing. It's such a fucking cliché me solemnly promising uh, we'd stay together but yeah. by, by Christmas I'd already dumped her and started going out with someone I met at uni you know mm. because men are trash especially young men uh, yeah but women are like that too yeah. as soon as they're off to university that's it New world. Yeah, I guess so. So I don't feel so bad if you put it like that. But this very week when the Top of the Pops happens, I had been to a festival and it, it was uh, a bit closer to home than the Fairport Convention one. It was the Butlins yeah. Barry Island Festival of the 60s. And uh, this is where, <laughs> as uh, long-term listeners will know, this is where I met the treacherous Steph um, the previous year. Uh, but this time around, her treachery was a distant memory because, uh, as I mentioned, I had a proper girlfriend. So I don't care, treacherous cool. Steph. You can't hurt me anymore, mm. you know? Treacherous Steph's turn to cry. Yeah, right. So anyway, I was working there at Butlins. I was carrying a wicker basket of cockles and mussels, a dead, a dead-o, you know, um, <laughs> wearing um, a, a white coat and a little trilby. And um, my, my dad was working there as well that weekend. He was carrying a microphone and a massive tape recorder on a shoulder strap, interviewing the stars for Red Dragon Ray 
radio. And right. uh, and he also carried my autograph book everywhere. So I've got loads of signatures of those cool. washed up 60s stars. And I just wondered, guys, if I could get you involved in a little guessing game. Here. Okay. Please do. If I tell you, and maybe the listeners can play along, but if I tell you that it was very much the second tier of 60s acts, as it would be mm. being a Butlins festival. Mm. So obviously no Beatles or Stones, no Who or Kinks, <laughs> no Monkeys or Beach Boys. So we're talking the next level down, right? Mm. So if I give you three guesses each, maybe we'll sort of do one at a time, one at a time, uh, and see how well you do. There were 44 acts in total, so you've got quite a good chance. That yeah. next level down of 60s acts, who wants to go first? All right. Go on, okay. David. Okay. Freddie and the Dreamers. Oh. One nil to David. Oh, obvious, obvious. Um, the Tremolos. One all. Ooh. The Searchers. 2-1 to David. Oh, oh. The Swinging Blue Jeans. 2 all. Oh, my God. That was going to be mine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, uh, oh. Hang on. What did I say? Yeah, the Searchers. Uh, Take your penalty, man. <laughs> Jerry and the Pacemakers. 3-2 to David Stubbs. Pal, have you Ooh. got what it takes? Okay, well, I'm going to come out of left field here and I'm going to say Leapy Lee. And it ends 3-2 to David Stubbs. Yeah. There's no Leapy Lee. Oh, Leapy Lee. What a shit <laughs> festival. Yeah. Oh. That was a Chris Waddle, man. That was right over the bar. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, yeah, that was quite tense. I enjoyed that. Yeah. Um, it, it was, It was. yeah, it was people like Swinging Blue Jeans, Jerry and the Pacemakers, Wayne Fontana and the Mindbenders, mm. um, Billy J. Kramer, the Dakotas, Coaches, yeah. the Searchers, uh, Marty Wilde, Freddie and the Dreamers, and Herman's Hermits. Oh, and Screaming Lord Such. Mm. Um, oh. i tell you who else was there. Peter Sarstedt was there. I so, know. Yes. So I, I squandered the chance to accidentally on purpose trip him up into the Olympic sized swimming pool and, and, <laughs> and performatively do a laugh. <laughs> you had some acts who no longer had the full complement of members. So there was, of course, Dozy, Beaky, Mick, and Titch. Right? <laughs> uh, Dave D had uh, gone off to be an AR man mm. uh, who was involved in of signing course, uh, yes. ACDC, Boney M, Gary Newman. Um, he appeared in the Great Rock and Roll Swindle as an AR man. Um, yes, he was. Um, alongside another real AR man played by Chris Parry, manager of The Cure. Bit of a mm. Chekhov's gun moment there, foreshadowing. Um, this <laughs> is my favourite one. There was uh, the Tremolos, and there was also. Brian Poole, but separately. Oh. Yeah, Brian Poole with a different backing band called Black Cat. And you can imagine them glaring at each other from across the pig oh. and whistle. Um, oh. Or, you know, the real tremolos throwing chips at Black Cat from the cable car ride, shouting, who are you? Who are you? You know. <laughs> Was uh, David Van Day's the tremolos there? <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> Um, there, there were acts I would have loved to see, but I was probably shifting prawns and whelks um, to the boomers. I wish I'd seen Love Affair just to hear Everlasting Love. You mm. know, I wish I'd seen the Trogs just to hear them put a little bit of fucking fairy dust over the bastard. Mm. Yes. Um, I, I wish I'd seen The Fortunes just to hear Storm in a Teacup. And I wish I'd seen Edison Lighthouse just to hear Love Grows Where My Rosemary Goes. And mm. you, you'll be way ahead of me here. Edison Lighthouse were a 70s band course mm. um and the festival of the 60s played fast and loose with the concept of 60s mm. because uh. there was also mungo jerry oh nottingham's mm. own paper lace oh. yes and les gray's mud good lord and uh, and i i did see mud but and this just freaks me out when i think about it i wasn't bothered at the time mm. um it blows my mind nowadays to think i was just stood there reeking of seafood hearing them play tiger feet 
and yeah. not particularly asked, you know, because now it's one of my favourite records of all time. Because... Just as well that the cat didn't creep in, eh, Simon? Oh, man, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the very least I could have done was go up to him afterwards and say, fuck Pertwee, fuck Stardust, fuck Keegan, fuck Bugner, fuck Prowse, fuck Tufty. You were the one who saved my life because I wanted to live to be ten. <laughs> I got the picture. I took it from you. Be smart. Be safe. Uh. Imagine that, though, seeing loads of old bands from three decades previous. Thank fuck mm. we don't do that now, eh? <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm still in sixth form at High Pavement College, but this week I'm feeling absolutely jealous as fuck of my little sister because it's all kicking off at my old school. Article in today's Nottingham Evening Post... The scenes at a comprehensive school in Top Valley, where 300 pupils staged their own demo over teachers' union strikes and eventually acted like irresponsible juveniles by stoning the police, made it a sad day for our education system. Fucking went on strike, the kids at my old school. Amazing. The main point... 20 were arrested during the day, and they could count themselves lucky to get off with a warning. Pupils organising a bush telegraph between schools to make their demos bigger and more effective. Pupils arguing with teachers in public as if they were on the same level. And a teachers' union official alleging that somebody is behind this agitation in trying to organise the children. I mean, come on. Can you imagine how fucked off I was to miss out on all this? Mm. Were there any flying pickets from other schools coming along to show solidarity? (laughs) Well, on this very day, Simon, about half the school with other kids from other schools, from the the Rodney Bennetts of the uh, area, had all marched to County Hall on the other end of town. And there's an article in tomorrow's evening in post that reads thusly children at nottingham's top valley estate were back in their classrooms after a day of protest against the teachers strike yesterday about 400 children mostly from the top valley area marched to county hall to present a petition complaining about the effects the prolonged dispute is having on their education Mm. well that was bollocks I spoke to my sister about this and she just said, oh, no, we just wanted to bunk off school. Better than that than being anti-strike, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, from the Welsh perspective, it's just nice to hear that some people from Nottinghamshire actually went on strike in 1985. (laughs) (laughs) There was chaos yesterday when several hundred children arrived at County Hall. As County Council leader Dennis Pettit tried to maintain order in the council chamber, dozens of youngsters scrambled over the furniture while others shouted, cat-called and threw paper darts. The floor was left littered with plastic orange juice cups and broken biscuits as the children dispersed, a team of four cleaners moved in to clear the debris. One of the pupils who helped set up the march said she was disappointed. It went badly. Many of the youngsters were just not under control, she said. I don't think coming here today has achieved anything. They just let me down. They were just a mob. Yeah, I bet she came from Rice Park, the fucking posh estate on the (laughs) other end of our school. But, oh, man, I was so upset that I missed out on all this. There was a similar 
kids strike a couple of years before I went to that secondary school and I remember seeing out the window my mum coming back from work and disarming a youth in flares and a star jumper who was running about wielding a big stick with a nail through it. Yeah, serious times man. Music wise still listening to our favourite shop uh, still listening to the Redskins buying loads of James Brown and all that kind of stuff from record fairs and second hand shops. You know, just not getting involved in this 1985 shit really because mm. why would I yeah so chaps I do believe that it's time to go into the chart music crap room rummage through some boxes and pull out an issue of the music press from this very week and this time I've gone for the NME 5th of October 1985 would you care to join me on this journey yes certainly would on the cover A nice painting of a bare-chested black man with an afro raising his taped-up fist in the air for a Stuart Cosgrove article about boxing and soul. It's a weird front cover, that. Um, Mm. It is. It's nice. It's a lovely fucking painting. Yeah, but it looks like Prince, didn't you think? That this boxer looks like Prince. Um, And it's it's got a purple cover as well. So Mm. I did wonder how many Prince fans just bought the NME that week without looking too closely. Mm. I reckon it'd be quite handy. Mm. I mean, you know, he was little, but he was ripped, uh, I reckon. Yeah. In the news, it's been a bad week for the men they couldn't hang a week before their UK tour, with all plans thrown into disarray by the hospitalisation of singer-guitarist Swill Odgers. According to the NME, the band were having a drink in Dingwalls in Camden to celebrate the final mixes of their third single, Greenback Dollars, when Swill was attacked whilst nipping out of the club to make a phone call, leaving him with his jaw broken in three places and extensive bruising around the throat and chest. No one connected with the band has any idea what might have prompted the attack, but fears have been expressed that whoever did it was probably a martial arts expert who aim to damage the singer's vocal cords permanently. Him and Mike Nolan from Bucks Fears. It was a dangerous time to be a pop star, wasn't it? Yeah. The enemy visited the unfortunate swelling hospital after an operation to reset his jaw, but obviously couldn't get much out of him, what with his jaw being wired up. Although he demonstrated that he's been making the best of it by practising ventriloquism with a Dennis the Menace glove puppet. <laughs> Possibly a plastic cover mount in the latest issue. Mm. Mick Jones, formerly of The Clash, has announced his new band, Big Audio Dynamite, and their debut release, the 12-inch single, The Bottom Line. An LP called This Is Big Audio Dynamite is due out next month, and gigs are in the pipeline. In other Clash XL news, Topper Heedon is finalising his own solo album, Waking Up, after coming out of hiding early in 85 with a cover of Gene Krupa's Drumming Man. According to the NME, the LP contains a selection of classic dance numbers and autobiographical songs about his addiction to heroin and his successful bid to kick the habit. I remember a single off that called I'll Give You Everything, being played a lot on Radio 1. It's really fucking good. Seriously, because when I heard that description, selection of classic dance numbers and autobiographical songs about his addiction to heroin and successful Mm. bid to kick the habit, I just thought, fuck me. Imagine what that's going to sound like mm. the drummer out of the clash yeah. but you're saying it's actually mm. pretty good well the single's yeah. pretty right. good fair play to topper yeah. he's and hayden head and yeah good for him okay yes yeah. <laughs> mm. 
across the Atlantic in the city that no one who lives there calls the Big Apple, <laughs> Richard Grable files a dispatch from the sixth annual American New Music Seminar. It's the largest music industry convention in the world, says Grable, offering the biz a chance to catch mid-afternoon sets by the Beastie Boys and John Sex, <laughs> or a rap battle between <laughs> Roxanne Shante and LL Cool J. Oh, Shante would have battered him. Yeah, oh, yeah. But I want to know more about John Sex. Tell us about John mm. Sex. <laughs> Any relation to John Pretty? Or Jeff Sex. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But his report paints a gloomy picture of the state of play. Independent labels have been entirely absorbed into the corporate structure of the music industry and can be marketed as an image and packaged as neatly as Madonna's navel, while the real indies are on the defensive, he writes. Seminar highlights included Dick Griffey of Solar Records announcing that both his label and its distributor Electra will now donate all profits from record sales in South Africa to organisations fighting apartheid. Jerry Dammers flagging up the inherent racism built into the industry's chart-keeping practices and declaring that the music industry needs to put its own house in order. Frank Zappa and Dave March having another go at the PMRC, describing the Record Industry Association of America's plans for voluntary compliance with the wishes of the Washington wives as a toadying cave-in. Meanwhile, Claire O'Connor of Limelight and Chris Sullivan of the Wag Club had to stand up to repeated bullying from Hippodrome owner Peter Stringfellow on the nightclub's panel, mm-hmm. with O'Connor revealing that Limelight is trying to open a London branch and Stringfellow has opposed all of their permit applications. What do they want me to do, Stringfellow asked? Throw them apart, eh? <laughs> Meanwhile, in the British Indie Label seminar, Tony Wilson of Factory offered his explanation of the slump in indie record sales in Britain in the early 80s, blaming it all on music writers and an article by film critic Pauline Kale on Raiders of the Lost Ark. Paul Morley and Ian Penman had become bored with good music, Wilson claimed, and they picked up her theory of crafted schlock as art. Mm. According to Grable, the producers' panel, featuring Jellybean Benitez, Mike Thorne and Arif Mardin, was boring as fuck, and the artist panel, featuring Yoko Ono, Herbie Hancock, Jimmy Cliff, Deborah Harre, Adam Clayton and Martin Fry, were Equally so, by the continuous interruptions from a tired and emotional Marianne Faithful. <laughs> Faithful kept screaming about the Washington Wives censorship campaign, asking, Yoko, what are we going to do? <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure it's bordering on boredom to hear Yoko talk about peace and love again, said Yoko. That's a bit much from Tony Wilson playing fucking Paul Morley for nonsense. The idea that, like, you know, even when the enemy was like selling what it was selling, then the idea that it could have that kind of tangible impact on sales, anything, is complete rubbish. I just love this idea of Marianne Faithful drunkenly yelling, Yoko, what are we going to do? You know, which I can feel myself wanting to incorporate into my daily speech patterns. Yoko, Yoko, what are we going to do? The thing is about the Washington wives, though, again, versus Frank Zappa. Frankly, I have a bit of sympathy for the Washington wives, you know, because the records (laughs) that Zappa was putting out was just this crappy, smutty shit, you know, and it's just like, you know, in terms of like the whole censorship thing, it's just like, like, well, it's hard to defend on the ground is bollocks, Frank. 
Yeah, sadly, I don't think they were opposing Zappa for his misogyny. No. Yeah. You know, it's no, just it the same well, boot yeah. stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Still in America, the enemy reports that Vince Neil of Motley Crue is on his way to the big house as a result of the car crash that killed Hanoi Rock's drummer Razzle Dingler late last year. After pleading guilty of drunken driving and vehicular manslaughter, Neil has been ordered to pay $200,000 to the estate of Dingler, $571,000 to Daniel Smithers, who was driving the other car, plus another $1.8 million to Lisa Hogan, the other crash victim who spent several weeks in a coma as a result of the accident. Additionally, there's been a jail sentence of 30 days, after which Neil Neil's on probation for five years and has been ordered to perform 200 hours of community service, hopefully in a decent band for a change. (laughs) Neil would be released after 14 days on good behaviour and would take up motorsport in the early 90s. It's funny, Razzle, Raz from Hanno Rocks, I was reminded of him on a daily basis because a portrait of him hung above the rock and roll table at the Aporto where all the um, Melody Maker crew used to um, gather. Oh, was he mates with clerky yeah exactly you know he was right. like the rock and roll table martyr yeah who else was uh, on the wall of the rock and roll table it was him really it wasn't the, oh. the, 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 it wasn't like a whole kind of gallery it was just him you know staring down from um, from heaven uh. Rock and Roll Table sounds like a DIY show presented by Meatloaf, doesn't <laughs> yeah. it? Or Roscoe's Round Table, yeah. So you weren't, you weren't <laughs> well established Roscoe. there enough to start lobbying to have Stockhausen put on... No, the no, no. Oh, no, no. I, don't, I, I didn't want to sort of tamper with the culture there. Yeah, yeah. Wham! who are currently working on their next single, which is due out next month and is provisionally titled The Edge of Heaven, have quashed the rumours that they're planning a string of Earl's Court Christmas shows and emphasising that there are no immediate plans for a tour. Furthermore, it's been confirmed that Andrew Ridgely will not feature in a Hollywood film being shot next spring. Mm. The film is set in Edwardian times and would have seen Andrew playing the son of a wealthy aristocratic family, said a Wham spokesman. Andrew was offered a part, but it was never finalised and the film company seemed to be having financial difficulties. Fucking hell, Andrew Ridgely finally vindicated. Well, yeah, yeah it was, it was actually an interview with him in, in the last big issue and he was talking about his, like, his stalled acting career and he just said, mm. you know, the director just kept saying to me, why do you just think about your mum dying? And he said, what a, <laughs> a terrible thing to think of. I wasn't going to think of yeah. that. That was it, really. I just got to um, second what David said about the documentary, the Wham! documentary on, the, mm. on on Netflix. I mean, I'm sure everybody's seen it already, but if they haven't, it is just a joy. It really is. And yeah. yeah the, the, mm. the takeaway from it really is find yourself a friend who's got your back, like Andrew mm. had George's back, you know? Yeah. But, you know, yeah. mostly I just kept finding myself laughing all the way through. Mm. Not in a sort of mocking, sneering way, but just with pure joy because... You know, just the dance routines and the the utter camp of of their act, which I think mm. sort of flew under the radar at the time. You know, yeah. From, yeah. So you know, sitting on a floating lilo, pouring cocktails into the swimming pool, or putting shuttlecocks down their shorts and whacking mm. into the crowd, uh, it all just seemed like good sort of heterosexual fun at the time. And, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, it really stresses. I mean, you know, you tend to think of like 
Andrew Ridgely and Wham as being like Art Garfunkel, only minus the voice sort of thing in mm. terms of his contribution. Mm. But you mentioned that, that he was a really strong character. He was a really sharp wit. And it was really important that he be in the band. He, yeah, I, I think he had a really strong idea of what Wham should be. Yeah. Yeah. And also, yeah, it, it turns out that he sort of wrote some of the melody accords of Careless Whisper. So mm. everybody thinks that George just put his name on the credits as a favour. Mm. But, you know, it seems like he, he earned his keep, put it out. Because it was obviously a very, very early thing they did. And I think that at the time, it's like, you know, he was a bit older, was Ridge at the time when that really really counts you know and yeah. I think that he almost yeah. like kind of mentored George Michael to a degree yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, it's, it's fabulous it's beautifully put together it's beautifully edited you know like um you know all of the old footage and why like, it's 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 you know it's my, the stuff in China as well I mean that was uh, yeah you yeah. Know. Do you know about this other film that was made by Lindsay Anderson when they were in China? Ah, yes, yeah. It's called um, If You Were There, and it, it never got mm. released because right. apparently there was hardly any Wham! in it. Yeah, it was just a <laughs> document of the Chinese There's only people. like four songs by Wham! Mm. You know, they, they, they've flown this director to China, and then he doesn't really bother putting them in the final cut. Mm. Um, he, he, <laughs> instead, he was sort of going around just filming people's ordinary lives in, in, in China, and uh, I, I think in order to see it, you've got to go to the University of Stirling, mm. and that's the only place you can see it. Oh. And yeah, I I just really hope somehow whoever owns the sort of copyright to that can can get it together and actually get it released because I, I bet that'd be interesting in its own right even if mm. there's precious little wham in it mm. in other enormous gig news brent council are taking wembley stadium to court over the sound levels of bruce springsteen's july concerts at a meeting of the housing committee brent councillors were told that the sound levels at springsteen's gigs often reached twice the permitted volume and that the words and music were distinguishable half a mile away from the stadium well that's a first people being able to distinguish well, his lyrics that's fucking hell not to born in the usa <laughs> yeah i was born in the usa why are you listening to the verses, man? <laughs> when Brent Council takes over licensing arrangements after the abolition of the GLC next year, they will take enforcement action against both the stadium and the promoter of noisy pop concerts and install electrical equipment that will give immediate warning when maximum noise levels are being reached. Wembley Stadium would not comment, reports the NME. And finally, in fuck all to do with music news, the Brewer Society have sent out a booklet informing publicans and their staff how to avoid falling foul of the 1971 Misuse of Drugs Act and losing their licence due to in-venue custard ganetry. <laughs> Resident Bent Lynchers are now asked to watch out for pseudo-boozers who sit in the same dark corner table and frequently receive visitors. For where such activities were once a fairly innocuous province of Honest Burt, the friendly neighbourhood book air, today's denizens of the dark are apparently more likely to be the sort of business folk who are into skag rather than skull. Landlords are advised to inspect toilets frequently, especially late evening and after closing, and increase frequency of glass clearance and ashtray emptying from tables in order that the gloom cloak pushes and their clients shouldn't feel too secure. The booklet also points out that bits of beer mats and foam upholstery can also be used to make filters for joints. Oh, man, imagine <laughs> using a bit of fucking foam from a, a bar stool, man. Do you know what? I, I have seen pub chairs where the 
foam has been kind of ripped away. And I, uh. I never understood why, but maybe that's it. Mm. Um, yeah. Also, can I just say that Gloom Cloaked Pushers is a band name waiting to happen? Mm. <laughs> I mean, if yes. they're not in next week's chart music top 10, then I mm. don't know what, really. Mm. In the interview section, well, Bruce Dessau has a chat with Annabella Lewin, two years removed from her firing from Bow Wow Wow, and is back on the comeback trail as a solo artist called Annabella and is disconcerted to discover that the interview has to be conducted with press officers in earshot. Mm. Apparently a regular practice these days. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When asked about her old band and her ex-manager, she says, I was just a child then. I didn't know what I was doing. I can't believe that it was me that posed nude. RCA kept me and sacked the band because they obviously thought I was the one who could be the most successful and I am very grateful that they have had that faith in me. Maybe their decision was helped by the fact that you're a woman and an undeniably pretty one to boot, asked Dessau. <laughs> well, no, she answers. But the use of only your first name suggests to me that you were unimportant. You were simply a female body with a negligible identity, says Dessau, while the press officers start giving each other side eye and the interview winds up. Press officers at interviews. Yeah. That's fucking not right. No, it's not. Have you had that? Yeah, Hmm. yeah, I have. The first time it happened to me was TLC in the 90s. Right. I remember them sort of telling me beforehand things I wasn't allowed to talk about. Such as? So the press officers officer um, before the TLC interview was, was sort of telling me all these things I could and couldn't talk about and what had happened was Lisa Left Eye Lopez was dating this American sportsman, I think he was a, a, a football player. Andre Reason. Uh, Rison, I think. Rison, yeah, it. Andre yeah, yeah. Rison of the, of the Chiefs. Yeah, and they lived in a big house together and uh, for some reason when he was away, you know, she was obviously pissed off with him and she got all his uh, sports memorabilia and trophies, put it in the jacuzzi and set fire to it <laughs> and that, basically yeah. burnt the whole house down mm. and, yes. uh, you know, there, there were, uh, I think it was a front cover of Vibe magazine where they took the piss out of themselves uh, appearing in in um, you know f- firefighter costumes <laughs> but uh, yeah i was told do not talk about the fire do not talk about the fire oh <laughs> my first question asked is how do you set fire to a trophy i know, I know. <laughs> yeah. so i thought well how am i going to get around this you know because i thought jonesy the editor at melody maker is not going to stand for it if no. i come back without questions about the fire and uh, of course you know my, my first question to tlc was right uh I understand there are certain things you don't want me to talk about. And meanwhile, the press officer is sat in the corner going puce, you know. And, and TLC just said to me, no, fuck it. We'll talk about anything, whatever you want. Yes. And I said, all right, then, well, tell me about the fire. And they did. Yes. They just like, told me Brilliant. all about it. Yeah. You know, Brilliant. usually these mm. edicts don't come from the band themselves. Yeah. It's yeah. usually no, just overprotective PR people. Yeah. You had that, David. The nearest I've got, it wasn't really a pop interview. It was uh, a feature I did for um, GQ with Ian Wright. Ooh. And it was at some... God, no, it was supposed to be some sort of country club it was built at. And it was basically a sort of sports centre in Stanmore <laughs> with a sofa that looked like it had been left out in the rain for several weeks. But anyway, it was supposed to be a feature about Ian Wright and some clothes that he was modelling. I think it was Yves Saint Laurent or some of that. Yeah. And they wanted the questions faxed over in advance. And I said to the guy, you know, the editor of GQ, this is not rubbish, isn't it? He says, oh, just, just, just send some questions and then on the day, you know, sort of talk about whatever. So um, I just made a list of utterly inane questions. You know, does your wife have any input? 
put into your um, clothing, you know, choices and all this rubbish, <laughs> you know. So I get there on the day and Ian Wright turns up and sitting in on the interview, and not, not, not just a press office, but four other people, you know, representatives from the design company. And they're all sitting there clutching copies of these inane questions that I sent over that I bashed out in two minutes. And actually, Ian Wright looked at me, and he kind of said, we can talk around these, you know. And so that's mm. why I'm, so I started talking, as I mean, name question, and then started digressing onto other topics, including racism, you know, and stuff like that. And Ian Wright would start talking. And then yeah. I get an intervention, and I said, from one of the people who I've noticed that you've um, deviated from the questions, as we agreed. Fucking hell. I know. And Ian Wright, it was like, it wasn't the boss in the situation, apparently, you know. So I was like, fine, I'd got a reasonable amount anyway, actually, at that point. So then after that, I just very mechanically said, you know, does your wife have any input into your clothing <laughs> choices? Ian? And then mm. the whole thing wound up, but it was just a shockingly ridiculous experience. I mean, just mm. ask them question, the questions yourself. Why waste my time to come to fucking Stanmore, you know? And that's about sort of 25 years ago. Yeah. Anecdotally, one hears that the situation's even worse now if, if you really? do manage to get an interview with a, a top-level footballer. You know, yeah, it's, it's even more locked down, isn't it? Yeah. But, yeah. but Ian Wright, was, was he... I, I, I want to believe he was brilliant. Was he great? Yeah, he's cool. He was so a nice great. bloke. He was cool. And when we were just talking about mm. other stuff than his wife's input into to his clothing choices it was yeah it was it was interesting yeah. i think it might even have been his manager that made the intervention his manager was sitting in there you know and, yeah. and it may just have been that when we sort of started to talk about racism and stuff that that perhaps was the uh, you know uh, that's not going to shift no clothes is it though racism yeah yeah unless you're selling white hoods mm. <laughs> simon witter links up with the dancy man of the hour colonel abrams who's in town to promote his new single trapped and watches him bat away the accusation that he's modeled himself on Luther Van Dross. No way! I admire him very much, but I grew up with Marvin Gaye, Otis Redding, Teddy Pendergrass. I love Smokey Robinson's writing and the whole Motown era. I think Trapped could have been a Motown song. Its structure and lyrics are similar to what The Temptations would do with Dennis Edwards. Womack and Womack chat to Stuart Cosgrove about their recent split with Elektra Records and how they're tentatively engaging with hip-hop. Elektra were treating us like meat, two steaks that they wanted served their way, says Linda. They wanted to remix our material. They wanted to tell us which vocals weren't right. They wanted to dictate our direction right down to the clothes we wore. I won't be too sad to leave Los Angeles. When asked about their new stuff, Cecil says, Our new stuff is aimed at those too old to breakdance, but too young to retire. If you're six day, it's a bit of a lie to say you dig hip-hop, but it doesn't mean you have to give up either. It's so easy to stay stuck in the past, like signing Sam and Dave and re-recording Hold On, I'm Coming. We're not interested in being an old gold act. We want new gold. Mm. I actually think that, that quote from, uh, I think you pronounce it Cecil Womack. Um, Cecil. Yeah. Do apologise, Cecil. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think that's actually an amazing quote. Too old to break dance, too young to retire. Mm. I feel like getting that made mm. into a T-shirt. That's really got potential. Yes. I'm 60 and I dig hip-hop. <laughs> Yes. But then again, a 60-year-old in 1985, you know, who would now be, well, God, who would now be 98. That's frightening. Mm. Probably wouldn't, I guess. Sean O'Hagan pays a visit upon the newest pop sensation from Scotland, Hipsway, who are very keen to let us know about their yearning to create classic pop. 
What we want is if you were to ask someone to think of their all-time favourite pop records, then say, now think of an 80s equivalent, we'd want them to say Hipsway without hesitation. Mm. We want our records to be that good, says Johnny McElhone. We want everything we do to be right, including the sleeves and stuff, because that's important in the 80s, as you have to compete with the Frankies and all, says Harry Travers. With time running short and the photo shoot not yet done, frontman Graham Skinner says, I hope we don't get laughed at. One time we were making this video up in Glasgow and I had to stroll down this deserted street about ten times till they got it right. I was just getting into it when this voice shouts out, What are you up to, Skin, you big fucking poser? I'll (laughs) never forget it. Felt like a right prick. Mm-hmm. These boys will go far, predicts O'Hagan. Mm. Reader, they didn't. didn't. You know what? I actually so... thought they were pretty good, Hipsway. Um, really? Just the three singles that, that I had. Um, the Honey Thief was the only one that was an actual hit, but um, mm. there was Ask the Lord. But the one that I thought was brilliant was uh, The Broken Years, which is a really amazing yeah. bit of kind of Scottish white funk. And, um, yeah, I, I I think they were an underrated band. They're, they're often sort of the name that's sort of casually dropped to sort of mock the, the hubris of mid-80s bands who mm. thought they were going to be big but weren't. But, yeah, I, th- I thought they were decent. This week's Melody Maker cover star, Mike Scott of the Waterboys, finds time to sit down with David Quantic to chat about his new album, This Is The Sea, and is rewarded by a critical ambush. The sound you make is a crashing thing, an overstuffed mattress. Have you ever felt the desire to write something sparse? asks Quantic. I disagree with that, says Scott. You talk about the records being rough and spiky and the voice being shouty and all that. Well, if that's the way I am, that's cool. Undeterred, Quantic starts having a go at the lyrics. Three LPs of almost unrelenting seas and mountains and churches and spirits and pagan places and big musics. Almost every Waterboy song seems to deal with an aspect of the big plan. The listener longs for the potterings of a madness or a Ray Davis among the small loves and everyday concerns of folks. Is nothing small in this big music, Mike? I just write songs about what I'm thinking about and must think about them in that way, counters Scott. People have written in that kind of language for centuries and will continue to, so it must be a valid language to express things that people feel. Can't really help you. Mike Scott, constantly trying to evoke some sense of the meaning of life and just ending up making a racket. I like these three LPs, but they just aim and aim again and keep missing. Mike Scott will keep making a noise and not quite getting it right, and he'll keep banging the drum until no one wants to listen anymore, says Quantic as he walks away, shaking his head. Hmm. Uh, and probably lights up a strand and walks off alone while a harmonica plays. <laughs> I, I just wonder if it was quite as confrontational in <laughs> in, in real life as it's made out on the page, you know. that's. Uh, I mean, I, um, I wasn't a massive Waterboys yeah. fan, but I'm kind of sympathising mm. with Mike Scott there a little bit because mm. I'm not sure I mm. did want to hear about the, the potterings of ordinary folk, you know. Mm. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. I, I, th- I think it is valid to write in a kind of widescreen way. And OK, that wasn't to Quantic's taste, but, you know, yeah. I'd, I'd rather hear something that's approaching the majesty of early simple minds or something like that than mm. something that, that's mm. really kind of quotidian. 
if you know what I mean. Yeah, I was never particularly a Water Wars fan, but there's something slightly pointless, I suppose, about this kind of exercise. It's like me going along and interviewing and saying, well, aren't you the young gods? And yeah. like, well, I'm just not, you know, this is what I am, you know. Maybe they should have said somebody that's, you know, remotely interested in me, you know. So it's a bit strange, really. At the same time, you just get the sense with these interviews that, that a lot of the writers at NME were just feeling that kind of dullness of 1985, that lack of momentum. And it's, it's getting filled mm. in by people like Mike Scott. And so you can sense a sort of frustration from that point of view. Meanwhile, Matt Snow heads to a diner in Greenwich Village to meet none other than Suzanne Vega and presumably have a coffee. Naturally, the first thing he does is to quote Robert Criscow's review of Joni Mitchell from The Village Voice in 1973. Then he starts having a go at her. Your songs embody a passivity which I find irksome because they're clothed in a language of face self-absorption, long familiar from Joni Mitchell's blue and onwards through the me decade. Vega, politely, tells him to fuck off. Yeah. That's really interesting. Mm. I don't consider myself to be an aggressive person. I hold my ground. I've spent a lifetime holding my ground. The 70s make me realise that a song can't save you from your political situation. So a kind of cynical feeling of futility crept in. I felt very isolated, but in the back of my mind, I had the myth of a solitary person jumping a freight train and exploring the country and just having an acoustic guitar, and that did not include fancy costumes and making yourself a cartoon character. How are Dylan and Leonard Cohen allowed to be symbolic and I'm not? When Dylan sings I in a song, he's talking for every man. When I say I in a song, people say, oh, she's talking about herself again, being precious again. I want to get beyond that. It's a bit rude, isn't it? It's weird that all of his interviews are all quite confrontational. They're like Andrew Neil interviewing politicians. And... Yeah. yeah, you're shit. Why are you so shit? I could never do those kind of interviews. Not because, you know, I was I had to cower behind a typewriter who was going to do a coat down, but it's just the pointlessness, the, so, the, the extreme social awkwardness of it as well. You're David Stubbs, the world's friend. Yeah, well, you know, there's that as well, but you know, I could mm. never be able to do that, to see the point. Yeah. I think it's okay to take people to task for certain things, mm. but I, I don't understand what Suzanne Vega's done wrong here. Yeah. Well, not being Joni Mitchell, I think. Yeah, mm. I mean, yeah, man, exactly. listen to something like Marlena on the Wall, I don't think she's being passive yeah. in that song. I no. think it's a brilliant bit of songwriting. I actually think and... she, she accounts for herself very well, actually. Yeah, definitely, yeah. as it turns mm, out. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it'd be one thing to say to go interview PJ Harvey, you know, and you say, look, I love the records, a fantastic thing to talk about them, but we have to talk about this fox hunting business, you know, something like that. But when you're just going along and meeting someone and saying, look, I find you fundamentally useless, you know. Danny Kelly makes his way to a pub in Kensington to chat with Depeche Mode and first sits down for a one on one with a very K lied Martin Gore. His tiny girlish frame is armoured from head to foot in creaking black leather. His platinum quiff has been squeezed like toothpaste through a hole in his otherwise shaven head. His makeup is ghostly white and thick, his nail varnish iron cross black and chipped. He's taken up with a fraulein called Christine and deserted Basildon for the last stop on Rock and Roll's main line, Berlin. 
I'm quite a pessimistic person, and I see life as quite boring. Our stuff is love and sex and drink against the boredom of life. I see love as a consolation for the boredom of life, and drink and sex when we're on the road is consolation. Drinking is enjoyable, and collapsing is enjoyable. Hmm. Don't you ever feel like casting off the careful consideration of Depeche Mode's rise and do something extreme, disturbing or dirty, asked Keller. If I make boring records and people identify with them, I've achieved my aim, replies a clearly shit-faced gore. I wonder if Martin's dabblings in Berlin meant that he'd outgrown his fellow moders. At the moment, they're most worried about the way I dress. About my dresses, in fact. Maybe I'll get them all wearing them. When the rest of the band join in, Dave Gahan says, we're very dependent on Martin's ideas, his writing, whatever his whim at the moment. That's what the songs are about. We have to accept that. He has totally changed. Mark missed out on his teens, going out, seeing different girls every night and getting drunk all the time. He's living all that now. It's not a bad thing. Everyone should go through that phase, wearing tons of makeup and dresses. Now, if I want to go to a club, I just want to have a good time, not to shock. But Martin says that he hates going into the street and feeling normal. He does enjoy it when we go through customs and they asked him if he wants to go into the men's or women's cubicle to be searched. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting hearing from Martin Gore at that moment where he's just mm -hmm. entering into that kind of goth phase, if you like, where he's experimenting with cross-dressing and he's writing about these kind of perverse, sadomasochistic sexual dynamics and so on. Mm. And hearing um, Dave Garn's perspective on it, you know, which is that Martin had missed out on that in his teenage years, I found that really mm. interesting. Yeah. And, and also just this, this suggestion that Dave Garn wasn't really on board with that. Mm. You know, yeah. he, he, he seemed a bit like, oh, all right, mate, you do you, you know, but uh, and he sort of got, got dragged along with it. Um, yeah, because yeah. he apparently has no creative input. Yeah, that's the interesting thing. So he's got, not really got any choice. You know, it's just uh, yeah. it's like when Roger Daltrey with having to sort of be the mouthpiece for Pete Townsend yeah. all that time, you know. And, and the, the other thing is, just from the NME's point of view, they've got an interview with Depeche fucking Moe mm. and it's mm. not the front cover story. Yeah. Instead, they've got a yeah. painting of a fictional boxer. Yeah. What the fuck? Yeah. Single reviews. In the chair this week is Gavin Martin, who tells us before the reviews start. According to Music Week, 3,000-odd singles have been released so far this year, which averages out at about 75 per week. This week, the Christmas rush starts, and there are 118 pieces of plastic vying for your attention. To cover them all would be a waste of my time and your money. So here's a selection from an industry in Overload. Single of the week one, rightful air, is Slave to the Rhythm by Grace Jones. An undeniable jewel in Little Miss Manita's crown. A definite monster. Trevor Horn's execution matches the record's dizzying conceits. He's brought all the threads together into a real rich tapestry. Breathtaking. Mm. Single of the week two, Just Like Honey by the Jesus and Mary Chain. A sulphurous French kiss. Spectre's symphonic dreams dragged screaming into a miasma of feedback and searing cackles from the best popticians of the day. 
Good pop music has always captured the zeitgeist as a matter of course, so it's no accident that along with the compulsive melody and sweetness, the JAMC plunder shocking a trophy, fear, waste and impotence no one else would dare. But it's a coat down, for this is England by The Clash. <laughs> Their first record in 700 years, and they managed to miss the real riots once again. Still determined to slay the totems, bear the social ills, attend the wake of our crumbling banana republic, Strummer's rant bears all the signs of agic rocker well into advanced senility. Busking would appear a more fitting vocation. I mean, he's not wrong. No, he's not been wrong so far at all. Jimmy Somerville has wriggled out a Bronski beat, teamed up with Richard Cole and returned with the Communards, but Gav doesn't reckon their debut single, You Are My World. It continues where the Bronskis left off with a few musical adjustments. Viennese Tea Party string section, the piano line from Queen's Seven Seas of Rye, and an operatic vocal cadence, says Martin. All these elements are overloaded, overwrought and embarrassing in their attempt to attain qualities of reach and emotional pungency. It's hard not to cringe at the mega melodrama of I will follow you to the end of time, I will be the blood throwing through your veins when sang with the usual hysteria and stridence. I'll pass. Also on the comeback trail, Fergal Sharke with a good heart, open brackets, is hard to find, close brackets, which Martin reacts to in the same way as if he'd been shown the contents of a chimpanzee's nappe. <laughs> the first fruits of his partnership with David A. Stewart sees Sharky casting his vocal pearls to swine, blundering MTV rock out bombast. Remember the wit, the maelstrom, the magic of positive touch? Sharky Shaw help me forget that in a hurry future number one single <laughs> preposterous overinflated pomposity from a group that seems to have lost all sense of their roots their aims and their proportion says martin of alive and kicking by simple mm, minds well, fair enough there's little semblance of a song here just an exercise in you three gushing Jim Kerr sounds like he's been sick trying to clamber over the effluent of megaton multi-track merd churned out by the band and the clear mountain eye of I'm production folly. The closing howls could be a chorus of stadium yuppies and with a record this bad, this brainless, the cries may turn out to be for their own funeral. Gambler by Madonna is an up-tempo FM butch broad pose unredeemed by the superior dance track of Into the Groove or the flighty cheek of Material Girl. Sweetest Taboo by Sade is a serious case of too much blancmange pulled down the listener's luggle from a one-dimensional singer with a lifeless sheen unable to zap or sting. As the column continues, Martin reviews get shorter and shorter. Closer to the Heart by Clanad, a hopelessly preppy piece of Barbara Dixon-style whinging. Just Another Night by the OJs, a drippy candlelit ballad for two in a velveteen wall restaurant of your choice, 
Don't Look Back by Michael McDonald, an FM freeway romp ordinaire, and One of the Living by Tina Turner, Grace Jones for Headbangers. <laughs> I'd love to listen to Grace Jones for Headbangers, <laughs> man. That'd be fucking mint. Mm. But he gets in a two-line shoeing for Sweatbox by Wolfgang Press from the 4AD stable. An interchangeable bunch of Exmal Deutschlanders and Cocteau type people get together to produce the wearisome dirge that is customary from this label. Dance music, if you're into leg irons. And he winds up with a review of the intriguing Only a Conservative Dream from Bernard Hayward on the Red Flag label. 40-year-old Vernon's contribution to Scoundrel Kinnock's campaign trail, a piece of Lowry Land mock, released and financed by the Labour Party. It's aimed more at working men's than youth clubs, though I wonder if or lads will readily accept such blatant politic profiteering from the unemployment industry. I have a record collection and a political conscious, both of which will survive very nicely without this. Mm. Oh, dear. The thing with that singles page, first of all, I think it's pretty well written and there's not a lot to disagree with in, in yeah. what you said there. But the presence of Grace Jones and the Jesus and Mary Chain as his two mm. singles of the week, both very different acts, but yeah. both reasons why I, I would have been thinking at the time that all is not lost. Mm. You know, oh, yeah. There were these sort of disparate strands that were, you know, still offering hope. Mm. In the LP review section, the lead review this week is given over to Mad Not Mad by Madness. A Bieber cop breaks the news to a nation of youths, wondering if the Nutty Boys can still cut it in this, the wrong half of the 80s. Entropy is, colloquially speaking, all energy being absorbed in a losing battle against irreversible decay. The surface flakes and crumbles, despite all the frantic efforts to shore it up. Entropy really belongs to physics, but it aptly describes the physiognomy of Britain. Putting a brave smile on things when your insides are being eaten away by doubt. Tears of frustration never far away. For a proper sense of the nation's increasing entropic state, you'd do no better than listen to a madness song, as no one else in popular music is presently reading Britain's physiognomy so accurately. If their turns have become more serious, their tunes imbrued with a weightier sadness, it is because things have taken a turn for the worse. When madness recalled the toll of the big issues on the spirit, the time has finally come to worry, for they are a valuable litmus test to the national sentiment. Mad Not Mad manages the impressive shuffle of being revealing and therefore bleak and light-footed both at once. Mm. I think he likes it. <laughs> it's funny, knowing Bieber Cop, he's perhaps about the last person in the world who can imagine sort of bouncing around in tight trousers and white socks to um, House of Fun. But um... Doing the bummer's conga. <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah. But um, I think he kind of makes a point there in a way about, you know, that, 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 you know, a group like Madness are actually reflecting that sort of 
sense of just things sort of slowing down and kind of bleakening, you know, and I guess, you know, mm. they probably do mirror that at that point. Some good tunes on that album, Yesterday's mm. Men. Oh, yeah. Very well, yeah. ABC have returned with their third LP, How to Be a Zillionaire, but Adrian Thrill skips the hearts and flowers, skips the ivory towers. <laughs> it has one or two moments, but that's it. The orchestras of lexicon and flaming axes of beauty stab have given way to a billion pounding beatboxes, brash staccato slabs of rhythm and spongy, grungy dollops of fear light and emulator. The new ABC are gordly excessive and Zillionaire is a simply not very good record. I think that's a sort of misunderstood and underrated phase of abc that because mm. it's one in which they kind of presented themselves as human cartoon characters yeah, yeah, in, in yeah. a way that you know gorillas would do later on and yeah and they, they were adopting kind of um, retro kitsch in a way that i think delight picked up on later on oh and, god yeah and, and stuff mm. like that and you know I, I think the title track how to be a millionaire is a pretty great single you know i've seen the future i can't afford it it's a great opening line for a song i think it's just in 1985 the looming sort of towering achievement of lexicon of love is still you know it's very much in the, in the shadow yeah. i mean it still is they're, they're touring lexicon of love on its 40th anniversary now you know yeah. playing brighton next year so uh, and, mm. and who can blame him really if you've got mm, an right. album that good rinse it einsturzende nor uh, david help me einsturzende right. neubauten have put out their third lp half mensch which makes sean o'hagan go off on one the collapse continues, the noise of a nervous system under attack, the sounds and struggles of a body disintegrating. Almost the entire landscape of half-mensch maps out a world where death is enticingly close, is another flirtation, is waiting for an unlucky throw of the dice or a final turn of the screw. Nor about an event at a place few others choose to explore, not so much because of the subject matter, but more through an instinct that is pursuing such bleak paths leads to an emotional, spiritual and artistic impasse. Where do you go when you plumb the depths? The virus continues to spread and the collapse continues. Yes, sure, but can you tap a toe to it? <laughs> is that any good, David, by the way? Because you'd know. Yeah, well, yeah. Particularly the title track, yeah, which is just a sort of like a purely choral vocal piece. It's superb. Electro 9, the latest Street Sounds compilation, is out now, featuring Dougie Fresh, the Fat Boys and Mantronics, and Simon Witter spins on his head with glee. You might not like what the entrepreneurial capitalists at Street Sounds are selling, but you can't deny that they're the most on-the-ball compilers ever. They're also, by necessity, very streetwise, championing the critically unfavoured electro-phenomenon which, despite bad press, is decidedly happening. The LP is stronger than their previous electro LPs. The cuts are also hotter, having been picked up with a speed that will madden the nation's import dealers. Electro 9 confirms and pins down exactly where Electro is right now. If it's your bag, this is the real beef. Yeah, Morgan Kahn was really onto something, you know. Those, mm, yes. those mm. street sound compilations were very exciting every time a new one came out. Yeah. And in a very quiet week for LP releases, Leave the Best to Last by James Last finds itself being reviewed by Stuart Crosgrove. 
James Lust would be perfectly at home at an SDP conference. Ooh, sick burn. He's bland, short on ideas, and sits comfortably on the fence somewhere between Muzak and orchestral pop. Jimmy has a massive David Owen factor, a high rating in the middle-aged opinion polls, and the kind of swept-back hair which simultaneously tries to be young and old. Polydor liked to boast of Lass Ubiquite. Apparently, he is known to 93% of the German population. Less people know Hitler. But what's his line on cruise missiles? <laughs> A bit like Owen, soft options and silent night. Since when has a cover version of Hooray, Hooray, It's a Holly Holiday been the best unless you're lying pissed on a beach near Palmer? Culture Club's Karma Chameleon and the Bushy Boys Wake Me Up Before You Go Go come ready primed for the James Last treatment. Easy listening. Just swap the Catherine Hamnet strides for a pair of golfer's leisure pants. Mm. And lovers of black lace will have to stomach Agadoo rubbing shoulders with John Lennon's tiresome imagination and another predictable romp through his self-celebratory signature tune, Do the Conga, the song that guarantees reptilian dancing at his live concerts. Oh, man, I would love to hear a fucking mashup of Agadoo in Imagine. Mm. Yeah, of course, ten years later, hipsters couldn't get enough of yeah. easy listening cover versions of yeah, exactly, yeah. pop hits. Yeah. Yeah. In the gig guide section, well... David could have seen Ornette Coleman at the Forum, but might have preferred to spend the same evening in the company of Fred Rickshaw's Hot Ghoulies at the Knightsbridge <laughs> Grove or Dumpy's Rusty Nuts at the Marquee. Mm. Later that week, he could have checked out Gary Glitter at Mile End Queen Mary College, Joe Boxers at King's College, and perhaps actually did see Gerati Column at Greenwich Theatre. But probably didn't, David. Yeah, I, uh, unfortunately, I, t- I didn't get along to that. And, you know, it was nearby as well. I saw Sun Ra that year. Ooh. That autumn, yeah. Taylor could have seen Gary Numa at Birmingham Odeon, Joe Boxers at Birmingham Powerhouse, got his corpse paint on for Venom at the Birmingham Odeon, or his tam on for Tipper Irie and Pato Banton at the Birmingham Triangle Arts Centre, rounding off the week to have a good scream at David Cassidy also at the Birmingham Odeon. Sarah could have seen the membranes at Sheffield's George IV Hotel, a certain ratio at Sheffield Polair, seen the fall support the long riders at Sheffield Unair, the water boys at Leeds Polair, or gone non more goth with Balaam and the Angel at Leeds Warehouse. Al could have seen the Water Boys at Rock City, Van Morrison at the Royal Concert Hall, or the Spinners at the Royal Concert Hall. Neil could have seen Joe Boxer's skint video or the Flaming Mussolini's at Tory Shitter Warwick University, Streetlight at Wrighton Bridge, Dave Berry at the Jaguar Sports Club, and pretty much fuck all else. And Simon could have seen John Hegley at Cardiff University Union, Billy Connolly at St David's Hall and wound the week up with everything but the girl at Cardiff Uni. Can I just say, uh, Balaam and the Angel, the only goth band named after two tube stations. Um, of course. Uh, I, I actually, uh, I, I didn't go and see John Hegley in Cardiff, but I met him once and it didn't right. go well. Um, oh no. Yeah, what happened was my girlfriend in the late 80s, early 90s was a, a fan of his. So I was familiar with his work, you know, the album was played around the house. And he had this song called Eddie Don't Like Furniture, yeah. which is very memorable, very catchy. 
what happened was, like, years later in the noughties, I went to see the actor-turned-country singer Billy Bob Thornton mm. do a gig at the Union Chapel in London. And I was uh, in, invited uh, downstairs into the basement, which was a sort of green room slash dressing room, beforehand to meet uh, Billy Bob. And uh, there was no furniture in the dressing room. Tables and chairs all been completely... Room- it's a really big room, mm. but there were no chairs. And, I, and somebody sort of sidled up to me and explained, he's got this phobia of furniture. And I thought... Oh, my God, it's like the John Hegley song. So I, I stored that information away. Mm. And then um, I uh, happened to see John Hegley play a show at uh, the Red Lion Theatre Pub in Islington. Mm. And I, I went up to him and said, uh, John, um, this really weird thing happened once. You know your song, Eddie Don't Like Furniture? Well, I met Billy Bob Thornton. And I told him this whole story about how Billy Bob Thornton didn't like furniture. And he looked at me, John Hegley, like I was completely insane. He started <laughs> sort of shrinking away from me, like I'd said something completely mad. And I, I, was, I was really, really disappointed. In the letters page, well, Gasbag has been handed over to Neil Taylor, who discovers that the main topic of conversation this week is how much the readership hates Neil Taylor. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think, uh, I think Neil Taylor's much maligned. You know, I mean, it's it's not cool that he broke Seamus Coleman's leg back in 2017. I was there. Um, and what he did led to quite a tense and terrifying atmosphere that night in Dublin. Um, but what you have to balance against that is the fact that he also gave me one of the best nights of my life the previous year in Toulouse, when, when much to his own amazement, as well as everyone else's, he scored against the Russians. And, oh, wait, not mm. that, Neil Taylor. <laughs> Sorry. One for the Welsh football heads out there. It is comforting to know that once in a while you serious rock critic type persons relax from discussing the merits of postmodernist neo-structuralist post-stoicism in modern day society or some such. Step down from your ivory tower and visit an actual rock and roll gig to get on down with us mortals, writes Ricky Hill from Deptford. At a recent That Petrol Emotion spotted Cowboys hoedown at the old Tiger's Head, Lee Green, luscious, pouting, wild man of rock, Neil Taylor, was seen to really let his hair down. Yes, he strode seductively past the rows of bopping funsters at the front of the audience, stopped right in front of the stage, took off his shoulder bag and removed his shirt and pogoed madly like a man possessed. Oh, no, of course he didn't. Our extremely hip and cool man of the people proceeded to take out his Winfield Cup reporter set and from there on in spent the whole of the set taking notes. What a rocker. What a fan. What a prat. <laughs> yeah, taking notes. Imagine that journalist being diligent enough. Because mm. if you don't take notes, they'll, they'll just write to you and say, oh, were you even at the same gig? You've, you know, said nothing about what happened. Also laying into Mr Taylor, is Paul Haywood from Bristol, who writes that he is mostly thankful, but sometimes sad. That's the way enemy makes me feel. Revulsion takes over when your cynicism gives way to savagery and hysterical viciousness. Richard Cook is right. To Neil Taylor, a hundred percent of everything is shit. <laughs> Presumably, the man has self-respect, yet he can write of Ian Curtis. Thankfully, the dead pop star can't make records anymore. Very selective, Neil. Mm. 
However, it's simply not true that Neil Taylor hates everything, as Stig from Dundee attests. This has gone far enough. Week by week I have watched as each new creation act has been paraded through the pages of your rag, each more brattish, arrogant and untalented as the one preceding it, and each granting Mr Neil Taylor an exclusive interview. Mm. It is time Mr Taylor showed himself to be the thing I suspect, i.e. either on the payroll of creation, a close friend of McGee, and or the Mary Chain, or simply misguided. Granted, there is little or no new music to get excited about at the moment, but that is no excuse for giving space to dross. (laughs) Mr Taylor continues to come up with any dross that pervades from East Kilbrine in its environs and the enemy prints it. As Creation and Taylor are no doubt aware, this is a whole lot cheaper than advertising. (laughs) Who is this new recruit, Neil Taylor, whose outpourings have started to decorate the NME? asks Brian Savage from Battersea. In the last couple of weeks, this writer has informed us that the Bunnymen are dreadfully run-of-the-mill, the Cocteau twins appalling, everything but the girl atrocious, and Elvis Costello an ageing bore, all in the middle of articles or reviews of other groups. Of course, there is nothing wrong with holding these opinions on such enemy readers' favourites, but merely slagging off name groups for the sake of it seems silly, pointless and not at all original. Would it not be better when hiring young graduates to write for the enemy to find those who can mix genuine enthusiasm for popular music with constructive criticism? Mm. Please thank Neil... Fucking hell, what a pylon. Yeah. Please thank Neil Taylor profusely for his witty article on how much he hates all musicians, writers and record companies. Well done, Neil, writes Quentin Bissell from London. Perhaps in future he can voice his opinions in the local pub so folks can hear them for free instead of wasting 45 pence. And finally, we have Neil Taylor makes me puke. <laughs> Love, Marco Croydon. Fucking hell. Oh, man. Did you ever get such a slagging in the letters page? Yeah. Oh, it was yeah. great. I mean, a coke down was like, it's like the bebop jazz generation. You know, every time they got sort of slated by these kind of, you know, trad jazz music they were little badges of honour. Like being on the Daily Mail's woke watch list. <laughs> exactly. No, it, it was great. It just felt like a vindication because it was usually dullards and mm. they're usually writing in a very, you know, there's usually, usually the thing was like, I believe you might have been to a different gig altogether. You know, and, uh, mm. there's a lot of that. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've already said that when I wrote for the Barry District News, uh, Simon says, I loved it if people wrote in angrily, so how dare you say, uh, you know, uh, um, the Smiths are better than the Beatles. And it was the same at Melody Maker. I'm, I'm sure Neil Taylor would have been sort of digging through that mailbag looking for anything with his name on it. It's, it's only human to do so, I think. You know, we oh, all do. Of course, yeah. yeah. I've just got one here, actually, because um, it was somebody sort of trying to do a kind of like a comedic conceit, which is fair enough. I think I'd given, um, I was never much of a fan of um, Theatre of Hate stroke. Spear of Destiny, um, Kurt, Kurt Brandon. Oh, in the spirit of new kindness, apparently he's not been well lately, yeah. but he's um, on the oh. mend. So, um, you know, big shout yeah, out. Big to go well soon, okay. All is forgiven, yeah. Um, but anyway, this is, I'll try and do it in the owl voice if I can. Right. But, um, so anyway, you know, it's a riposte. So basically the review, I was effectively making out that Kurt Brandon was a dead horse, and I think I extended the 
the uh, mm. metaphor to kind of tins of meat in Brussels mm. supermarkets or something. Anyway, so I think this is what inspired this. So anyway, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Picture the scene. Ten minutes before the Grand National is due to begin and Willie Carson's horse drops down dead. Willie sprints instantly to the stables to find a replacement. Only two horses remain, the mighty Brandon and Stubbs the Sap. (laughs) (laughs) Willie has to choose between the two. I need a horse that can bounce back whenever down. The mighty Brandon neighs. (laughs) I need a horse which won't give up no matter what the odds are. The mighty Brandon neighs again. (laughs) But what about you, Stubbsy? Willie asks. I'm afraid I won't be much good, he says. People laugh at me all the time. All I do is make myself look silly, but I don't mind really. Once a failure, always a failure. (laughs) And with that, Willie rides off into the distance on the mighty Brandon to storm home first in the race, while Stubbs the Sap is left to contemplate what might have been. (laughs) There you go. That's how to extend a metaphor. Jeez, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Stubbs the Sap. Yeah, very chastening. Yes. But that was in 1987, so there you go. He's not the only enemy, Jono, that gets coated down this week, however, in the wake of Stephen Wells' interview with Steve Wright the other week. Did Wells get paid for rewriting the 1984 slag-off of Steve Wright? Asks John Carr from nowhere. I hope not, because he's offered me no new insights into the DJ. What it boils down to is that Wells can't stand Wright's show. Big deal. Whatever anyone thinks of Wright's show, it does bring pleasure to millions. In fact, most of my mates love it, and they do not read the enemy. Mm. Obviously, Wells feels himself above Steve Wright. But what is the man of the left's contribution to society? A. He goes on tour with Billy Bragg. B. He writes for the NME. C. He used to attempt humour on Whistle Test. I remember Steve Wright saying how disgusting it was that unemployed people were forced to live on £20 a week. That will have more impact than any number of smart slaggings from someone like Steve, man of the people, Wells. Perhaps he'll provide some witty response to this letter, being the man that he is. Reader, he doesn't. (laughs) Just a note to tell you that at least one long-term reader of your paper does not appreciate the amount of space you're currently allowing Stephen Wells. It is becoming increasingly obvious that he cannot wait for blood to be spilt. The most trivial and yet illuminating example of this macho attitude occurred when Mr Wells poked fun at a correspondent who used the word crap in his letter. Mr. Wells's reply, you tinker, obviously meant to put this wimp, read, non-macho, reader, in his place for not swearing vigorously enough. Yours, violently, Paul Kennedy, Liverpool. Matt Snow also comes under the microscope in a letter from a dickhead of Manchester who writes, there are dickheads and dickheads, and Matt Snow is a dickhead. 
And finally, someone remembers that the enemy is a music paper and writes about the new direction of Dex's Midnight Runners. Yeah. Kevin Rowland, you have the mind of a retarded skate, the dress sense of the jerks I used to work for in the stock exchange, and yeah. your music has fallen to bits. The Emperor's new clothes indeed. For four years I was Dex's number one fan, but I'm into CND. My parents used to live in Notting Hill, and if you call me scum, I'll mm. kick your fucking head in, turbot <laughs> brain. Seems like quite a few music journalists have been fooled, though. Ha! Reminisce part two. Awful, writes Attila the stockbroker of Essex. 64 mm. pages, 45p. I never knew there was so much hatred of Neil Taylor in it. <laughs> Until the stockbroker used to write quite a lot of um, angry letters like that, you know, the punk poet. I don't think he was really quiet with the programme of the 80s enemy. I remember there was one time where he just got so enraged that at the end of the letter, what are you even talking about? It's like, you said it now, you've done it now, Morley. You've done it now. You pissed on whatever reputation now, you stews, you piece of scab. And that was the end of the letter, Attila Sopro. What's he so, done? What are you referring to exactly? I think I actually know what he was referring to as well, because the previous week, Paul Morley had interviewed, um, uh, he talked about Simple Minds, and he referred to them as being post-ABBA rather than post-punk. <laughs> and I think that's what really kind of got him going. But he was so okay. seething with like, rage that he couldn't even bring himself to you know, sp- specify the complaint. But uh, Yeah, this, it's interesting hearing that that is the actual Attila, the stockbroker, because I've run into him down here. He lives, he lives uh, he's, you know, from Sussex. He's, uh, I think it's Southwick, right next to Brighton. And I've, I I've, I met him once at a, a, a Labour Party event. Mm. Um, and the, the letter's signed from Essex. That's the only thing that threw me. Mm. Um, but anyway, yeah, th- this letter, what it's specifically referring to is this is what she's like which is the Mm. 12 minute epic from um the don't stand me down album and it's a song on which kevin Rowland tries to describe the woman he loves by listing what she's not like Mm. and a lot of it is about class antipathy he says the english upper classes are thick and ignorant but he also hates the nouveau riche He, he calls them newly wealthy peasants with their home bars and their hi-fis. And he has a go at people who put creases in their Levi's and (laughs) people who use expressions like tongue-in-cheek, people who use words like fabulous, who describe nice things as wonderful. And the line that's pissed off Attila here uh, is the line, you know those scum from Notting Hill and Moseley, they call the CND. (laughs) The thing with that is... Um, it upset me at the time as well. I remember mm. I was a very pro-CND teenager and I felt seen, I felt criticised, I felt attacked. Um, and it's it's not as if Kevin Rowland himself is some sort of hawkish pro-nuclear warmonger, you know? I no. mean, he's a, he's a Jeremy Corbyn supporter, for fuck's sake. He's very much of the left and all that. But what he's doing there, it's not about the belief so much as what that belief is a badge of and the the sort of people who wear that badge if you know what I mean because sometimes Mm. I don't know if if you feel this as well about anything but Mm. sometimes the most aggravating people are the ones you basically agree with yeah so for example I'm massively pro-Europe and I was massively pro-Remain but if I see FBPE on someone's Twitter bio, my hackles go up. I can't help it. I don't know why. It just my my guard is up at least. Let's say that. And um, FBPE. Oh, is it fuck Brexit pro Europe? Right. Yeah. 
yeah, yeah, and and it's it just it's become a thing that people put in their in their Twitter bios, you know, and and the the same with with Ukrainian flags. Now, obviously, I'm a supporter of the uh, Ukrainian cause, um, but there there are certain things which are signifiers of nicey nicey liberal centrism mm. you know and and i don't get along with those people as kevin didn't even if i'm 100 percent in agreement with them on certain causes you know fuck brexit fuck putin you know mm. and i guess to kevin um cnd supporters from mosley and Notting hill were the 80s equivalent of that and this idea of alienating the very people you agree with mm. Is, is something that totally fits with Dexies and yeah. their, their mentality at the time. I mean, for a start, even in a world, you know, the mid-80s, a world of left-leaning, soul-based pop, Kevin didn't want anything to do with, with the rest of the left-leaning, soul-based pop groups. He always wanted to stand alone. And he, he didn't mm. even want people to agree with him, this sort of perversity of it, that um, if you go back to the 2RIA album and, and the track Liars A2E, that's all about he, he, he doesn't want his fans to follow him and to copy him, to be like like him so it's almost like i'm not saying his mind worked this way but it's like you know dexy's fans are probably sort of like you know cnd supporters or whatever i'm gonna really fuck them off <laughs> and if if dexy's lost the support of attila then you know fuck it it was worth it but 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 you know what i mean though that that thing about just feeling this antipathy towards your nominal allies yeah from 1985 there yeah so what else was on telly today? Well, BBC One kicks off at 6am with a 50-minute CFAX data blast. Then it's breakfast time with Frank Boff and Debbie Greenwood. Then it's the morning session of the final day of the Labour Party conference from Bournemouth. Then it's play school. Then it's back to Bournemouth. After news afternoon, it's Pebble Mill at one, Hokey Cokey with Don Spencer and Chloe Ashcroft, and back to Bournemouth for another two hours. At five to four, it's Up Our Street, Super Ted and Beat the Teacher. Then it's mm. Cheggers Plays Pop with Bernadette Nolan and Depeche Mode. Fucking hell, Depeche Mode on Cheggers Plays yeah, Pop. Working it. Oh, Martin Gore behaved himself. <laughs> After John Craven's news round, Janet Ellis nips over to Darwin to talk to the survivors of Cyclone Tracer, who flattened the place on Christmas Eve 1974. Then it's the six o'clock news, followed by regional news in your area. You know what, Al? Um, I think, you know, even if my home had been destroyed ten years earlier by um, a cyclone, I think meeting Janet Ellis mm. would have cheered me up. Definitely. Oh, yeah. And seeing it on TV as a teenager would also have cheered me up. But one thing you skipped over it in the listings there, it was straight after Blue Peter, Rolf Harris cartoon time. Oh, did I miss that? Yeah, yeah. And that would not, see, that would not cheer me up. No. So you got light and shade there from the BBC Kids programme. It All human life is here. Yeah. <laughs> BBC Two commences at 6.30am with geometry, axioms and energy closing the gap in Open University, then closes down for an hour and 40 minutes, springing back at nine for a 36-minute CFAX data blast. Then it schools programmes all the way to three o'clock, followed by a 50-minute CFAX data blast before they pick up the last knockings of the Labour Party conference. 
After another 25 minutes CD, it's the new summer air, followed by Jeremy James and William Hartson, who take us to Moscow for an update on the World Chess Championship. Then Captain Kirk and Spock get trapped in a dungeon by a woman who can turn into a giant cattle summit in Star Trek. And we're now <laughs> 10 minutes into a repeat of the adventure game. ITV starts at a quarter past six with Good Morning Britain, followed by a concentrated dollop of schools and colleges programmes until noon. Then it's the Giddy Game Show, Puddle Lane, The Sullivans, The News at One and Regional News in Your Area. After a repeat of Falcon Crest and the Home Cookery Club, we're treated to the first semi-final of the Goya Snooker Matchroom Trophy and horse racing from Newmarket. Then it's regional news in your area, a repeat of this morning's Giddy Game Show, Doris, Scooby-Doo, Them and Us, Blockbusters, Crossroads, and they've just started Emmerdale Farm, where Amos Brearley starts troubleshooting at the Woolpack and makes a dog's arse of everything, as usual. Oh, Amos mm. Brearley was the funniest ever soap opera character for me, bar none. Mm. Bar none. The greatest ever soap opera creation. Channel 4 actually gets out of bed at a decent hour for a change, all the better to provide their coverage of the Labour Party conference at half nine, before closing down at noon for an hour and a half, and then going back to Bournemouth for the rest of the afternoon. At five o'clock, they run The Lion of Judah, the 1983 two-hour-long documentary about the fascist invasion of Ethiopia, and they've just started Channel 4 News. Not much there that's leapt out at me and uh, brought back sweet memories. Apart from the Giddy Game Show, I used to like that. Bernard Breslau being a gorilla. I never heard of that. Probably one of the last things he ever did, really. Game over. I'm impressed that you found anything out about the Lion of Judah. I I looked it up on IMDb and there's nothing, you know. Not from 1983 anyway, uh, which is the owner listings. I I just presumed it's Rastafarian propaganda from the loony left Channel 4, you know. Um, Channel 4 was still Channel 4 then, wasn't it, you know? Yeah, Lennon bombing a Rastafarian. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Al, you mentioned Super Ted. Super Ted's from Barry, you know. Really? Yeah, yeah. Well, Mike Young, who invented Super Ted, is from Barry. He was at school with my mum, actually, um, Mm. which meant that Super Ted was the most famous person from Barry (laughs) when I was growing up. I mean, nowadays, there's Derek Brockway, the weatherman, who I was at school with. Um, There's Mike Bubbins, the comedian. There's that woman who was Prime Minister of Australia, Julia Gillard. And in fifth place, there's probably me. Um, Barry's not overly blessed. None of you are as good a super ted though no absolutely can any of your lot fly i don't think so well i used to tell people i could when i was about 10 years old but that's a whole other story (laughs) yeah all right then pop craze youngsters it is time to go way back to october of 1985 always remember we may coke down your favourite band or artist, but we never forget they've been on top of the pops more than we have. <laughs> hey, how you doing? Welcome to 
welcome to Top of the Box, and welcome to Top of the Box for the very first time to Paul John. Thanks very much indeed, Gary. Have we got a great show for you tonight? It's 7 o'clock on Thursday evening, October the 3rd, 1985, and Top of the Pops, about to broadcast its 1,123rd episode, has spent the year adopting to the choppy waters of the Michael Grade Reformations. After beginning the year ensconced in its usual post-Tomorrow's World slot, enjoying the 40 to 45 minutes it deserved, it was all changed in late February when the timescale was chopped to a rigid 30 minutes in order to accommodate the launch of EastEnders, whose first episode pulled down 13 million viewers, which wasn't that brilliant in 1985. Desperate to get his flagship drama series into the top ten of the ratings, Grade mashed up the schedule, moved EastEnders to 7pm and pulled our favourite Thursday evening pop treat up to 8 o'clock, which saw the former drop to 8 million as it was in direct competition with Emmerdale Farm and the latter lose its faction of pop-crazed extremely youngsters who needed to go to bed at a decent hour, especially on the last Thursday of June when Top of the Pops didn't start until 8.30pm. Upset that his bi-weekly slab of cockney misery was losing viewers to rural issues, Grade shuffled the deck again, and on September the 3rd, Top of the Pops began at 7pm as the prelude to whatever was going on in Albert Square that week, a format that would stay in place for the next 11 years before it was dumped into the Friday evening schedules. Long story short, chaps, Top of the Pops is being fucked about within nine. 1985. That's not right, is it? It definitely isn't. And EastEnders is another thing, you know, like Live Aid, ruined everything, ruined so Ruined Top of the Pops. Even Coronation Street. Coronation Street felt he had to get more miserable mm. in order to kind of keep pace with EastEnders and started having kind of stupid, spurious kind of character shifts and regular characters turning out to be wife beaters after about <laughs> several years, you yeah. know, all that kind of nonsense. Yeah, EastEnders. Ruined everything. Uh, and Top of the Pops. And well. it's just really thoughtless of them to hack it back to 30 minutes. How are we meant to get seven hours of podcast out of a mere 30-minute television program? You know what I mean? It can't be done. Yep. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Have I said this before? I used to own Michael Grade's computer. What? Yeah. Um, when I bought my first, my first um, personal computer in the 90s, um, Apple Macintosh LC2, I got it from a company in Reading called Second User Mac Systems, who had somehow got hold of a load of old Channel 4 stock, uh, clearly. Right. And uh, I expected all the discs to be wiped and everything, but I plugged it in and started looking about. And, yeah, uh, it had previously belonged to Michael Grade, And I was like, Whoa. I know. I was so excited, think, thinking I might find something some dirt that might uh, you know back up chris morris's famous uh, mm. interstitial subliminal frame that said great is yes. a cunt was that a screensaver <laughs> <laughs> yeah sadly and really boringly all that was on there was uh, a load of folders with plans for channel 4 schools programs no oh, i know no. i know i thought there was going to be some real juicy stuff on there but nah but yeah that's my claim to fame my link to michael grade furthermore after 24 and a half million people in Britain sat in front of the telly for Live Aid, which was the biggest television audience of the year in the UK in 1985, it's beginning to dawn upon the television industry that folk rather like watching music TV, and they want more of it, meaning that Top of the Pops is no longer the only game in town. 
The new series of Whistle Test started last Tuesday. Billy Idol, Squeeze, The Long Riders and John Parr. Channel 4 is putting out the final episode of Bliss, presented by Muriel Gray, with performances by Sade, The Cult and Jesse Ray, with King Kurt modelling the latest in cycling gear. And Soul Train, with Jeffrey Daniel introducing Loose Ends, Ashford and Simpson and The Stylistics. The new series of The Tube kicks off next Friday with Pete Townsend, Dex's Midnight Runners, Depeche Mode, The Thompson Twins and Madonna. But the big event of this week musically happened on Tuesday night on ITV when the white-hot sounds of the mid-80s clashed with the cold realities of real kids' issues. From the Daily Mirror television pages, chaps, ITV... 8pm, Elky and Owl Gang. Song and Dance Show, based on the day in the lives of some unemployed young people on their way to an Elky Brooks concert. (laughs) (laughs) They amuse themselves with various routines from ballet to breakdancing and on their travels meet Gemma Craven and American singer Sam Harris. Chaps, you know I've wasted so much of my valuable time trying to source a video of this, but sadly to no avail but would you care to guess where it was set Nottingham (laughs) well I automatically assume Liverpool because everything on the telly about unemployment was set there in the 80s but yes Simon I was fucking appalled to discover that the gig was filmed at Central's Lenton Lane Studios in Nottingham the home of Bullseye and the Price is Right fucking hell man The cradle of pop delivers once again. (laughs) Who thought that the unemployed youths of the 80s craved Elkie Brooks? Yeah, this is the reality of it. Everyone thinks they must have been sort of, you know, Mm. going to see the the Style Council or something, you know, a band who would show solidarity with their plight. But no, it was Elkie Brooks. No, they want Pearl's a singer. Yeah, and and, and all her looks. (laughs) So your hosts this evening are... Gary Davis, who's still holding down the early afternoon slot between Simon Bates and Steve Wright, and is still recovering from Radio 1's 18th birthday party three days ago. (laughs) Chaps, would you care to guess where such a prestigious event was held? What, the 18th birthday party? Uh, I don't know. Kettering. <laughs> it was actually a garage in Cumbria. Oh, what the fuck? Okay. Article in the Daily Mirror two days ago, girls radio wonderful party in a garage. <laughs> Teenage Rachel Miller threw an 18th birthday party yesterday and Radio 1 turned up. Rachel was born on September the 30th, 1967, the day Radio 1 was launched. So when she invited the station to a coming-of-age party, the BBC sent disc jockey Gary Davis to broadcast his midday show live from her garage. (laughs) Late-night DJ John Peel also joined the party. (laughs) Rachel from Colbrecht, Cumbria said, When I sent the invitation, I never thought they would accept it. It was really wonderful. I don't know how I'm going to cap it on my 21st birthday. 50 guests dance in Rachel's garage as DJ Gary broadcast the show. He said, It was a knockout, just like a real party. 
John Peel was even more delighted, for Colbeck was the home of the legendary huntsman John Peel. I was shocked to see the local pub named after me, he said. <laughs> Fucking hell, BBC, chucking the money about, just on a whim. Yeah, and if I was born five days later, that could have been me. Gary Davis, I mean, he looks absolutely basic. He looks like he's sort of fallen asleep in the in the tanning land. <laughs> this is his first top of the pop since his extended holiday, and by the look of that tan, it, it seems like he's spent a fortnight on the planet Mercury. <laughs> absolutely. He looks like he's been carved from a block of Oxo. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's over yeah. I think the term of the time was. Yeah, over rigidly. I mean, I'll tell you what it reminds me of. You know, back in, I used to get this quite a few times in the 70s and 80s, you'd occasionally get these white tabloid journalists or even TV reporters going undercover <laughs> to find out what it, was, what it was really like to be a black person in Britain today. And they'd adopt this ludicrously unconvincing blackface. You could even see a bit of the white sometimes, you know, between the shirt and their oh neck. Oh, my God. And, you know, of course, they'd wander around getting very funny looks. And, yeah, it kind of looks like that, really. Yeah. <laughs> Black like Gary. Or they'd be putting a tea towel on their heads and trying to sort of um, trick Bruce Grobelar into accepting a bribe or something. (laughs) It's like when Beadle was an oil sheet. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Mm. This is his 26th go at presenting Top of the Pops and he's become a permanent fixture in a talent pool which currently features Peter Powell, Mike Smith, Steve Wright, Dixie Peach, Mike Reed and Simon Bates. And there's a new addition to the pool this week. Born in London in 1959... Paul Jordan spent his university years dividing his time between reading law and working in hospital radio. And just before his final year of passing the bar at Grains Inn, he decided to jack it in and make a go of becoming a DJ. After sending a demo tape off to various stations, he was contacted by Radio City, the independent station for Liverpool and surrounding area, who were looking for a new DJ after Janice Long had departed. And by 1982, he was holding down the graveyard shift on City for three months, eventually moving to the late night slot and finally bedding down in the 6pm to 9pm slot by 1984. Advert in the Liverpool Echo, February 1984. Wind down to the best sounds around. <laughs> Paul Jordan, six to nine. Essential listening for people who are really into today's music scene. Starting with the charts, Paul goes on to explore fringe music, especially from local bands, pop news, top ten videos and all the latest film reviews, plus scoop into Interviews with pop stars. Miss it if you dare. Fucking hell, interviewing local Liverpool bands in 1984, he must have sniffed around Frankie's crotch a few times. <laughs> By 1985, he started to make a play for the top of the mountain and started sending demo tapes to Radio 1. And at the third attempt, he was signed up, beginning his career at the station on July the 1st of this year, filling in for Gary Davis while he was doing the Radio 1 roadshow. The following week, he filled in for Adrian John at the 6am to 8am slot and spent the rest of the summer bouncing around the weekday schedule as a de facto holiday cover, including two weeks in Janice Long's chair, before bedding down last Sunday in the 2.30 slot, taking over from Steve Wright, and will be beginning a regular 3pm stint on Fridays tomorrow. So, chaps, it appears to be only a matter of time before he becomes a big part of radio. 
Radio 1. And this is his debut appearance on Top of the Pops. Yeah, but it's so weird, isn't it? I... I've, mm. I've never heard of the geezer. No. He doesn't even have a wiki page. That's ridiculous. I mean, talk about Radiohead's how to disappear completely. I mean, talk about mm. being unperson, you know, airbrushed out of history. I mean, just wonder you know, mm. who knows did he put out a joint? You know, what did he eventually do that was, you know, so sordid, so unforgivable that even 1980s Top of the Pops presenters couldn't abide to have him in their ranks? I thought that when I was doing research on previous chart music, his name turned up, I just yeah. thought, ooh, what did he do? Yeah. So I can just imagine, actually, if you go, you know, if it went down to actually investigate all this, you know, if I'd actually gone down to BBC Television Centre and asked about, you know, Paul Jordan and been gaslit by the senior receptionist. Mm. Paul Jordan? There is no Paul Jordan, and there has never been a Paul Jordan. <laughs> but, you know, why don't you look in your database? You just have to get... There is no point in my looking on the database because there is no Paul Jordan, and there never has been a Paul Jordan at the British Broadcasting Corporation. <laughs> Do I make myself clear? But I would advise you to leave the building, Mr Stubbs, with immediate effect. No, it's just... Mm. It's just extraordinary, yeah. really. I mean, uh, it's, you know, the, the, the mystery. Mm. It's a mystery, as somebody said. Yeah, I mean, I'd absolutely never heard of him either. And, you know, this was an era where I had very little else to do um, other than sort of, you know, watch Top of the Pops and listen to Radio 1. So it, mm. it's bizarre how he's faded from not just my consciousness, but it seems everybody's, you know. Yeah. Um, I, I know he only did Top of the Pops six times, but six is enough to leave some kind of impression, mm. you know. Both the presenters here, there's, a, there's an interesting dynamic. They both look well sort of Miami Vice with their oh, yes. oh yeah and uh, Paul Jordan's winning the battle of the sleeve push mm-hmm. most definitely but he does have this energy of a sort of competition winner of somebody who's just kind of looked their way yeah. into being yeah. there because the thing with Gary yeah. Davis at this point he's a safe pair of hands by now he's oh yes he's slick and confident crucially and professional mm. the thing with Paul Jordan is when you see people in any walk of life who are nervous it makes you nervous. Yes. And I got that instantly from him. He's trying too hard. He's got... And it's it's interesting that you, you say he sort of was a guy who, who would stand in when Janice Long or whoever went on their holidays. Because he does mm. have this kind of supply teacher energy about yes, him. Yes, definitely. Like, yeah. It's a sort of trendy, the trendy supply teacher. So like <laughs> every time he goes, woo, or way, whatever, it sounds really forced, you know. Mm. And he does this thing, you know, apart from the sleeve push, which I guess everyone did because it was fashionable at the time. He puts his hands in his pockets. It's, it's as if he sort of, you know, thought, what are the signifiers of being the cool kid that I can do? Yeah. It's like, I always used to crack up at um, everyone saying Eric Cantona was so cool, right? Mm. Because to me, <laughs> what he'd done Cantona was he popped the collar of his football shirt like he thought he was the Fonz, hmm. you know? Yes. And, <laughs> and everyone thought, oh, he's so cool. But I just thought that's such a kind of French person's idea of what being cool means. is like turning up your mm. collar. And yeah, Paul Jordan's a bit like that. Yeah, he's sort of like, you know, he's, he's, his sleeves are, are rolled up. He's got his hands in his pocket he's sort of slouching in a kind of slightly kind of insolent cool way and and all the way through it's it's just trying really hard to be yeah. down with the kids and he's only 26 but something about that trying too hard mm. makes him seem older than he actually is like an old person yeah. trying to be cool you know what I mean and 26 in yeah. 1985 was probably about 32 in a sense really yeah oh mm. if, uh, at least yeah yeah, yeah yeah but yeah Jordan as, as a DJ he's definitely in that young guy who's really into his music vein that's currently in vogue at Radio 1 and you know him and Dixie Peach the other new recruit of the era have, they've already nudged out Richard Skinner from the lineup, and it's Mike Reed's turn to fuck off next but as far as Jordan goes he, even though he's been on the same career path he's clearly no Janice Long 
Well, it's interesting you say, like, young guy who's really into his music. I mean, did you get that from him? Because I think we've both listened to the same audio uh, interview that, that mm. is out there with oh, him. Oh, that's the look. That's the image that uh, um, Radio 1 want to portray of people like him and Davis. But, yeah, you're right, Simon. There's an interview of him floating about. And he seems like a perfectly nice bloke, you know. But he's a careerist DJ, isn't he? Well, this is it. To me, he shares that fatal flaw that so many of the Radio 1 lot uh, had, which is that he loves radio more than he loves music and he loves the idea of being mm. a presenter more than he loves music yes. I'm sure mm. he was into his music as well but for him it, you know it does seem to, to be all about the airwaves and all that kind of stuff yeah. rather than the, the sounds that he's playing I think mm. it's almost a prerequisite that you're not really into the music that much you know otherwise that shunts you towards the kind of the evening slot or even yeah. the graveyard slot mm. you know? in some ways I don't mind him not being this kind of strutting alpha male you know because mm. we've had plenty of those on top of the pops yeah. and they are monstrous you know, and I'm sure I would rather spend a couple of hours in the pub with Paul Jordan than with Dave Lee Travis. Do you Ooh. know what I mean? Would you sooner see Paul Jordan play Macbeth, though? <laughs> <laughs> but sadly, um, the way that these kind of alpha male bullies like Travis hold down their job is by their completely unearned confidence that they have. Yeah. And someone like Jordan, who just doesn't seem to have it, was probably never going to hold down that, that position in quite the same way. Hey, how you doing? Welcome to Top of the Box and welcome to Top of the Box for the very first time to Paul John. Thanks very much indeed, Gary. Have we got a great show for you tonight? We've got a wonderful show. We have Cameo, we have Iron Maiden, we also have Renee and Angela and a brand new number one. But first to get us underway, a superb song at number 10 in the charts. Here is Colonel Abrams and Trap. <laughs> The syndromes pound, the TV screen flies through the ionosphere and the pink vinyl explodes to reveal Davis in an appalling light grey suit with sleeves rolled and American football-like shoulder pads welcomes us to our Thursday evening pop treat and then introduces his YTS lad Jordan who's wearing a huge flimsy black and grey jacket over a white t-shirt with the sleeves rolled up even more. Jordan runs down some of the bill of fare on tonight in a manner more suited to blokes in flat caps and gilets selling sets of crockware in the market and then pumps his fist and goes, way as Davis announces Trapped by Colonel Abrams. Born in Detroit in 1949, Colonel Abrams, yes, that's his real name, was relocated to New York in his teens, where he learned guitar and piano and won an amateur night at the Harlem Apollo. After a spell in the funk band Heavy Impact in the mid-70s, he started his own group, Conservative Manor, in 1976, before relocating to Minneapolis and becoming the lead singer of the funk band 94 Street until they split up in 1979 due to their guitarist getting a solo deal. He moved back to New York, got involved in the post-disco scene and linked up with the WBLS DJ Timothy. Registered. And in 1984, they recorded an eight track demo which included the song Release the Tension, which absolutely blew up across the clubs of the five boroughs and beyond, even though it wasn't available in any shops and a cover was released by someone else. 
Unperturbed, he landed a deal with Streetwise Records and recorded another set of demos, including Music is the Answer. But it was this track which got his contract bought out by MCA, who, after throwing loads of different producers at him, including Sarone, finally linked him up with Richard Burgess. Yes, mm. Mr. Einstein, a go-go himself. Yeah. After ripping through the clubs of America and getting to number one in the Billboard Dance Club Songs chart, it was put out over here, entering the charts at number 95 in early August and took five weeks to get to number 34. The following week, after it jumped six places to number 28, some city farm wankers did the Thatcherite stride to it at the end of that week's Top of the Pops, which helped it jump another six places to number 16. This week, after yet another six-place jump, it's at number 10, and here he is, fresh off the plane, making his official Top of the Pops debut. And it's got to be said, looking like he's got a telegram to deliver to someone (laughs) as he's sporting that non-more 1985 garment, the bolero jacket, Mm. beloved of Christopher Dean and Les Dennis, that's festooned with gold braid around the shoulders and sleeves and adorned with golden buttons. It's quite the look, isn't it? Yeah. I I think, uh, you know, it's meant to be a sort of visual pun on his military name. Mm. Yes, indeed, yeah. There's lots of scrambled egg. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, he's got the epaulettes, the brocade, brass buttons. I thought it was a play on the colonel thing. Mm. But to me, he looks more like a bellboy in an upscale Hollywood hotel. (laughs) I actually think he looks kind of amazing. He's got these pleated trousers and this Cab Calloway moustache. And and he's never not doing something. If he's not singing, he's sort of windmilling his wrists around in a sort of, come and get it, you cunts, kind of away you know or he's or he's he's sort of bunny hopping up and down the spot during an instrumental break or or whatever Mm. everything's very literal i think you know the jacket and how you know he's on a small podium he literally is trapped he's he's surrounded by the city farm wankers you know and you know Mm. just general audience members who are going mental by the way they're loving this oh yes in fucking love it in in their very british hand clappy very much not soul train sort of way you know what i mean Mm. and yeah there's lots of weird camera angles shot from his waist height up chin or up nose as it were like (laughs) like a sort of blowjob pov but from the pov of the giver not the receiver because <laughs> you know yeah this is his big moment uh mm. but I, I remember when he was just lieutenant abrams you know and uh, and yes. uh, i watched him push up the ranks captain abrams major abrams and, and here he is colonel at last we thought he could push on and become a brigadier maybe even a major general but it wasn't mm. to be and listen right if you think that's a shit joke just be grateful <laughs> that i abandoned a whole riff based on colonel with a c being a homonym of colonel with a k meaning seed um, there was kind of yeah. there was nothing there, but it is confusing though, right? Because there wasn't just one other Colonel Abrams; there were two, right? During the first right. Gulf War in uh, 1991, the U.S. Oh. Army had two Colonel Abrams: um, yes. Colonel John N. Abrams and Colonel Robert B. Abrams, both of whom went on to greater things. But in the first Gulf War, it's well documented what happened to American soldiers who were made prisoners of war under the supervision of uh, Odai Hussein, Saddam's son. Uh, They were subjected Mm. to starvation, mock executions, mock castrations and chemical injections, as well as brutal beatings. How can you mock a castration? I know, know. and they they were made to appear on TV, famously, you know, battered and bruised, denouncing uh, American war policy while blinking Mm. out the word torture in Morse code. However, the Allies themselves 
took 69,000 Iraqi prisoners of war. And it's less well documented what happened to them. Fancy that. Yeah, although Human Rights Watch expressed concern that the US Army was reneging on its obligations uh, under the Geneva Convention in terms of their treatment. And let's not kid ourselves, we know what happens when the Americans take prisoners of war, especially in Iraq. But I like to think mm. that at least some of them somewhere around Al-Basaya, perhaps, in the Al-Mathana province, just over the border from Kuwait, were under the watchful eye of either Colonel John N. Abrams or Colonel Robert B. Abrams, and they were able to heckle their captors. Hey, Colonel Mm. Abrams, I'm trapped. I'm like a man in a cage. (laughs) I would love to think that happened. There's a lot of confusion around this song, as we'll Mm. dip into later on, and the singer, particularly his name. So let's go back to that interview with Simon Witter in this week's NME, uh, where he says, Before I made it in music, I used to work in a personnel office, and people would come in and say, I spoke to you on the phone, but when I heard Colonel Abrams, I thought you'd be an old man in glasses. (laughs) They expected me to look like the guy from Kentucky Fried Chicken. In fact, I was asked to attend the opening of a KFC joint in New Jersey, but I didn't want to. And one photographer wanted me to pose with a rifle. Mm. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. There we go. What he should have done, he should have mashed up Colonel Sanders and Father Abraham of the Smurfs <laughs> and turned up looking like that. Mm. Yeah. Which is just basically Father Abraham with but with some glasses and, a, yeah. and one of them stringy tie things. A far-right chicken pimp, yeah. Mm. Yes. <laughs> the same thing struck me, you know, as it did Simon, you know, great vines and all that. The same thing with Colonel Abrams as it did Colonel Gaddafi. If you're going to make yourself out for the big man, the top man, you know, why don't you just go for the top rank? I mean, if you're Colonel Gaddafi, yeah. you're outranked by your generals. It's going to be a bit of a shit dictator. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's like, so Colonel Abrahams is outranked by the Funkadelic Associate General Kane, you know. So if General Kane got some top of the <laughs> Yeah, or General Johnson. Yeah, you're going to have to salute him, you know. It's, it's a bit weird. Just, you know, just like you say, just call him Field Marshal Abrams. Major Lance. Yeah. Yes. But then again, but that... That logic, like King, as in love and pride, outranks Prince, you know, so it's... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was quite work, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as, as regards to the song, I mean, I was I was eating this sort of transatlantic electric funk for breakfast. Oh, I think this is a fucking tune, Reference, mate. Yeah, I... Yeah. Yeah. 1985 is mint. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm afraid I'm... Yeah, I'm slightly less enthusiastic about it myself, personally. No. Sorry. Well, you know, I get that way, and then you can sing its praises and... Uh, oh, I, I guess I think it's not good enough for you. Yeah, well, you know... <laughs> I can tell no. by the way you act and your attitude. <laughs> no, but when I wasn't dipping into a bit of Stockhouse or Sunrise, it was it was this sort of little fair. But um, you know, so I was all set when I was first listening to this, and I'd have sat there and waited patiently for something to happen. You know, a sort of explosion, a little release, a sort of an ejaculation. But for me, it's just a bit stiff. You know, it just sort of robo twitches inside this sort of self-imposed straitjacket. I mean, obviously, you know, it's called trapped. I guess you know that's the idea. And I mean, and I know mm. Prince is doing this sort of minimalistic thing at this time, but. Things happen with Prince, and for me, it just doesn't hear. It's like a sort of moonwalk minus the walk and the moon, you know. <laughs> I'm kind of stunned here. I thought David was going to love this record. I really did. Yes, me too. Yeah, no, I did as well. When I first started, I thought, oh, yeah, this is, this is for me. And it just something just doesn't quite click on it for me, you know. What it is for me, right, I, I think people talk a load of revisionist, self-aggrandising bullshit about house music, OK? Nowadays, mm. you get British people who pretend they were completely across what Larry Levan was doing at Paradise Garage, what Frankie Knuckles was doing mm. in the warehouse, what the Belleville Three were doing. 
everybody is basically the person James Murphy from LCD Sound System is addressing in Losing My Edge. Everybody claiming they owned Don't Make Me Wait by the Peach Boys in 1982 on an import, right? Everyone claiming they had mm-hmm. their fingers... Did you, David? Yes, I did. Ah, oh, yeah. for fuck's sake. Well, I suppose... Yeah, all right. A fiver I spent on that. Well, that was a fiver, a proper fiver back uh, in 1982. Well, yeah. everyone likes to, to be you know make out nowadays that they had their fingers on the pulse of New York and Chicago and Detroit. Bollocks! All right, David did, but most people didn't, right? If, if they're mm-hmm. honest, the first house music most people heard in the UK was Love Can't Turn Around by Farley Jackmaster Funk featuring Daryl Pandy, yeah. which was number 10 in September 86. And the thing that mm. softened us up to make us receptive to that wasn't Derek May or whoever. It was this kind of thing. It was Love, yes. Love Can't Turn Around was a hit because of things like this coming first. True. It's, it's proto-house, really. Yeah, true. And I think, yeah. Have you heard Release Attention, Simon? No. Oh, it's housey as fuck. This is um, Colonel Abrams, another track, right? Yeah. Recorded in 1984, and you just listen to it and go, oh, fucking hell. Right. Here's the foundations of the house, if you will. And stuff like this, stuff like Trapped, is what I was dancing to at the aforementioned Feathers Disco at Barry Island, and mm. the other one, Tramps, at the land end of the causeway. And I, I mentioned that I had this little gang of mates in the sixth form at Barry Boys, and we all went to house parties together. That's house with a small H. But, um, <laughs> but, but we also went to Feathers and Tramps together, and there was me, there was my mate Neil, who's a listener to the pod, Hello, Neil. Hello, Neil. There was Richie and there was Symes. Um, the problem was I was also called Symes, so uh, we oh. needed some form of disambiguation. Um, and Simon Bates. Yeah, yeah. Did you really let yourself be called Symes? Yeah, yeah. Simon. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was partly inspired by Simon Bates, I suppose. It's a bit of a piss take of that. But, <laughs> okay, so, fair enough. Right. You know, I, I called him Symes. He tried to call me Symesy or Symesy baby, right? Um, mm. But it never stuck, um, perhaps thankfully. There was a half-hearted effort on my part to call him Big Symes and me little Symes but that was never going to fly because I'm not li- I'm six foot you know yeah. he's six foot six so it should have been Ooh. big Symes and one inch above average height Symes over here but anyway mm. the thing is <laughs> there's this gang of us we all had very different taste in music in terms of what we were listening to at home there was a, a ghetto blaster in the sixth form common room and you know everybody's sort of trying to fight over what tapes got played on it and I was into the Smiths and the Cure and um, Neil was into Scritty Politty and Howard Jones Richie was into U2, I think, and Symes was into Springsteen. The one common denominator was that we all loved Prince, but when, mm. when we all went out to Tramps or Feathers, all that went out the window, all your kind of tribal things, all the stuff you cared about and, you know, that, that, that was your musical DNA. It kind of just, just flew out the window, and we were just happy dancing to stuff like, like Trapped. So there mm. was this, mm. and there was We Don't Have To by Jermaine Stewart. Um, there was Let The Music Play by Shannon. There well, was, that, uh, that is a tune. Ain't Nothing Going On But The Rent by Gwen Guthrie. Also tune. And sometimes I, I'd pester Sammy Black, who was the local DJ, to play something by the cult, selfishly. But that that would clear the dance floor, you know? That would clear the dance floor. Yeah. This, this is the stuff everyone fucking loved. And when, oh, yeah. when Morrissey comes along and goes, burn down the disco, hang the blessed DJ, because the music mm. they constantly play, it says nothing to me about my life. Even as a Smiths fan, I thought, fuck off the music they constantly play doesn't have to say something to me about my life it cheers me up right it's possible to be a miserable teenage indie fan six days a week but put your shiny dancing shoes on and go out on a friday and have some fun so Mm. uh, i absolutely love this record and so did all of my friends Mm. you've touched upon something there simon because we we need to remember that in 1985 this sort of thing would have been lads music 
You know what I mean? All the rough ass use I knew at school wouldn't be listening to indie guitar rubbish or whatever the equivalent of Oasis was in 1985. They'd be getting the chinos on, piling into Chivago's or Barry Noble's Astoria and shaking their asses to this. I mean, it wouldn't be until, I don't know, the Happy Mondays came along that the lads started drifting towards that end of the spectrum. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's interesting because this sort of music was also considered music for girls or perhaps that was a, li- a yeah. little bit later on when handbag house came like that that pejorative term handbag house that all the girls be dancing Mm. on their handbags but i guess above all it was music for normals it was music for you know just your your ordinary townies Townies, yeah um and the thing is it was superior music for normals Mm. this was an era when when the stuff that your normals went to feathers and tramps were dancing to was fucking brilliant and this Mm. record it just fucking kicks ass the producer you mentioned it was uh, you know richard burgess einstein or gogo you wouldn't necessarily expect him to come out with something with this much funk to it although he mm. did produce um spandau ballet uh chart number one paint me down so right he, he got the funk as well it might not be the most obvious person to produce a, a track like this yeah but yeah I, th- I, th- I think it's an amazing record um very strange lyrics though eh? god yeah He's, he says that he doesn't want her folks to turn him over to the hands of the law what's he mm, done yeah. what have you done colonel abrams what have you done mm. he's 36 yeah. here so why is he bothered about what her mum and dad think? Yeah, yeah. Fuck him. Mm. I mean, if he wants legal representation, fortunately, Paul Jordan is right there. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there's definitely some kind of backstory to this song. What it's like, it's like it's part of a bigger piece. Like, you imagine it's part of some kind of opera or some yes. kind of concept album. Like, you know, Keith West's excerpt from a teenage opera or something like that. Mm. That, you know, if, if you hear the whole thing, you know why he's running from the hands of the law. And there's all that thing, you know, if you think I can afford to support you, if you want to ever think about ever settling down. Yeah, he's the it's, one who wants to get trapped. Because you think yeah. the song's trapped, it's like, oh, I've got my girlfriend pregnant, I'm fucked. Yeah. I've got to get married. But no, he's the one who wants to settle down. Yeah. Mm. You alluded in your intro to the guitarist in his former band who went on to greater things. Mm, yes. This is a bit of a myth. Um, someone in the press department of MCA has played a fucking blinder here because um, mm. we're talking about Prince, obviously. Uh, perhaps not obviously, but Colonel Abrams' connection to Prince is minimal, um, apart from also having a first name that is a rank or title, but is actually his real name. What happened was there was a funk band in the mid-70s in Minneapolis called 94 East. Yeah. And uh, they were led by a guy called Pepe Willie, um, who was married to Prince's cousin and was a sort of mentor figure to, to Prince and to, and to Andre Simone and, and all the other Minneapolis funk musicians. And 94 East's lineup at various times included Prince, uh, Andre Simone, Matt Fink, Dr. Fink, and Bobby Z, all later members of the Revolution, of course. No. The only recording that 94 East made with Colonel Abrams was uh, a couple of tracks for a single called Fortune Teller in 1977, which was written by one of the Motown backing band, the Funk Brothers, Hank Cosby. And by the time that was recorded, Prince had already left and was working on his first album, For You. But according to Matt Thorne's uh, Prince biography, what happened was that uh, Prince just ran into Pepe Willie and said, oh, you know, yeah, I'll I'll play a bit of guitar on on this track for you. Also, according to um, Pepe Willie himself in in the other Prince book uh, by Dave Hill, A Pop Life, Mm. the two never actually met. Right. So 
Prince played his guitar in the studio separately to Colonel Abrams recording his vocals. And by the way, I've got about a dozen books on Prince and I looked through all of them to research this. Only two of them even mentioned Colonel Abrams in the index. Right. Um, the mm. single never actually got released because the deal they had with Polydor fell through. So for that very tenuous Prince connection to get mentioned, uh, as it does in this episode of Top the Pops, in fact, just <laughs> just makes you think that, yeah, someone at MCA uh, is working overtime and, and deserves a pay rise. Mm. Funny you should say that, Simon, because in next week's Daily Mirror White Top Club, there's the this headline, Colonel's Rocket. Oh. Hit singer Colonel Abrams has launched a blistering attack on his old pal Prince. He has a dreadful voice and no sense of style, says the good Colonel, whose song Trapped is at number four. He once played in the same band as Prince and claims, man, he couldn't sing. I had to do it all. Oh. Fucking hell, that's some severe over egg. Yeah, yeah, I mean, come on, this shows that I was right, isn't it? Come on, he's bogus. <laughs> Him saying that he was in the same band as Prince is a bit like uh, anybody in the current uh, Blackpool FC squad saying they were in the same football team as Stanley Matthews. Yeah, you know, and Matthews, then saying yeah. he was shit. <laughs> And I had to do everything. Mm, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I had to do all the dribbling for yes. him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Top of the Pops is relatively new neon set, working to full effect here, you have to say. Yeah, it's yeah. essentially recreating what Colonel Abrams must be doing all over the country right now. It's it's a PA mm. at a sparsely attended but comfortable nightclub. You know, he's standing on a black circular platform surrounded by the kids on the floor and members of City Farm on slightly shorter plinths. And, and the only disappointment I had from this performance is that there's some nubby white stripes around the colonel's plinth that makes it look like he's on a trampoline and when he starts doing that weird little skipping dance you think oh fucking hell he's going to start doing some proper somersaults any minute now but <laughs> alas no mm. well there you are you see there aren't the somersaults I mean you're not easily pleased David you expect somersaults from your <laughs> proto house singers yeah metaphorical somersaults Jeez, you know he's, he's giving it loads he's even grabbing his wrist David yeah. what more do you yeah. want yeah. to indicate how trapped he is <laughs> yeah true the thing is um yeah it is quite housey sounding from this distance because mm. it's got that sort of synth the top line of the synth da, 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 that's quite housey mm. it's quite busy though rhythmically it's quite busy and that's what makes it not house mm. i think yeah. i think it's, it's only yeah. when things get stripped down and boiled to the very basics you know mm. or base that you you actually get to what house music is. But all the elements are here, really. Yeah, Richard Burgess has added a bit of high energyness, hasn't he, with the stubby yeah. synths. Yeah, it's quite stubby. Yeah. It doesn't have the house cadence, but it. Um, but I sense. I think what Simon says no. has a point actually about the sort of the straightness of it, the linearness of it. You know, perhaps preparing people for house. Yeah, that enemy interview we alluded to earlier. They're clearly painting him as the next in the line of soul mm. men. When yeah, you're right. He is a house pioneer, and I'd go as far to say is that we, as a public, are being house trained in this uh, performance, <laughs> hey. don't you think? Yes. yes. The other thing that was in that enemy interview uh, that you read earlier was that people kept comparing him to Luther Vandross and mm. Teddy Pendergrass and people like that. Um, I actually listened to a radio interview with Colonel Abrams from 1987, right. um, where he acknowledged both those influences, but he said he was more influenced by female singers like Nancy Wilson, The Supremes and Dionne Warwick. But mm. he also said that he thought singers like him had a duty to be a male role model, um, which meant he comes out with quite a lot of unreconstructed stuff mm. like 
like you can look good without looking feminine and uh, you can be the head of the household all this kind of like mm. you know strong black mm. man kind of rhetoric mm. which is kind of interesting um, I, I found in another interview for a TV interview this time from 92 by which time he's claiming to have been one of the inventors of house music you know mm. inventor you know that's, that's nah, a that's, bit of a stretch yeah. you know, mm. even I'll say that um, and he now considered himself by 92 to be part of acid jazz interestingly mm. right and he was saying he's added a new aggression to his music which he thought was gonna you know finally make him uh, break through and be a star in the US uh, listener it didn't yeah mm. but it's interesting that in the UK we went fucking crazy for this stuff yes you know, we did this was number three you know number three in the proper charts half yes. a million copies sold but in America you know stuff like this just he couldn't get arrested well no. ironically you know <laughs> or even court martial yes yeah 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 <laughs> I've often wondered why it is that great black American pop struggles or has struggled historically to chart in the proper billboard charts and I, I, I don't know if it's just to do with how the charts were compiled over there because surely mm. you know the African-American population must have been buying stuff like this in yeah. fairly significant numbers is it just not getting registered uh, by by billboard or, or, or is it you know sort of segregated off and sort of lumped into their their R&B chart or their dance chart or, yeah. or whatever or is it that records like this were selling through shops which by their very nature were segregated whereas in this country yeah you know maybe in cities like london birmingham manchester there might have been kind of black music specialist shops but mostly people were just buying this stuff from your local hmv or your local woolworths once it's charted i don't know you got any Mm. theories on that yeah uh, we're skill and americans are twats (laughs) yeah i need to work on that a bit more but you know that's that's the basic crux of it isn't it yeah it's it's interesting though we we can sort of slap ourselves on the back uh, a bit sometimes when we look at the chart positions of these what to us seem like classic tracks and Mm. and and you see that they absolutely fucking bombed but it even goes back to the 70s things like i don't know um odyssey or or, well that's more the early 80s but limmy and family cooking that we talked about before yeah stuff that just did nothing in this state and i suppose radio stations have got something to do with it you know we didn't have black radio stations in the 70s and 80s no radio wasn't segregated so if something like this was getting played it was getting played to everyone it yeah. wasn't sort of being racially profiled and you know yeah. and sort of um ghettoized as it were in, in in radio terms and and marketing terms and everything else so the following week trapped made its fourth sixth place jump on the bounce getting to number four and the week after that it began a three-week stand at number three spending seven weeks in the top ten. His next dent upon the charts came at the end of the year when Streetwise Records released Music is the Answer over here, but it only got to number 84 in November. But the official follow-up, The Truth, only made it to number 53 the following month. He'd get back into the top 40 when I'm not going to let you made it to number 24 in March of 1986, but his last MCA release in the UK, the painfully apt How Soon We Forget, only got to number 74 for two weeks in August of 1987, and he never troubled the charts again. And sadly, he dropped off the radar until a GoFundMe crowdfund was started for him in 2015 as he was homeless and suffering from diabetes and he died a year later at the age of 67. He 
six foot three inches tall, comes from New York, used to be in the band with Prince, Superb, Colonel Abrams and Trev. Right now, here's the highest new entry in the chart this week, straight in at number 20 for Iron Maiden. On his own, in front of some poncy 80s ironmongre, tells us about the Colonel Abrams' Prince lie before pitching us straight into Running Free by Iron Maiden. Formed in Leighton in 1975, Ash Mountain were a group put together by the bassist Steve Harris, who told him that his band name was shit and they wanted to be called Iron Maiden instead. After they played their first gig at St Nick's Hall in Poplar in May of 1976, they took up a residency at the Carton Horses in Stratford and underwent myriad line-up changes, with band members being sacked for not having enough on-stage charisma, pretending to be in Kiss and coughing up fake blood during gigs, getting the arse about the band recruiting a keyboard player, being that keyboard player and it not suiting the band, and pretending to play guitar with their teeth, which led the band to split up at the end of the year. In early 1977, however, Harris and the guitarist Dave Murray decided to have another go, finally completing the lineup when their new drummer Doug Sampson recommended Paul Andrews, a hotel chef who changed his name to Paul Diano to play up his Italian heritage as lead singer. After recording a four-song demo, they passed it on to Neil Kay, who ran a disco in the back room of a pub in North London called the Bandwagon Heavy Metal Soundhouse, who was so taken by it that he listed one of the tracks from it, Prowler, at number one in his Soundhouse chart, which was published every week by Sounds. After the tape crossed the desk of Rod Smallwood, a student gig promoter who managed Steve Holly and Cockney Rebel for a while, he expressed an interest in managing them and set up two pub gigs, although the first one fell through when the band didn't fancy playing so early in the evening and they had to play the second one without Diano because he'd been arrested outside for showing off with his knife in front of a copper. (laughs) Undeterred, Smallwood encouraged them to set up their own label and put out their demo, with the run of 5,000 copies selling out immediately, which led to record company interest and eventual deal with EMI, who immediately put two of their tracks on the compilation LP Metal for Mothers and catapulted them to the forefront of the new wave of British heavy metal. At the same time, their debut single, This Tune, was put out and it entered the charts at number 46, leading to the band being immediately rushed into the top of the pop studio, sandwiched between Carrie by Cliff Richard and Coward of the County by Kenny Rogers, which helped it get up to number 34. By mid-1981, after the band had notched up three more top 40 hits and were midway through a world tour, Diano had become a proper custard gannet and the rest of the band decided to knob him off and replace him with the former frontman of Samson, Bruce Dickinson, which propelled Maiden to a run of six top 20 hit singles in a row and three top three LPs, including Number of the Beast, which spent two weeks atop the LP chart in April of 1982. 
This single, a cover of their debut and the follow-up to Aces High, which got to number 20 in November of 1984, is the lead-off cut from their next LP, Live After Death which comes out next week and was recorded in Long Beach, California and Hammersmith Odeon during the World Slavery Tour, which started in Warsaw in August of 1984 and ended in California in July of 85. The band preferred the Hammersmith version, but according to Bruce Dickinson, the lighting engineer had a cob on with a film crew and deliberately made the lights too dim to render any shooting usable, so they had a go with what we're seeing here, because video rules the music industry these days. It's thudded into the chart this week at number 20, this week's highest new entry, and here they are, getting some American lads worked up. Mm. So, chaps, the World Slavery Tour, 331 days, 189 gigs, 25 countries, four continents. Apparently there were going to be some dates in South Africa but they were cancelled by the South Africans who objected to the word slavery. (laughs) Loads of cash raked in. One very knackered band who have taken the rest of the year off. Hence them putting this out as a stopgap and a prelude to the live album. Mm. Apparently after um, Bruce Dickinson's first big European tour with Iron Maiden he suffered a real bout of depression because all of his dreams had been fulfilled. It was a, <gasps> I, I was reading Andrew O'Neill's book, The History of Heavy Metal, and he compares it to Alexander the Great weeping because there were no worlds left to conquer. Yeah, yeah. like Paul Jordan. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. My mate Andrew, the, the metaler that I've talked Ooh. about before, um, uh, that's Andrew who lived next door, not Andrew who was a member of the Mary Brennell Boys murder with me. Um, <laughs> he had that album, Metal for Mothers, but the thing is, we didn't know what that meant, so we no. thought it was Metal for Muthas. <laughs> and I said to him, who's Muthas then? And he said, mm. I don't know, just somebody called Muthas. Sounds um, like a Doctor Who villain. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm. Oh, God, Iron fucking Maiden. The, I've mm. got to say, we, we've had some metal bands on chart music before. I've really enjoyed you know, watching Twisted Sister and Motorhead and things mm. like that. This has put me in a really bad mood about heavy metal. Ooh. Yeah, it's just sort of made me revert to my sort of not that deeply buried view that heavy metal is just fucking stupid, you know. <laughs> it's just sort of thwarted masculinity. It's power fantasies for inadequate teenage boys, you know. Mm. It's it's all about male heroism. And people will sort of scream in disagreement about this, but for me, heavy metal is very right-wing. I mean, there's literally, you know, quite a lot of far-right stuff going on in the world of metal. But I just mean there's something inherently right-wing about this music that, that is based around fantasies of power. Mm. In, in this song, OK, Dickinson didn't write it. It's, it's a Paul Diano song, but, yeah. you know, it's... It's about you know this 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 sixteen year old who's sort of, you know is running free and it's so oh god this American bullshit man the American mm. bullshit in the lyrics just sixteen a pickup truck you know how fucking pickup trucks in Eastland mm, no. <laughs> you know apparently Paul Diano wrote this about when he was a skinhead right this is a skinhead song it's Hersham boys yeah with more hair <laughs> a skinhead who somehow got a pickup truck and is hitting the gas and ends mm. up in an L A jail for fuck's sake maybe a latent. Mm. Mm. jail <laughs> yeah mm. 
The thing with Maiden, to me, right, is that I don't know if you ever read those war comics as a child. Mm. You know, like, they were kind of A5-sized things like... Oh, Commando. Yeah, yeah, and it's, you know, it's all sort of square-jawed Germans who would go, aye, if you threw a grenade at Mm. them, that kind of thing. Donnerwetter. Eat lead, Fritz. Yeah, and and Maiden aren't coming from rock and roll. They're coming from that. That's where Maiden are coming from. Mm. So many of their songs are about war or enslavement and things like that. Well, the world's slavery tour every gig begins with uh, we shall fight them on the beach as the church's right. speech exactly and mm. you know they've got that beer that mm. they sell trooper beer i mean it's got this, mm. this picture of, of eddie um in sort of military uniform eddie their mascot waving a tattered union jack and all of that looking like he's in the liberty <laughs> but maiden's attitude to the horrors of war is really ambiguous i think it's this kind of mix of disgust and glee right mm. there is this sort of craving for gore and mayhem among prepubescent boys isn't there and uh, mm. and and grown men who've never quite stopped being prepubescent boys and Maiden kind of have it both ways. That's their modus operandi here. Because, like, run to the hills, right? Run to mm. the hills. You can make a defence of it, saying it's this kind of excoriating critique of the genocide inflicted on the indigenous peoples of America. But mm. the relish, the sheer relish with which Dickinson rasps the, the words raping the women and wasting the men, right? Mm. That that is mm. just made for the adolescent fans of Iron Maiden to to punch the air, you know, drooling like yeah, rape, death, you know. <laughs> so you, you have mm. this kind of having it both ways thing, and I, I I think in some ways I'm quite grateful to Iron Maiden because we live in a time now where metal and alternative music have kind of merged. Mm. Right? Yeah, and a lot of people think that metal is goth, goth is metal, and it's all part of this continuum. But for me, Maiden served this kind of useful reminder that metal was all about reinforcing patriarchy and, and hierarchy all that royalist imagery and all that flag waving and mm. you know shall we say traditional attitudes towards sexual equality that stuff was never alternative never cool and metal existed for for weaklings you know kids at my school who went to metal they were not the tough kids no they were sort of acne encrusted bespectacled runty kids really and they, they'd wear their leather jacket like a protective carapace you know yes. and, and metal mm. allows them to live out these vicarious power fantasies that kind of stinky doddington rock allows them to feel hard and to feel tough Mm. you know and i I think that's what metal's all about and and all of that that i just said is is an opinion that i have and i sometimes try and suppress that and i you know i've got really good friends who are into metal like you know john doran um from the quietus gives talks about this about how great metal is and i think i'm going to be interviewing him at one of these talks later in the year so this is going to be interesting Mm. (laughs) i respect their view but i can't things like maiden make it so hard for me to get on board with it you know Mm. um yeah i'll shut up for a bit and let david talk yeah let the rock expert have his say yeah, I mean, it, it's fucking rubbish, isn't it? I mean, you know, that's almost, it's absolute fucking garbage. I mean, you've got, you know, these adolescent West Coast dreams. You know, they're wearing trousers that make spinal taps look positively semiotic. Mm. Desperate rubbish. Absolute piss garbage. But, you know, I, I mean, I, I absolutely agree with everything that Simon says, you know, about the kind of, you know, the sense of trying to reimpose patriarchy, having a vicarious joy in war and rape and death, etc., etc. And it was felt like it was despised heavy metal. I, I suppose now the only way I look at it is that I see it as perhaps a sort of an equivalent to the, um, you know, World Wrestling Federation yeah. or something like that, yeah, you yeah. know, or whatever it is, WWE. Oh, careful, Al's going to come for you now. <laughs> it's part of me that kind of likes all of that. And I mean, I and I was always very much more, I became much more endeared towards heavy metal people. Oh, I never interviewed Iron Maiden. 
when actually interviewed them and it was like, bless you, you have something to say, you know, that you knew part of the job yeah, was entertainment. Yeah. And I suppose the most charitable thing I can think is that, like, all of these elements are there, but perhaps they're not necessarily insidious because everybody involved is aware that it's a fantasy, perhaps, at some level, and it's just a way of getting the rocks off, you know. Mm. I'm being around this time, you know, they're well established by this point, but I just think that they feel that heavy metal will be taken more seriously. There's a double standard. There was an interview with Steve Harris around this time. It was in an American magazine, you know, and he says, like, hey, look, somebody will go along and see a David Bowie show, and he brings on a big, scary monster on stage <laughs> or something, and they go, it was wonderful, it was very entertaining, and everybody had a party. And they go to an Iron Maiden concert, we bring a big, scary monster on, and suddenly we're worshipping the devil. <laughs> we worship it was scaring small children or whatever particular bogey you want to lay at the door of music. People love to lay at our door. I mean, first of all, laying bogey at Steve Harris's door is a bit of a slightly <laughs> thing. But, you know, I think that's idea that there's a sort of a double standard and that David Bowie is revered more than Iron Maiden is perhaps to do with things like, you know, Ziggy Stardust and the Berlin Trilogy. And I don't think Iron Maiden produced quite an equivalent of all of that. Yeah. Around this time, I mean, 84, 85, and he used to, like, have mates who were heavy metal fans and fucking hell. We used to, um, used to call myself sweaties, they were called. Right. And there was no sweaty quite like a Yorkshire sweaty, I tell you. <laughs> I mean, piss-hurling Cro-Magnon meatheads. Seriously, not even the missing link between man and ape, you know, but the missing link between ape and divot, you know. I mean, just <laughs> fucking awful, horrible people, actually. In fact, actually thinking about them makes me kind of, yeah, I'm beginning to kind of get my gander a bit like pricing now, actually, now. That I'm oh, man. thinking about these fucking drums. What's weird is, but it doesn't. It seems to be, as, as Simon said, it's there's now sort of metal goth alternative, kind of sort of all merged into one. And you have got people like Sun, you know, who are kind of avant metal and, and, and are brilliant. You know, it's become kind of respectable. But I think that the, the sort of the, the crapness of an Iron Maiden, I don't, I don't know that there's an equivalent for that these mm. days. Um, certainly not on a kind of mass scale. You know, it's, it's uh, metal seems to be one of those, in some respects, a kind of slightly in, in the Iron Maiden sense, a kind of extinct genre. In some ways i don't know i mean people like rob zombie can fill the o2 i mean don't underestimate it mm. it is still fucking massive as, as, a, as a live thing yeah and you know if, if you look at this concert it's clearly a, a massive gig that they're playing but maiden can play those kind of venues still now yes they really can oh yeah but I, I just wonder if it's like a kind of new generations and new you know kids coming through i mean you know you never hear metal blasters out of an open top car no not around that end anyway no i don't know man i think it's still huge I mean, even by 1985, metal was passe. Yeah. I don't know, because metal is split into, into two directions uh, by the mid-80s. Uh, on the one hand, you had glam metal, that whole LA thing of yeah. you know, Motley Crue and Guns N' Roses and stuff like that. But you also had Thrash. Thrash was coming along at this time. Mm. You had the big four um, of mm. Thrash, who were Metallica, Megadeth, Anthrax and Slayer. Yeah. But, um, but I, mean, yeah. So, I mean, the new wave of British heavy metal. Oh, in Britain. Yeah. Well, the oh, thing that is, was, the first... Yeah. Yeah, the first Nawabum lot had actually started cracking America, as mm. as we see with Maiden. So basically, the, the two that really made it are Leopard and Maiden, mm. aren't they? You know, and Judas Priest. Mm. Yeah, did they? Right, okay. If you've not seen it, have a look at Heavy Metal Parking Lot. All right, which I believe was filmed round about this time before a Judas Priest concert, and it's just loads of youths drinking pissy beer and yeah. throwing up the devil horns and everything, saying all oh, rock and roll woo, and then the bloke interviews them, and he's you know. He talks to one lad, says, "Oh, what you, what are you up to now?" He says, "Oh, well, I'm joining the army next weekend." Right? Yeah. Woo. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, rock the, and the roll. Thing, the thing is with Maiden is that there's no sex in their music. I mean, this this song is actually a really rare example where they talk about girls, you know, mm. and that's because it's a song from their very early days, written by Paul Jones, yes. where it's like pulled her at the 
bottle top, whiskey dancing, disco hop. Now all the boys are after me, and that's the way it's going to be. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's quite rare for Maiden to sing about something like that, about girls, because normally they, they are mm. all about war and death. And in that respect, yeah. they have more in common, because there was this you know dichotomy that I spoke of in this split in, in, in mid-'80s metal. Um, even though they're not thrash, um, Maiden have got more in common with Slayer than yes. with Guns N' Roses or something like that. Because, you mm. know, Slayer famously sang these really dodgy, questionable lyrics about uh, about the Nazi death camps where it's really not too clear that they disapprove. Let's put it that mm. way. And, you know, as I said, with, with Maiden, they seem to really revel in the, the, the blood and gore of war. Yeah. So mm. I, I think... Maybe it's the same kind of mentality, just very different musically to bands like Slayer. As we've discovered, chaps, with Thin Lizzy and Motorhead, metal bands are very keen to put out live singles or EPs. And, you know, it's a win-win, isn't it? The fans get a souvenir of being wedged up against other people in denim and leather while having their senses assailed. And, Mm. you know, the band gets a knockout an old song as a single. But I'm detecting an ulterior motive here because, to me, this is Bruce Dickinson painting out the image of Paul Diano <laughs> by covering the latter's own song and having a bigger hit with it. Yeah, like when Taylor Swift re-recorded all her albums mm. to obliterate mm. the earlier Taylor Swift. Yeah. <laughs> What's odd, though, once again, I interviewed um, Martin Fry recently, mm-hmm. and he was talking about the very early days of ABC, you know, perhaps like Vice Versus show ABC, and he was talking, I'm talking about, the, you know, the Sheffield scene. And I thought, you know, I might get him on to, like, you know, Clock DVA and Carrie Voltaire and people like that. And he says, oh, no, it was all right, you know. Um, yeah, the drummer from Saxon, he was great. He was a really good bloke. <laughs> you know, he really helped us out, you know, and he helped us out, gave us tips, you know, and all that kind of stuff, you know, gear and whatnot. And I was like, you fraternise with the foe, the enemy, the arch enemy, the idea. I've been absolutely horrified if I'd have known that Martin Fry was consorting with fucking Saxon. Shoot that poison arrow through David's heart. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Yeah, Saxon, another example of a band we've talked about that I really enjoyed sort of Mm. reacquainting with with them there's just something mm. about maiden that rubs him the wrong way and it's probably the whole brexit mm. thing that's that's part of it as much as anything else you know yeah fucking all right you know he's obviously not a complete idiot he can fly a plane which is more than i can do right but i just don't think dickinson's the brightest bulb in the box because he mm. voted for brexit and then he started complaining exactly yeah that uh, brexit made it difficult for bands to tour yeah. like what the fuck did you think was going to happen yeah, yeah. Yeah. Jesus Christ. As far as the video goes, it's your bog standard, you know, band on stage job. But they are singing live. They're not miming to anything. And as you'd expect in 1985, there is a lot of spandex on that stage. There is. And it kind of works in a metal band because, you know, it allows free and easy movement as Bruce Dickinson capers about and rests a foot on the monitors and the rest of the band um, just... I don't know, just stand about and lean forward when they're doing a solo. But it's not practical for the metal fan, is it? Wearing spandex, because where are you going to put your keys? (laughs) You need to have a very big belt buckle which dickinson does mm, in order to, or a cod piece yes in order to hide you know um what's going on there because uh, that the yeah. quite indecent um you mentioned the guitar solo um i don't know if you noticed and i, I think uh, it might have been david who described big country's bagpipe style as being the most pointless guitar innovation ever mm. but um maiden do this thing where the 
twin guitarists play exactly the same solo at exactly the same time. Yeah, <laughs> it's just a really ridiculous stunt. It's like it's like something out of ice skating more than rock and roll. Yeah, absolutely. I mean? yeah. 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 I also noticed there's someone in a really shit homemade Eddie costume in the crowd. Did you see that? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it looked like the head was made out of foam from a, an old sofa or something. <laughs> Amazingly, we don't see Eddie. In the yeah, video. Yeah. Oh, well. Because uh, by this time, he was a 30-foot sarcophagus because they were going for a very Egyptian theme for this. Uh, well, you know, maybe Michael Grade wouldn't have it. You know, didn't want to scare people. Yeah. By the way, yeah. chaps, do you know how spandex got its name? No. Because it expands? It Well, nearly, Simon. It's an anagram of expand. Oh, right, yeah, of course. And I was going to say that spandex would be superseded in the early 90s by lycra, but did a bit of research. Actually, it turns out that lycra is a brand name of a company that makes spandex, and, mm. and the term was adopted across the uh, industry to help the fabric move away from the image portrayed by bands such as Iron Maiden. That's what I thought, because I got right into the lycra game in the late 80s, let me tell you. Did you know? Yeah, yeah, when I arrived in London and started going on the goth scene, because the thing with PVC or leather trousers is, they're never tight enough, you know? Yeah. If, if you wanted shiny but sort of drainpipe-like legs, there was no point getting PVC or, or leather because they, they were just all sort of flaccid and baggy and saggy. So what you needed was lycra. So yeah. I, I would buy these, these, these lycra leggings and... Um, and, and people say to me, oh, nice spandex you got going on. What, 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 what are you talking about? Never, never heard of spandex. But yeah, it turns out it's exactly the same fucking thing. Yeah. Did it help reduce our sweat at clubs? I mean, I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> Is it better or worse than uh, PVC? I mean, it's better for the sweat point of view. You haven't got to put talcum powder down it or anything like that. Better at wicking. It tucks nicely into your sort of little pixie boots with, uh, with, with skulls for buckles. Put it that way. <laughs> and where um, did you yeah. put your keys? That would be revealing too much. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd always have like a, a leather jacket or something. That, that was the trouble with it. Yeah, you, you've got nowhere to put things. Yeah. Um, I, I tell you what, I, what I've come up with now as, as the solution to that problem is a sporran. Ooh. I've got this kind of fetish sporran. <laughs> right. it's, it's a black PVC sporran that, that I got from a kind of fetish wear retailers. And it's, it's perfect for that kind of thing. If you're wearing a garment which doesn't allow stashing of your keys, yeah, a sporran is your friend. So yeah. there's, there's, there's a fashion tip for the pop crazy youngsters. Anything else to say? Yeah. Nah. Seriously, fuck Iron Maiden, man. What? Who's that? that? Neil, what the fuck are you doing here? (laughs) Fuck's sake. Hiding under the desk. My metal dial was twitching, man. I I heard Maiden (laughs) chat and I cannot let it pass without sticking my tuppenna thing. There's something wrong with you, man. I'm calling the police. (laughs) (laughs) Every time the subject of Maiden has come up, Neil said he can't wait to get stuck into it. Who am I to deny a lad his opportunity? So come on, Neil. He's rising up like the Coventry Maiden troll. (laughs) (laughs) It needs saying, man. It needs saying. Um, No, for me, to be honest with you, I massively agree with Simon and David on this. I have to say that that Maiden, like, say, their American equivalent would be, I don't know, Wasp or something. They're that point. They're that marking point, as Simon was kind of saying, that I needed metal. They're a kind of mark-off point that says, you know, just stop. You've gone too far. You know, my, my daughter, as previously explained, is quite a retro metalhead, and she burns yeah. a lot of CDs for the car called uh, Poisonous Metal. We're actually up to volume 12 now. Um, and they've pushed things into my life, you know, that if you'd have told me back in the metal 80s... Metal for daughters. Spoke <laughs> <laughs> <from> D-A-U-T-A. <laughs> yeah. But they've pushed things into my life. You know, if you'd have told me back in the 80s that I'd be earnestly sort of singing along to these things in my car in my 50s, I'd have seen that as a colossal difference 
defeat mm. in my life, really. You know, oh, so quiet riot, accept scorpions, Michael Shanker group, <laughs> 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 all of them. You know, Tigers of Pantang, Witch Find. Um, you know, Walpurgis Night by Stormwitch. These, these little things that I, I now sort of dig. But she peppers these compilations. I mean, she put on one kiss track on one of them. And I just, oh. I'm not having that one. That one could just comes out the CD yeah. player as soon as it gets to that. But she does pepper these compilations with maiden tracks, which, which right. only ever sort of kicks off arguments. <laughs> All of which eventually end up with me, you know, just driving down the A45 with my thumb down like the audience for Spinal Tap's Jazz Odyssey. <laughs> and, 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 and me getting a dead arm, you know. But, I mean, as I patiently explain to her, maiden suck. And, and I use that Americanism carefully because I think mm. something Simon said, there's a real incipient Americanization of so many aspects of metal's revival and rehabilitation in recent years. Mm. It's entirely along kind of American lines of fandom that I would suggest, yeah, include wrestling, also include the kind of consumption of hot sauces, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. you, you can trace a lot of it back to Wayne's World and, and Bill and Ted, I think. Um, mm. But the, the reason I really don't like Maiden and I cannot get along with Maiden despite an awful lot of dreadful metal shit being sort of rehabilitated in my mind, well, it's several reasons. I mean, Simon's mentioned the kinds of the, the, the warfare aspect of Maiden. And, and, you know, metal obviously uses a lot of warfare imagery from sort of war pigs onwards, you know, mm. um, and through bands like, like Thin Lizzy, who obviously Maiden are taking musical and lyrical ideas from. But Maiden's obsession with military stuff, it never becomes critical Mm. in a kind of war pigs or emerald style. It's firmly a sort of really celebratory boy's own airfix view of history. Yeah. Um, mm. Because it's for those kind of boys who would have, you know, collected a 24-part series by Orbis on tanks of the Eastern <laughs> Front or something. You know? It's that Sven Hassel IE thing, as Simon said. And, and yeah. you know, that obviously feeds into Diano and, and Dickinson's Brexitness and right-wingery. And that's why Maiden Sleeves and, uh, and Eddie becomes this flag-shagging thing. This, this, the Union Jack is often on Maiden product, whether it's terrible awful yeah. wallets in shops called fantasy and reality or or, <laughs> or trooper beer you know they're like the mm. ukip of metal Ooh, yes. and, and, and beyond Ooh. beyond the politics beyond the politics just sonically uh, you know th there's often this thing you know maiden or priest and i love priest right and, yeah. and unlike priest who they're often contrasted and compared to maiden just don't groove they can only gallop that's mm, all they mm. can do. They have this sort of giddy-up kind of rhythm to their music, <laughs> mm. which, which really reflects that this is metal now entirely shorn of the sort of blues or, or black music influences that fed into bands like Zeppelin and Sabbath. Yeah. Oh, so that the Smiths of metal. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's something to that. There's definitely something to that. You could argue it was Priest that really birthed heavy metal by melding kind of prog with heavy rock and these sort of heavily arpeggiated twin guitars that are kind of a metal a signal, if you like. But Priest, how can I put it? They, they always just had plenty of arse to their sound. They always had a mm. groove. Maiden are all about the treble and, and the kind of detail. Mm, and they're right. much more engaged with kind of proving their chops in a really entirely sort of European, almost classical kind of way. It leaves me cold. And, mm. and it's perfect for metal boys. 
And, and you know, Maiden uh, exclude women in all kinds of ways, not only from their audience, but also from their music. But it's perfect for metal boys to feel because, you know, the, the metal boys want to feel that metal is the best music because, you know, to play an instrument that fast, etc. <laughs> but, yes. but if you're out of metal subculture and you're aware of pop in any way, Maiden feel really cold and undanceable. They're kind of headbangable, but not danceable. Uh, and, mm. and consequently, at the time, you know, in the 80s, among my few friends, Maiden with the band clung to by the most sort of squalid of my friends. How can I put it? <laughs> yeah. the, the friends who made swords and played D&D &D yeah. and, and, and that. Mm. And, and, you know, and even the, back then, those guys, I gave a wide berth to because they kind of stank and I didn't want to get nicks and stuff. <laughs> So it's that side of metal. And, and finally, I mean, really, awful, awful frontman for Maiden. And, you know, mm. the, the frontman is, is, kind of decides whether you like a band or not quite often. Yeah. You know, I mean, the first singer benefits cheap Paul Diano. He was a nasty piece of work. Um, <laughs> and his lyrics, I mean, if you dig into lyrics for Killers or Murders in the Rue Morgue, you know, they, they show a really appalling attitude to women and violence against women. And, mm. and beyond that, Diano's a total fantasist. I mean, there, there's a fantastic quote from Diano in Michael Hamm's oral history of Nawabaham, Denim and Leather, right. where he's recalling one of Maiden's early shows at the, the Music Machine. And he goes, um, you know, the direct quote, he goes, uh, we went up there and we had Kate Bush up on stage with us. I remember yeah. that. I was seeing her at the time. Oh, my God. Um, mm. He's like the Aldridge Pryor hopeless liar. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, yeah. I mean, to, Han, to Michael Hans' credit, he swiftly follows that quote up with a quote from Murray Charmer, Kate Bush's PR, which just flatly says, you know, <laughs> Kate, Kate doesn't know that guy and has never been on stage at the music machine. And then there's a, good quote, there's a good quote straight after as well from Malcolm Dome, which says, you know, it didn't happen, I was there, it didn't happen, but I think he genuinely believes the stuff he comes out with. He lives in a fantasy world to some extent. Oof. So, you know, there's Diano problems. Dickinson is just this awful Brexit sort of Top Gear adjacent mm. cunt, isn't he? And mm. the thing is, with the other and the Wobbaham bands, the front men were really key in those bands' appeal, I think. You know, whether it's Saxon's... Mm. Uh, Bill Bifford sort of being just dead funny or just the magnificent Rob Halford you know that these guys are mm. hilariously kind of unembarrassable and lovable because of it and it's kind of wonderful yeah. that these people who are essentially fans of glam rock really became stars whereas with Maiden from the moment they started there's just this feel of management and business really guiding them to the top that they're, mm. they're signed in the early days because when EMI comes see them play in the middle of a bill that also included uh, White Spirit and Angel Witch um, Maiden <laughs> for that show they knew that EMI were coming and they bought tons of pyro and they kind of secured that record deal there's something cold and calculating about Maiden you know the, the band themselves yeah. when they used to get on their leathers and their kind of clothes and spandex and stuff they used to call dressing up for the shows getting on the cunt kit and um, I think getting on the cunt kit. And I think that kind of, I mean, it's funny, but it kind of reveals something about them and their attitude to their audience. So for all those reasons, I kind of proudly state fuck Maiden and fuck Dickinson and fuck this kind of sexless, grooveless BO rock. Mm. Mm. In 1984, I mean, Simon's mentioned the big four, you know, the big four thrash bands swinging. That, that was where I was listening to in metal. And, and really the major impact Maiden had in my life in 85 was probably, I mean, this is three years short of, of Nico McBrain's drum battle with Sooty, don't forget. Um, <laughs> oh, yes. the, the, you know, their major impact is them soundtracking, you know, Daily Time 
Thompson having a swig of Lucas Aid. Oh, yes! In the advert. No! No, 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 no! <laughs> Indeed. Voiced by fellow Brexiteer, you know, Des Lynham. So, yeah, no, fuck Maiden. Man. Metal and athletics, man. They're, they're not two things you'd naturally put together. No, not at all. I mean, later on in the uh, noughties, of course, we do get a kind of sports metal. Ooh. Horrific. Yes. Um, but yeah, no, at this period, no. I mean, yeah, the metal fans were the, the, the guys at the back of the cross country, you know? They're, they're yes. walking um, <laughs> with some soap bar on the go or something. You know? yes. <laughs> i got something I want to ask, Neil. In fact, mm-hmm. um, it's kind of um, a question. Oh, by the way, the, the police are on their way. Don't you worry about that for your breaking. <laughs> um, yeah, what it is, it's, it's a question in two parts. Don't you fucking hate it when, when someone does that, by the way, mm. a Q&A. It's like, um, a question in two parts. The, the only thing worse than that is if, if they say, um, not so much a question, more of an observation. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But anyway, what, what is this? this? Um, I, I said that, you know, metal in general and Maiden in particular are all about these sort of male power fantasies mm, and mm. you said yourself you know it's it's all about it's boys it's stinky boys into this <laughs> your daughter loving this music is the kind of hole in my argument and I, I wondered mm. and here's the two parts first of all mm. how do you explain that and secondly when she started showing an interest in this kind of music did you feel like a bit of a failure as a parent? <laughs> <laughs> no, the thing is, the thing is, right, I, I, I know sort of, uh, uh, you can't fail as a parent. I mean, I, th- I think as a parent, you've just got to kind of let your kids get into what the fuck they want to get yeah, into, yeah, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Um, and not guide it in any way whatsoever. So it is thrilling yeah. when her... It, and then cut them out of your will. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's nice, you know, when their own reconnaissance sort of loops around with yours to a certain extent. But but you're mm. right, there, there is an odd thing, because... Not many, how can I put it? When she listens to, to stuff like Maiden, when she listens to songs like Murders in the Room or Killers, which are quite misogynistic in a way, I think the mm. place she puts it in her head is purely alongside horror um, a, a, as a mm. genre. Um, mm-hmm. both in literature and in film. So if she's watching Giallo movies, well, she is. She's watching horrifically violent shit, to be honest with you. <laughs> you know, my daughter, when I walk in the front room, the telly suddenly goes muted and, and stops. Fuck uh. only knows what she's watching. <laughs> she's watching a lot of really gruesome shit. But I think she sees it as... It doesn't speak to her as a kind of like, you know, I want to go out and do that to women or I want to go that out and be that violent. For her, it's kind of, in a sense, yeah, pure fantasy and just a, an evocation of violence. But yeah, it is problematic because like we, the major thing that I always say in the car when she's punching my arm saying Maiden are great is, but they're so fucking Brexit. <laughs> and, and that's important to her. She's like, no, no, they're not Brexit anymore. He's apologised. If she uh-huh. knows that, I don't know, a singer is right wing or a Trump supporter or doesn't agree with her politics, she rapidly falls out of love with that band. Um, she's had right. to rationalise in her head that Maiden, you know, aren't Brexit. Bruce has apologised, <laughs> etc. Um, you know, to, to, to be into it. So, yeah, yeah. It, I, I don't feel embarrassed that she's playing fucking Stormwitch or has convinced me of the, the value of the Scorpions. <laughs> she's inspired much more by women in metal, I think, than she is by, by all the blokes. As opposed to women in uniform! <laughs> <laughs> but did, but it, yeah. did Bruce sorry, did Bruce Dickinson apologise or did he just moan about the consequences of Brexit? I think that was it. He, yeah. he kind of, he said, yeah, yeah, he moaned about its impact on touring bands, didn't yeah. he? So, yeah. I'm sticking to my girl 
guns. I don't care. She can keep giving me a dead arm. <laughs> but but th- those political problems haven't shoved Maiden out of her listening because musically they appeal to her, I guess. But the, yeah, the groovelessness, is, is, it's a constant sticking point with me and Safe that Kiss fucking suck and Maiden suck. And, and yeah, I will never, ever retract those opinions because they're true. Maybe she, I think she'll grow out of them. Mm. And wasn't it totally unsurprising that about 20 years ago when metal t-shirts became fashionable and were in Topshop, it was Iron Maiden? Yeah, and it still is. You can still get Maiden t-shirts in places like Primark and stuff like that because it's an instant signifier or something. But people... I've got to say, I mean, Maiden, of course, are still selling out big stadiums and stuff like that. But in terms of the records I'd still keep from that period, um, they're the worst. And, and, and you know, mm. there's no place for women in their music. Maiden never sing love songs or sex songs. There's no place for sex in their music either because the boys no. that they're appealing to are not having sex. So <laughs> they don't want to hear about a front man who is having sex. They want to hear about a front man who is obsessed with their small, you know, wank sock world of <laughs> warfare and horror movies and all of that. Mm. I, I, I always remember the boys that I used to teach. Um, I used to teach them gaming. Uh, they used to want to be games designers. Right. They were horrible and hateful and, and kind of right wing. Um, in that way that alternative culture has got a bit right-wing in, in recent mm. years. But I, I always remember kind of stepping out of the room to go and have a fag and, and coming back to this room of these ten metal boys. And fuck me, it just stank. I know that's a prejudice, <laughs> and it's kind of a cliched prejudice. Mm. But, but, but it's that, true. But it's true. And, and it, you know, I mean, t- look, teenage boys are pretty gruesome mm. in, in it, whatever they're into. But, um, yeah, yeah the, the, that kind of horrible, squalid grubbiness of the, the fans of Maiden in particular. It's, it's an undeniable truism, I think. And, and mm. it percolates into their music. Priest, for instance, as another metal band of the period, they're writing really quite interesting songs. You can hear Halford, you know, having to cover up his gayness um, so that songs like Breaking the Law, etc., are kind of reflective of something really, really interesting. Mm. Whereas mm. Maiden are just unproblematically telling little boys that, yeah, um, their tiny penises matter. And you know, <laughs> women or bitches, etc. You yeah. know, so so it it's kind of unretrievable. Yeah. Although you know the the, the horned hand and, and all of the other Americanized kind of aspects of metal culture now seem to be dragging everything back into the fold. In terms of their influence on other metal bands, yes, you, you of course you're going to hear most metal people saying, "Yeah, um, Maiden were important." But in terms of their influence, I don't hear it much in modern metal. To yeah. be honest with you, a teenage dirtbag. Well, you weren't listening uh, to Judas Priest. No, no. Mm. But I mean, yeah, in that particular war, Priest win hands down, and and mm. yeah, made into this grooveless kind of. You, you know the way Alan Freeman used to pepper his kind of show, this Friday rock show, with flourishes of classical music. Um, yeah. Made in a very much on that side of things. They've got no groove because they're not really coming mm. from a heavy rock background uh, by which i mean something that's informed at least tangentially by r&b or something they're coming purely they listen to lizzie they listen to these widdly 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 bands and all they got was the whittle they didn't listen to the to the groove underneath it Mm. 
I feel really grateful to Neil for this. I feel like he's kind of sort of <laughs> fastidiously dissected and examined this enormous great turd, you know, which I just sort of like flush from my kind of. He's the Gillian McKeith of chart music. Yes. No, you know, you know, we've we've said in the past that ev- that everything ends up rehabilitated. Uh, we've we've had discussions in the past that you know why is Toto's Africa now considered a classic? Oh, God, it's yeah. this thing that the passage mm. of time happens, and because those old things that people are into are just sort of charming and quaint um, they end up getting rehabilitated but Maiden mm. should not be rehabilitated their, their music their music's dreadful mm. and then it yeah. always was yeah. and, and you know I knew this as a child I knew this when even when Number of the Beast came out I thought how dare you exploit Omen for your <laughs> for your mercenary <laughs> ends <laughs> so yeah no a cold calculating and somewhat unmoving band Maiden you are not wrong to dislike them Good. Thank you. <laughs> so the following week, running free would only manage a one-place jump to number 19, its highest position. The follow-up, a live version of Run to the Hills, became the Christmas number 26, while Live After Death entered the LP chart at number 2, held off the summit of Albenberg by Love Songs by George Benson on KTOW. And of course, the original version was used to devastating effect as the soundtrack to the Maiden Minute in In Bed with Chris Needham, <laughs> where manslaughter take time out from the stress of being Loughborough's top-ranked thrash metal band by running down a school corridor, wrapping sellotape round Chris's little brother's head and filming themselves having a big waz into a toilet. Hello! <laughs> We're drinking! <laughs> Thank you very much, Neil. See you down the line, brother. No, we're totally guys. See you, Neil. Bye. That's the way to do it. Straight in at number 20 this week. It's Iron Maiden and Running Free. Now, here come a group that come all the way over from the States to appear with us on Top of the Pops this evening. It's their first television debut in this country. They are Cameo. They're at number 21 this week, and this is the single live. the way to do it. Straight in at number 20, says Jordan, let loose into the studio and surrounded by a smattering of the kids. He then tells us of a group that have come over all the way from America, where they make all them films and that, to make their first ever appearance on British television. It's Cameo and Single Life. Formed by Larry Blackman in New York in 1974, the New York City Players were a 14-piece funk band who were signed to Casablanca Records a year later as the Players, but were forced to change their name after the Ohio Players wagged a finger at them and tuttered. Mm. Changing their name to Cameo, after a packet of fags one of the band had bought while they were on tour in Canada, they put out the LP Cardiac Arrest in early 1977, scoring an R&B hit with a single Rigor Mortis. After being pulled into the orbit of disco, they ended up on the soundtrack of Thank God It's Friday in 1978. 
They'd go on to be a regular presence in the Billboard R&B charts throughout the early 80s, but it wouldn't be until 1984 that their label, Phonogram, decided to release anything in the UK after they sold out their debut tour over here and She's Strange got to number 37 in April of that year. This single, the follow-up to Attack Me With Your Love, which got to number 65 in July, is the second cut from the LP single Life, which came out in June, but only got to number 66 in our charts. It entered the singles charts at number 47, then soared 12 places to number 35, which led to about 20 seconds of the video being played in the breaker section of Top of the Pops that week, kicking it up another 10 places to number 25. This week, it's jumped four places to number 21, and here they are for their first chance to have a slink about in the top of the pop studio. Come on in, cameo. Mm. Named after a packet of fags. If they'd have been on tour in Britain at the time, they, they could have been called Silk Cut, which is a great name for a band of their ilk. Yeah, it would be, actually. Or Rough Shag. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that would have been all right, yeah. yeah. That's more like an album track of theirs. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Do you notice that um, Paul Jordan says it's their first television debut? Like, yeah, mm. as opposed to their second television debut. What the yeah. fuck? This is exactly what I'm talking about, that I get nervous watching him. I know he's yes. really a nice bloke, but anyway, yeah. Yeah, funk expert David Stubbs, the floor is yours. Mm. Yeah, I, I love this. And I mean, you know, when I was talking about something it's happening... It's mint, isn't it? In, yeah, in Colonel Abrams. Yeah, I mean, things happen here. Yeah, this is absolute mint. There's, there's, there's no argument about it, you know. You know, they're assuming the stances. They look terrible, um, dress-wise, <laughs> but most people did in 1985. Yeah, shocking. I didn't. I, I, I was fine, but um, we'll get on to that <laughs> later on. But it's a bit like that scene in Wings of Desire when Bruno Gantz's angel goes and gets these clothes, he exchanges his suit of armour for uh, some terrible clothes that have just been randomly thrown together. So many people dressed like that in, in 1985. I mean, the, the 80s have got a fucking nerve having a laugh at the 70s, put it that yes. way. They really have. Um, yeah. You know, there's so much of that. There's a lot of that about And tonight. the late 80s, early 90s, even more so. Fucking hell. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, this I love. I mean, I get always cameos that they're a bit like Prince, but minus the sort of androgyny, the sense of gender fluidity, you know, they're, it's mm. very much an all-male thing. But no, I mean, it's a beautiful piece of music. I mean, that little sort of bass drone that you get that, that runs through it, it's kind of subtly quite wistful, really. It's like, yeah, he's living the mm. single life, but could that be the aching, mute voice of his subconscious there? You know, yeah. there's that kind of weird, mm. lovely little undercurrent going on there. Yeah. I mean, the beauty of this sort of record, it's, it's the sort of record that no no one makes anymore. And if they did, they'd make a Pharrell-sized fortune. I mean, that's what Pharrell things always specialise in, you know, making the kind of records they don't make anymore, you know. But, yeah. um, you know, I'm sure that, like, someone could absolutely clean up by just flat-out emulating this. I mean, I remember being at a barbecue hosted by this British-Jamaican family, and when this struck up, you know, everyone across the generations put down their paper plates, uh, and, you know, they got, just got right down as one. Um, yeah. You know, it was lovely. But I did interview um, Larry Blackman about 1988, Ooh. this would have been. It really wasn't my finest hour, actually. Oh, no. He was late, you know, for the interview, you know, and I was a bit peeved about that, you know, because I'm a stickler for punctuality, you know, being the old wing commander and all that. But it <laughs> wasn't the most sort of scintillating of interviews. And I think that when I kind of wrote it up, I think I was getting a bit smug. I'd been, like, a staff writer at Melody Maker for about a year, and felt a bit on top of the world and started, I don't know, there was a sort of slightly kind of unappealing waspishness that was creeping into my um, copy. Mm. And at one point, you know, he was talking about Tommy Jenkins 
I think he talked about how he's going to be helping in work on a Tommy Jenkins album. And yeah. I wrote something like, oh, well, good luck, whoever the hell he is. Something like that. Mm. I actually wrote that. Ooh. Now, what happened is, in those days, they had... Um, <laughs> Channel 4. They had, uh, late on Friday nights, they had a sort of what the papers say, and it was like what the music papers say. Oh, oh. no. Yeah, and Charles Shaw Murray was doing it, and he picked up on this little piece, that I, this, this thing, because I watched the bloody thing, and he picked up on this, and he said... David, Tommy Jenkins is one of Cameo. Yes. <laughs> one of the fans. Oh. It's like, oh, my fucking... Yeah. And that was a very, very properly humbling experience, you know, uh, and, and, yeah. and, and, and rightly so. You know. I mean, this is the pre-codpiece era of Cameo. Yeah. So, you know, what we're getting here is a more masculine imagination with more clothes mm. on. Uh, <laughs> you know, they've, they've stripped down from 14 to 10 to 4. Yeah. And uh, Larry Blackman is obviously the front man. Wearing a jacket that appears to have parakeets on it over a light green vest and dark green trousers. And you know, the only instrument on stage is a bass, which stays slung around the shoulder of Aaron Mills. He's, he's not going to put it down and start capering about like Ashley. Blessing. Yeah, weird choice that. Yeah, but, you know, this one instrument. Mm. <laughs> actually yeah, but it's the it. instrument. Yeah, yeah. Just th- this track coming on at the time and this time was just like fucking yes. Just yeah. what, a, mm. what a joy. Just yeah. Nineteen eighty five is skill. Yeah, mm. I mean, I, I think this song has kind of been obliterated a bit from people's memory by the megalithic presence of Word Up. Yes, mm. but this is the one, really. I mean, yeah. Okay, you know, she's strange had been a minor hit, but this. Is the one that really kind of broke them through. The thing with Cameo is they came out of nowhere and they didn't at the same time. It's yeah. like you used to see their records in the racks. I remember my dad dragging me around record shops and I'd be sort of looking through the funk sections and you'd see their albums. I mean, they didn't even get an album release in the UK until their seventh album, which was Knights of the Sound Table. Great title. Nice. 1981. <laughs> um, they, they had played live a bit in the UK. They had a bit of a following. I mean, when they did their first tour the year before, I remember seeing an advert in the local paper for the Royal Concert Hall, and it said Cameo sold out. And it's just like, yeah. fuck it, who the fuck are Cameo? I thought I was on top of everything in the music world. I'd never heard of them. And I assumed because of the name that they must be some kind of prog Band yeah, or something. Mm. Yeah, I, I guess they're getting played late at night by Robbie Vincent or whoever. I, I right. don't know, but they, they obviously had a following on the kind of soul. Oh yeah, circuit. they were like Maze, weren't they? Just yeah, yeah. nobody knew them yeah. apart from all the people that sold out their gigs. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. And this is it. I mean, I used to see their records in in the racks alongside Rufus and Shaka Khan, who I also didn't really know who they were. And you know, just these sort of like dog-eared records, second-hand records. And- Did you think Rufus was called Rufus Khan? <laughs> no, no, I didn't. But the thing with, with Cameo, the, the name and the logo they had in those days, the logo was a kind of Art Nouveau thing. It looked more like a bar of soap. Yes. You know. Than, than, than a, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Than, than a funk band. But obviously, when they, they had their big rethink, they changed everything. They slimmed down from 14 members to, you know, four or five. Mm. And the logo became more kind of blocky and chunky and, and modern. Mm. The music did too. The music became more blocky and chunky and modern as yes. well. I listened to an interview with Larry Blackman recently uh, by Questlove. It's on the Questlove podcast. Right. Oh, yeah. And in that, he talks about the fact that he really enjoyed being at the end of the old school, but at the start of the new technology. He really enjoyed mm-hmm. being in this position where he was part of that changeover. Yeah. And you, you can really hear that. Because th- th- this record and this era of Cameo is all about minimalism. 
really. Mm. In the interview with Questlove, he's talking about some kind of piece of machinery he's got. And he says it's a Mitsubishi. Now, I looked into this. I couldn't find any bit of audio equipment that's made by Mitsubishi. So maybe he's got that wrong or, or just my searching skills aren't up to it. But anyway, whatever this piece of machinery was, he says... It could make silence sound good. <laughs> and that's clearly, that's clearly what Cameo were about at this time. It's all about the gaps and the spaces mm. between everything. Mm. Um, there's, there's some amazing stuff about the sort of backstory of Cameo in that interview, by the way. There's a thing, you know, you said they, they slimmed down from 14 members, but when they had 14 members, they needed a massive tour bus. Yeah. They bought that tour bus from Muhammad Ali. No! Yeah. Fucking hell. Larry Blackman's dad was a boxer, so maybe there was some kind of connection right. there. I don't mm. know how, how it happened, but yeah. You can imagine that sort of like handing the keys over. This oh, kind of, yeah. man. That might have been about 1981 because that's when Ali had his last fight. Um, right. He yeah, lost maybe to Trevor Burbick. And of course, yeah. at that point, his entourage would have just disappeared, you know, so he's definitely going to have a, a bus going begging, yeah. definitely. The thing with his backstory, Larry Blackman, he talks about growing up in New York and uh, when he was just a child, he was hanging around the Apollo mm. and he, he saw live people like sam cook and yeah. james brown and right through to funkadelic and maybe i'm extrapolating too much from this but you know and maybe i'm drawing lines between things but you, you can see the kind of showmanship that yeah. larry blackman must have learned from watching people like james brown and george clinton and, and sam cook but also the other kind of musical element in his life was he was in this thing called the junior guard right. which is like an even more paramilitary version of the boy scouts it was basically funded by the fbi um in in the interview larry compares it to the hitler youth right right? (laughs) and he joined the drum and bugle corps of the Mm. junior guard and in that he learned drums first and then the bass right from that you know his family moved to atlanta and then he takes those skills to form a school band which becomes cameo and maybe this is a stretch by me but he's in this kind of quasi military organization playing military music and he's playing the drums and the bass and he's learned all this showmanship and that's cameo you've got this kind of robotic military beat backbeat to it eyes right yeah, yes, yeah. which is the best bit in the song eyes right mm. yeah all of that and that kind of minimalist era of cameo for me it's their best stuff I I mean, I've, I've tried with the old fun mm. material. I don't know if David has. For me, it's quite sort of second tier, second tier. Yeah, mm. Dallas now. This, this, this is their stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think it starts with the album Style in 1983. Questlove goes further than that. He reckons I Just Want to Be, a single they released in 1979, is where that kind of thing starts, the sort of futurist bit mm. of what they do. But the first that we, the general public, as opposed to kind of specialists and soul boys, I guess, um, would have heard of it was She's Strange, yeah. um, mm. which was, you know, top 40, first time round later reissues got slightly higher and again you know this is the uk being ahead of the game um mm. cameo didn't make the billboard top 40 until word up in 86 ridiculous and it was number three in the uk number six in the billboard charts but yeah we were way ahead of the game with, with cameo yeah I, I remember getting hold of the reissue of she's strange and on the b-side of that there was this cameo mega mix with you know various hits all welded together and it hit me that their music is modular like lego Mm. it it all fits to a template and you can mix and match bits together um, Mm. which isn't to say that they all sound exactly the same but if you listen to she's strange single life attack me with your love word up candy and back and forth candy fucking hell oh candy's fucking amazing that's their best tune candy yeah probably is to be fair they all sound related though those tracks they're brothers from another mother all those tracks and Mm -hmm. the thing in in, in pop music you only need one idea if it's a brilliant idea yes totally you know whether you're the ramones or lana del 
rate. You know, just that one idea will sustain you. God, candy. I mean, David talking about witnessing how people reacted to single life at a barbecue. Um, if in the UK you go to a black wedding and candy comes on, have you seen that dance? There's the dance that everyone does to it. No. There's a, a particular sort of, um, sort of yeah. dance routine, that, that sort of like a, a group dance routine that everyone does to it. And it's just, I, I try learning it. It's kind of, a, but it's, it's, kind of, it's just an amazing thing to watch. When Cyril Regis died, the footballer, that dance broke out at his funeral wake. And, yeah, it's just the most amazing clip, if, if you find it. Yeah, I've seen that too. But not everybody liked this new thing that uh, Cameo were doing. The critic Jeffrey Himes in the Washington Post called them Shamio on account of all, all the studio trickery that they were doing. Oh, and, fuck it off. You know, yeah. And, and yeah, obviously there, there was a lot of studio trickery, but that's the fucking point. Yeah. That's what's so brilliant about They're it. They're cheating. They're using synthesizers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Larry Blackman is a genius, you know, mm. and he was the genius behind it. You know, he was the producer and all that, but they were a group. That's the thing. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just him. You know, you've got Nathan Lieutenant. He's the guy with the two rows of little uh, baby mm-hmm. dreads. Um, he was on vocals and played trumpet on some of their records. You've got Tommy Jenkins, who David mentioned, mm. um, and Kevin Kendrick. Those guys co-wrote most of the songs with Larry. So they really were a group. Yeah. But the thing is, they did have gimmicks. They did have mm. gimmicks. That was the whole, like Larry Blackman going, ow, mm. on most cameo hits. Yeah, later on, we're not quite there yet. He hasn't started singing no. like he's got a massive hunk of special toffee <laughs> in his mouth just yet. Yeah, or a clothes peg on his mm. nose. Yeah, um, <laughs> but I, I actually tried to trace the history of the funk. Ow! Yes, it's almost like a, a lockdown project. <laughs> I, I got so bored. I tried to make this happen. So it's there on September by Earth, Wind, and Fire. Yeah, and it's your thing by the Isley Brothers, nineteen sixty nine, and that was as far back as I could go. Nineteen sixty nine. It's your thing. Ow! Yeah. So if any pop crazy youngsters have got a credible earlier instance of the funk, ow! You know, <laughs> some people saying Sly and the Family Stone, but I couldn't find an example from pre-69 mm. so yeah I, I, I'd love to hear it and, and the other gimmick of course is the Ennio Morricone good the bad and the ugly gimmick of course no? yes that we hear on, on this record and that's a bit like you know um, Anne Dudley from Art of Noise she always had that hey mm. hey sound in the background mm. um, on anything she, she produced yeah. I quite like that that they had yeah. that gimmick that you instantly recognise the cameo track because of the yeah, even if it's not an ow, which we don't get on this track, of course. <laughs> the thing is, it's yeah. absolutely nothing wrong with. You've only got one idea. If it's a brilliant idea, it's great. Mm. All of these things are saying, yeah, hey, you know, you like cameo and you liked all those cameo records. Well, here and this is to indicate it is another cameo record. <laughs> mm. yeah, an intro to a Motown song. It's pretty. You know Motown. You like Motown, don't you? Well, here's some more Motown. You know? <laughs> well, the individual drummers in um, yeah in, on, on Motown tracks, the, the Funk Brothers had each drummer had had their own individual fill that they would start the. Track. Yeah. With, so you could recognise which drummer it was. That's how extreme it got there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's very little here in this performance that will anger or unbalance the dads, but the BBC could have had a lot of fun with a full play of the video, which, as you'll recall, begins with a very chunky black man with a high top fade and an uber mercury of a moustache in a wedding dress, which he then rips off and <laughs> stomps out of a church so he can jump into a Ferrari and bomb around town with a selection of ladies from the 80s with massive sex frizz hairstyles. Mm. Quite the thing to put out in 1985 in the middle of the AIDS scare. Yeah, the thing with Cameo is, particularly when you get to the Codpiece era, they are incredibly camp. Yes. But they were completely heterosexual. They're kind of the opposite of Wham in a way. Yeah. Because Wham appeared 
uh, at least to somebody of my generation, to be these 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 young straight lads. But you know, mm. obviously, we, we we now know the the reality of that. Yeah. But yeah, mm. yeah, cameo, yeah. handlebar mustache, red codpiece, and yet utterly straight, which mm. is kind of amazing. Yeah. Like PJ Proby said, I was camp, but I put some beef into it. <laughs> the dance moves are amazing. I think the, the coordinated dance moves on on this performance. Mm. You know, they're really going for it. And mm. also, they had the guys and girls audience participation down way before. Mm. Timberlake way before Outcast. That single guys clap your hands yeah. and single ladies clap your hands and all that, which is just fantastic. What a great hook that is. Yeah. You know? I don't know if they've been instructed to perform and respond, but the kids are well into it, aren't they? They, uh, they, they yes. clap their gender-specific hands mm. on cube <laughs> absolutely perfectly. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, a good way, if this came on in the club, a good way to signal your availability. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or a really good way for your mates to turn around and just stare at you when uh, he sings that. Like, uh uh-huh, you haven't got and a you girlfriend. you just go, oh, fuck off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't know where she goes to a different school, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly, yes. I mean, Simon, you speak eloquently of the music of the 80s that emboldened you when you weren't in a relationship. Mm. And, you know, you could say here's another example, but, you know, I, I doubt Larry Blackman and his mates are staring out of their bedroom windows, taking in the landscape of Barry. No, because it's not the single life as in the celibate life. It's not the chaste life. No, certainly mm. not. It's the promiscuous life, if anything, you know. It's the slapping yes. it about life. It's, yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Even though I think that there is, an underlying sadness because you know life isn't all cock and, yeah you know. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> hell. are they funk though mm. these people are in the late 20s early 30s they're veterans but unlike prince or michael jackson a few years later you know they can breathe in the hip-hop and breathe it out again in their own style they're not intimidated or yeah. encumbered by it exactly mm. that's you've put it perfectly yeah. there. they took yeah. hip-hop on board but they also had an effect on it you know mm. yes um, the sound of r&b post cameo does bear their dna i mean teddy riley was definitely listening larry kind of mentioned mm. him in that quest love uh, interview i did and he mentored teddy riley to some extent and almost signed him to his label right and you can hear that similar kind of use of emptiness and space on no diggity by black street for example mm. and, and you also i mean david correctly mentioned pharrell williams think of something like drop it like it's hot and the sort of empty spaces yes. on that track. An outcast. Yeah. I mean, it turns out half of um, oh, yes. half of Cameo's backing musicians ended up playing on Stankonia and Speakerbox The Love Below. Ooh. Notably the bassist, um, Aaron Mills, uh, yes. ended up playing on, on outcast records. So so this this kind of influence of Cameo does, does carry on. Even if mm. their one gimmick kind of um, runs its course, they did really make, make a mark on hip-hop and R&B after their time. Yeah. Mm. I mean, they're, they're kind of retro futurist in a sense, isn't it? Because, you know, things like the dance yes. routines, that harking right back in as the, the pips and beyond or whatever, you know. But, you know, like you said, they're a functioning band. But, you know, they've got a handle on new technologies and fresh style and all that, you know. Because there'll be an interview in The Enemy a few months from now with Simon Witter. And yeah. he, he talks to Larry Blackman and he says, you know, I heard you don't like being termed as a funk band. Why is that? And he says, oh, we, we've just never seen ourselves as a funk band. Mm. Although I suppose you might say the same thing if I heard Cameo for the first time. When I think of funk, I think of guys who don't take baths, and I don't <laughs> like that. Mm. I mean, his big influence were Earth, Wind and Fire. They were yes. what he aspired to be. 
Mm. Um, and yeah, I mean, Cameo Mark One, you can you can see that. So it's kind of weird that he doesn't identify with funk. But I suppose that's because he was trying to move things forward. You know, maybe for him, funk meant the seventies, and he was trying to move things in a different direction. Mm. It's interesting the whole the lyrics to this song. Yeah, it's about being a single guy putting it about, but it's also got that kind of S and M undercurrent to it every little thing you do makes me smile and if i had my way baby i'd tie you up for a while mm. the influence of prince yeah yeah the prince if you will mm. as we're gonna see later on eh totally. so the following week single life jumped five places to number 16 and a week later it got to number 15 its highest position the follow-up a re-release of She's Strange got to number 22 in December, and although the last cut from the LP, A Goodbye, would only get to number 65 in March of 1986, they roared back at the end of the summer with Word Up, eventually getting to number three in September. Word Up's my karaoke song, by the way. Is it now? <laughs> the thing is, it's, in some ways, it's a very foolish choice because all of the lyrics are in the first minute and a half, and then there's a load of instrumental fanning about You've got a yeah, dance yeah. man. <laughs> or you could just go yeah. for a piss and come back. That, yeah, yeah. That was the song uh, in which I basically defeated a member of the boy band Blue at karaoke. Have I told this story before? What? Yeah, um, a, a friend of mine uh, was having her birthday at a Chinese Elvis restaurant in Hampstead. And uh, so. Oh, Paul Chan. I think that might have been the South London guy. I don't know, because, but there's one in Hampstead. Oh, right. As well. And when the Chinese Elvis had finished doing his thing, it would be karaoke time for the punters. And uh, what's his name? Simon from Blue uh, got up and did a Blue song. He actually did a karaoke version of one of his own hits. Oh, that's like David Van Day in the Falkland Islands. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did he do a cartwheel? He, he was a bit subdued and didn't get really a great reception from the crowd. I was up next. I did Word Up by Cameo and I really fucking went for it and brought the house down. Everyone fucking oh, loved it. So brilliant. in a way, I should maybe have quit when I was ahead and that, that should have been my karaoke mm. retirement. But to this day, if for whatever reason I'm uh, forced to get involved in karaoke, I'm looking through the list for Word Up every time. Simon Whitemon. <laughs> <laughs> my, um, yeah, my karaoke song is um, Barry White. Can't get enough of your love. Oh, oh, fucking hell. I want to hear We that. need a chart music karaoke night. <laughs> Fucking right. Brilliant. My go-to karaoke song has always been the Ramadan number one of 1974 itself, Kung Fu Fighting. <laughs> oh, yes. But I did it right in a down. pub in Nottingham once. Did a really decent roundhouse kick, but my oh. loafer flew off. Oh, went right to the back of the pub, caught by some bloke, threw it back to me over the heads of all these people, caught it again, put it on, carried on. <laughs> you can't improve on that. No. That's very good. It's a little bit frightening. Really. Yes, it was, man. They were expensive loafers. <laughs> and by the late 90s, I used to finish it off by going into the rap on the first mission of Parappa the Rapper on the PlayStation. Do you remember? <laughs> yeah. Kick, punch, it's all in the mind. If you want to test me, I'm sure you'll find the things I teach you are sure to beat you. Nevertheless, you get a lesson from teaching how kick. <laughs> what percentage of the audience knew what the fuck you were doing? There were enough of the heads in the audience yeah, yeah. To, to, to nod and appreciate. And my <laughs> mates fucking loved it. And that's the only thing that matters. You, you don't play to the gallery at karaoke. You play to your mates. Yeah, true enough. By the way, talking of Parappa the Rapper, David, I was delighted to learn that it actually sampled 
samples can. Did you oh, know? Oh this? my god! Not so much sample, but do you know that mission where you get a driving lesson off a moose? Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. The openings. The uh, it, it's an interpolation of the piano intro from Turtles Have Short Legs. Ah, yeah. Go back okay. and listen to it. Never mind that. Go back and rewrite yeah, your absolutely. book. Yeah, then, you know, no, this is no, the yeah, most important like. fact. Yes. My biggest fuck up with karaoke was actually the darkness. Um, I went to uh, I went to the Carolina Brunswick, which is a kind of goth pub in Brighton, and they had rock karaoke. And I chose "Get Your Hands Off My Woman, Motherfucker" by the Darkness. <laughs> and uh, uh, I, I know that Justin Hawkins sings in quite a high voice um, in quite a lot of their songs. I'd forgotten that that entire song pretty much is in a falsetto. So. Um, Oh, immediately man, the, the silly games of metal yeah hmm. I, I i throw myself into the first verse in a very high voice thinking it's gonna oh it, mate you know, where can you go i know from where there? can you go and and basically after about three minutes of screeching i'd almost lost my voice and yeah and pretty much the pub had lost its audience as well <laughs> <laughs> This week, Cameo, Single Life. Here are the charts. And there's a chart entry at number 40 for the alarm and strength. And a chart entry at 39, level 42, something about you. Down 9 at 38, King, alone without you. Down 7 to 37, I wonder if I take you home, Lisa Lisa and Cult Jam. Chart entry at 36, aha, take on me. Down to 35, go the damned, is it a dream? Down 7 and 34, Dire Straits, Money for Nothing. And dropping to 33, running up that hill, it's Kate Bush. Princess Samuel, number one, goes down 6 and 32. And a new entry at 31 from the cult, Rain. Down 11 and 30, The Cars and Drive. And down 9 to 29, into the groove, Madonna. Up 7 and 28, Five Star, Love Takes Over. Up to 27, St Elmo's Fire, John Parr. New entry at 26, the boy with a thorn in his side, the Smiths. And down to 25 go UB40 and Chrissy Hind. Up 12 places, 24, the cure, close to me. Up 8 to 23, my heart goes bang, dead or alive. Renee and Angela, I'll be good, goes up 2 to 22. Up 4 to 21, single life, cameo. And the highest new entry at number 20, Iron Maiden, running free. Lloyd Cole and the commotions, up 3 to 19, brand new friend. And up 3 to 18, it's called a heart from Depeche Mode. Cliff's up one place to 17, she's so beautiful. Down 7 at 16, Baltimore, Tarzan boy. And down 5 to 15, Mai Tai, body and soul. Amy Stewart, knock on wood, goes down 6 at 14. Climbing 4 to 13, the Style Council, the Lodgers. Down 1 at 12, Maria Vidal, body rock. And up 1 to 11, the power of love, Huey Lewis and the News. That's the way the chart stands up to number 11. We'll have more charts for you a little later. That's when we take a look at the top 10. Right now, here are some tips for the top. Here are the top 40 breakers. This guy had to make it in America before he could make it over here. Up 11 places this week to number 27. It's John Pass and Elmo's Fire. Hey, 
and that group moves, says Jordan, as Davis grabs us by the wrist and whips us into the charts from 40 to 11. Because we're already at the stage where the charts start to matter less and less. That's terrible, isn't it, chaps? 75% of the top 40 just done in one oh, go. Oh, yeah. So anticlimactic. Yeah, it goes on for too long. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it really does. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like the classified scores at the end of Grandstand. It's like yes. You, you realise they have to do it, but yeah, it just goes on and on and on. Yeah, and we're hit with the images of saxophones, guitars and keyboards and that. I always say this, but that awful soft rock version of Yellow Pill, fuck it, I hate it. Yeah. Yeah, those crappy clip art images of guitars and saxes and piano keys. And then, yeah. what, uh, and I don't know if you noticed, but the backgrounds of loads of the photos have been blacked out, or they've been you know, the black, or the whatever background was has been replaced by some other solid block of color. It's like mm. like a Google Pixel. It's like yeah. somewhere between Joseph Stalin and Google Pixel. Top of the Pops was kind of intermediary <laughs> between those two things. Oh man! A few jumped out to me, Princess. Say I'm your number one. Um, yes. She's trying on a red bowler hat. And I kept thinking of, you know, that bit in The Wire where Bubbles has identified um, some of the, the, the gang members um, and, and you've got Key McGreg, the cop, up on the roof watching and Bubbles goes over to the dealers and puts red hats on their heads. So, right. you know, to try and sell them the hats, but also to show Kima up on the roof, yeah, these are the bad guys that you're looking for. Mm. Cars, drive, still hanging in there. God, it's fucking October Jesus. and we're still in the line. Live Aid hangover period. It, I didn't realise mm. it dragged on mm. that long. Um, I know it's Cameo themselves. Only three of them made the photo cut. I yes. don't know why that is. And the other weird one was Renee and Angela. Um, the whites of Renee's eyes are too white. I don't know what, what's been done there. It's like a horror movie poster <laughs> or something. <laughs> Good to see a half yeah. finally got take on me into the chart, though. Fucking hell, after three goes. Oh, that feels like a bit of a moment. Yeah, in at 36, mm. it's like, oh, here we go. You know, it's almost a, a, a new age of pop coming. With yeah. I didn't realise it was so late in the 80s. You, don't, you sort of you, you forget that yeah. they weren't even a thing in the first half of the decade. Yeah. And while we're still trying to digest all that data, Davis and Jordan immediately throw us into the breaker section, starting with St Elmo's Fire by John Parr. Born in Worksop, Nottinghamshire in 1952, John Parr formed his first band, The Silence, at school at the age of 12, which he was a part of into his late teens. In 1968, he joined the band Bittersweet, spelt S-U-I-T-E, which were a regular feature on the Yorkshire Wheel Tappers and Shunters circuit, before he poached musicians from other top-working men's club bands and formed Ponder's End. I wonder if they ever played a few gigs with Punch. (laughs) After getting his hooks into the music industry through his songwriting, he signed a deal with Carl in America in 1983, which led him to link up with Meatloaf. Loaf, who was looking for songs for his next LP, Bad Attitude. He introduced him to John Wolfe, who had been the Who's tour manager and was looking for something to do after they'd split up. He offered his management services and Paul was signed up as a solo artist to Atlantic in 1984. His first single, Naughty Naughty, was an instant success in America, getting to number 23 on the Billboard chart in March of this year, while Paul was supporting Toto on their American tour. And it was during that tour that he was approached by the composer David Foster, who was doing the soundtrack for the forthcoming Joel Schumacher film St Elmer fire was impressed by naughty naughty and drafted him in to record the theme tune 
When Foster played Pa the track he had in mind, Pa told him it was cat shit and sounded well flash dance and suggested that they have a go with a new song, which they wrote together. As neither of them had seen the film and had little idea what it was about, Pa struggled with the lyrics until Foster showed him a news clip of the Canadian Paralympian Rick Hansen, who had just started an attempt to go round the world in his wheelchair. Taken by Hansen's name for the event, the Man in Motion tour, he hammered out the lyrics, chucking in the name of the film even though Schumacher told him not to. It immediately scaled the Billboard charts in the summer of 85 and two weeks after the film came out, it reached the summit of Mount Popmore in early July, spending two weeks there. Naturally, because we're Britain and shit, the film won't be out here until November, but thanks to Jonathan King, whose new BBC2 show No Limits plugged the single relentlessly, it entered the charts on the first week of September at 82, then soared 26 places to number 56. After jumping nine places to number 45, then seven places to number 38, this week it's gone 11 places up to number 27, meaning that Top of the Pops is finally screening the video, which is a melange of pars standing outside the titular bar in the rain and a big advert for the film. And alas and alike, chaps, the true face of 1985 reveals itself. God, it's it's amazing. Mullet in this. I mean, workshop. That's basically your neck of the woods, isn't it, Al? So it's, it's another, it is, yes. It's the cradle of pop. I know. Another union of democratic mine workers sized stain on your region, <laughs> though, isn't it? <laughs> Fucking hell. We got Colonel Abrams and then sent John Parr the other way, you know. Yeah. Honestly, I, I wasn't aware of the existence of this. You know, I did follow the charts reasonably assiduously, you know, or was impacted by them. But I think I managed to zone this one out at the time with dark rum or whatever. So I kind of vaguely <laughs> hoped, you know, like, is this going to be a cover of the Brian track from another green world? And <laughs> it isn't. And it's, uh, oh, you know, it's just that wretched Bruce Springsteen influence, you know, that's singing like you're trying to hurl up a greenie from the base of your throat, you know, mm. that horrible sustained grunt that, you know, it's supposed to... Let's well, say passion, it's not even, like, lustful passion. Urgent sincerity or whatever, you know. Yeah. It's not so much, you know, like, man in motion. It's just this walking compendium of every mid-'80s transatlantic cliché, you know. Oh, yes. Chromium played field to that brassy bat beat, you know. And the eagles are higher, you know. It's just like... <laughs> I, you know, anything like high school movies... Coming of age movies killed rock. You know, you've got this. You've got, yeah. Don't you forget about me? You know, simple minds. You know, oh, God, such yeah. a destructive influence. There's no St. Elmo's fire for us yet at the uh, at the ABC or Odeon. Uh, at the pictures this weekend, we've got a choice of Pale Rider, Fletch, Life Force, The Holcroft Covenant, Cocoon. Rambo First Blood 2, Code of Silence with Chuck Norris, Desperately Seeking Susan, Year of the Dragon, The Return of the Living Dead, and the Care Bears movie. But by the look of this video, I would have definitely cocked my nose up at it. Because the film appears to be about a load of American wankers having a better life than me. Yeah. Has anyone seen St. Elmo's Fire? No, no, no. No, me neither. I mean, why would we? You know, yeah, exactly. this is the thing. It's, it was the 80s. I mm. had very limited money. Um, I 
I was on £10 a month from the Barry District News, so £2.50 a week. That's NME 2023 wages, Simon, there. Exactly, yeah. Plus another £2.50 I could scrape together from my mum and my dad and my granddad. So I was on. A, I had a fiver a week to spend. I had a look, that's the equivalent of £14.72 mm. now, right? Fuck. I'm not spending that on seeing fucking mainstream American films, you know? I wanted to culturally enrich myself. I was really craving yes. culture. And if mm. I was going to see a film, it would be maybe something worthy and British and kitchen sink like Letter to Brezhnev, so a bit of social yeah. realism. It might have been something surreal and arty, like a razor head or Betty Blue, um, you know, if I was going the French way with things, you know. Mm. Or I'd watch whatever Channel 4 threw at us, which, which might yes. it was usually sort of classic things. So, you know, it might be The Defiant Ones with Sidney Poitier and Tony Curtis. It might be uh, Night of the Iguana with Robert Mitchum or something like that, you know, mm. and these sort of black and white classics that, that felt enriching in, in some way. Yeah. And that's what I wanted. I, I wanted culture whether it was secondhand or brand new um yeah and this stuff it's everything i hated and still do even from the video you you can tell even though i've got no clue what the storyline is you kind of know what the storyline is it's triumph over adversity it's mm. people being successful and going for it man mm. just go mm. for it yeah you know mm. all this kind of shit and it's everything i hated i i can't even be ironically mm. nostalgic for it because no. people younger than me people maybe 10 years 12 years younger than me they love all this shit you know because mm. to them this is the fun 80s and it, you know if, if, if you go to a club where that generation are in charge of things that's what you're gonna hear yeah what it reminds me of you, you know um in, in the film Boogie Nights, where Dirk Diggler and, and his mate try and make a record, and it's, you got the touch, you yes. got the power. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, it's all that kind of fucking go for it, go getting bollocks. It's, do you know what it is? It's mm. Tory music. It's mm. Tory music. Mm. That's what it is. And uh, it totally yeah. makes sense to me that the backing music is played by members of Toto. His backing matter basically total. <sighs> you know. So, it's, it's, yeah, yeah, it's like a youth wing tell. of Reaganism, isn't it? You know, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, essentially, there were two records made in the mid-'80s in 24 hours to be the lead single from a film, right? Right. One of them is the greatest record ever made. It's When Doves Cry by Prince. Right, The other yes. one is this piece of absolute shit. Um, yeah. 24 hours to make it. What it makes me think of, those 24 hours were basically spent in constipation. Like, you mm. know, he just sat there on the bog just shitting out this massive bowling ball-sized turd of American bollocks. I'm sorry, I'm sure he's a nice bloke. No, it's, it's the sort of thing that's in the kind of elephant's graveyard of, like, pre-dawn minicab rides, isn't it? Mm. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, I, I suppose in, in some ways this is the sort of shit that we should play at late night minicab fm mm. we're going to be totally totally real about it yeah yeah I, I think in some ways music like this and films like joel schumacher's films and uh, john hughes movies they kind of signal the breakdown of the post-war consensus because mm. you know the, from the clement attlee government onwards there was this idea essentially in britain that we that we're all in it together and we look out for each other and that mm. there is a safety net if we fuck up and all this kind of stuff but mm. this kind of individualism and it's the worst kind of individualism mm. uh, has crept in and it, it is a very reaganite yeah. thing and it's yeah it, it is just young people being yeah go for it while mm. an an older man with bouffant hair encourages them yes by the way he's not even that old he looks older than he is he's like 
33 when he's younger than Colonel Abrams. Yeah, yeah this fucking Clarkson looking fucker. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is your bog standard movie trailer that thinks it's a pop video that was in style at the time with uh, Paul walking about the set of the bar that the film's named after and then doing the show right there on the stage yeah, while yeah, some yeah. bell ends embraces strut about and, and make the nerds get off their table. Yeah. But yeah, I know fuck all about the film. All I know about the film is that this is a theme to it and the theme to it is shit, so why would I bother? I always get it mixed up with John Farnham, who sang You're the Voice. I, I yes. never know which is which. You're the voice, trying to understand. Yeah, they might as well as be well. the same person. Yeah, I know. yeah, I think he's Australian, but I don't think that was from a film. But it's all the same bollocks. He's already been interviewed on the first episode of the new series of Whistle Test this week at his home, and yet he's come far from his workshop roots. Um, he's been interviewed in his home in Doncaster, <laughs> living the dream. <laughs> his, uh, his Wikipedia page is one of those ones that's definitely been written by the person themselves. You know, right. where, where you get one that says at the top, um, this biography of a living person needs additional citations or verification. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah it's yeah. one of those ones, right? Um, <laughs> Because you mentioned his band Ponder's End. The, the little mm. bit about them, it said, uh, uh, you know, he, he formed a super group with musicians from other working men's clubs and named the band Ponder's End, a band that set a new precedent for the bands in the north. <laughs> what a weird thing to say. Set a new precedent. In what way? Mm. Precedent yeah. of shitness. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's like Cabri Voltaire, isn't it? You yeah. Know. Yeah. Anything else to say about this? No. No. Of course there isn't. It's fucking shit. Exactly. So the following week, St. Elmo's Fire soared 17 places to number 10, then spent three weeks in a row at number six, its highest position. It was tipped as a shoe-in for an Oscar nomination for Best Song, but when Parr opened up his gob about the song being written about Rick Hansen, it was disqualified because it wasn't about the film, and Lionel Richie won instead with Say You, Say Me. Good. The follow-up, the release of Naughty Naughty in the UK, got to number 58, and after his duet with Meatloaf, Rock and Roll Mercenaries got to number 31 in September of that year. He never troubled the top 40 again. Fucking hell, Rock and Roll Mercenaries. I wonder if Putin's rang them up yet. Yeah, well, come from Worksop, it should be Rock and Roll Scabs more like. <laughs> but Pa went on to do all right for his sen, supporting Tina Turner on the Private Dancer Tour, linking up with Pepsi to play a gig which was broadcast live in America, Japan and Australia and making quite a bit of money co-writing an advertising jingle of the late 80s. Do you, would you care to guess which one? Oh, go on. No. Well, it'll be blatantly mm. obvious when I tell you. Yeah. Gillette, <laughs> the best <laughs> a man can get. Oh, of get course. Just one place above that one from John Parr come the Smiths, a new entry at 26, the boy with a thorn in his side. We've done the Smiths loads on chart music, and this, their eighth single, is the follow-up to That Joke Isn't Funny Anymore, which only got to number 49 in July of this year. 
Although we don't know it yet, this is the first cut of sorts from their next album, The Queen Is Dead, which isn't coming out for another eight months and is a new entry this week at number 26. They've just finished a tour of Scotland earlier this week and are not available, so to celebrate them courageously breaking the top of the pop's colour barrier once more, here (laughs) is their first ever promo video the band have ever made. Mm. And let's get that video out of the way first, because it's the bog standard, the band having fun in the studio trope, or at least as much fun as a band can have when Morris is in it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of an anti-promo thing, really, in, in lots of respects, you know. And it, you've got the band, and then you've got the singer and the twain don't really connect, really. No. You know, it's like they're doing their own thing. Morrissey does his thing. There's no harmonies. There's never harmonisation. You know, there's just a sense of, like, one person delivering a monologue, and then the rest of them having a sort of instrumental conversation. And it's a very unprofessional studio, isn't it? Because it's got massive mm. windows and blinds and candles. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, soundproofing must be fucking awful. And Morrissey takes his jacket off at one point and whirls it around a bit. And uh, yeah, that's your lot. You know, Adam and the Ants, this is not. Exactly. I mean, it feels willfully slapdash, you know. So like, fine, if we must, Mm, you know. Yeah. I mean... I've not done Morrissey, I don't think, on chart music Haven't before, you? actually. I don't think I have. Oh, well, come on, David, take the floor. Yeah, you know, we all know what became of Morrissey, you know, what he descended into and what he sort of bloated and hardened into, you know, to the extent that, like for a lot of people, as we mentioned earlier on, it's now only tolerable to listen to Smith songs if Rick Astley's delivering them. Yes. But, um, yeah. But at this time, 1985, I mean, I wasn't obsessive about the Smiths, not not enough to actually buy and play their records at home, because the thing is, you just saw and heard plenty of them anyway. Mm. You know, you just didn't. But actually, I have to say, I thought at this point, Morrissey was a male model of divineness, you know, to mm. the extent that even if I didn't quite admit it to myself, I was I was actually modelling myself on him. Oh, and man. I wore my hair big on top, short with the sides. Stubs, I, I see. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I wore big baggy shirts. I had similar eyebrows to him also. You know, it's not like I was cutting pictures out of smash hits and salutating them <laughs> to my door. It wasn't a crush. It was just that, to me, he looked like a young man ought to look in 1985, mm. you know. But anyway, if it was unconscious, it was bumped right up to my conscious at a school reunion I had in Leeds around this time. Right. You know, I met Steve Turner notice, you know. Fucking hell, have you seen Morrissey here? <laughs> I was like, no, it's a customised look. It's my, it's my own creation. I, is it, fuck? You're fucking Morrissey. Hey, lads, come and have a, come and have a skeg at this charming get here. Hey, Morrissey, or fucking what? Oh, bad skit. Bad skit, exactly, yeah. Actually, what Stephen Turner, or Stephen Andrew Turner, I suppose I should say, as we're talking about Morrissey, <laughs> failed to notice, I think since when, when we blokes give each other the up and down and tend to stop at the waist, is that below the waist, I was all soul boy, you know, jeans at half mast white socks, plimsolls, anyway, there you go. Mm. Anyway, I thought the Smiths were at the height of their powers in the mid-80s with The Queen Is Dead, especially the title track. I mean, everything from the queer provocation and the just the wah-wah velocity of Mars guitars, which is like graffiti spray paint. There was a series of videos that Derek Jarman made of tracks from the album, which I taped and, yeah, I watched a lot. So my take on the Smiths wasn't as yet affected by their non-blackness. You know, I saw them as twisted, very well-inflected Indian and to the idea of maleness that was still very prevalent, which I saw you know, in the mid-80s. Mm. I think they're the first group in British or rock history to pine for the monochrome, to pine for the black and white, to pine for this kind of sort of, you know, pre-era Ian Sharples in the snow or kitchen sink drama, you know, which I think is one of the fascinating things. And mm. just ironic, really, because I do actually like them in their most colourised moments, you know, like the Queen is Dead track, you know. But um, this is supposedly Morrissey's favourite Smith song, but it's, mm. it, it, it's, it's not mine. 
No. It's a bit like Heaven Knows I'm Miserable Now. It proceeds at this sort of leafy amble. It's a bit grey and drizzly and wrapped with swooning self-pity about how misunderstood and hard done by he is by the music industry. And it's all for, for fuck's sake, man. That terrible music press that just tongue his bollocks at every turn. I know, I know. It's like he's addicted to feelings of persecution, you know, whether they're merited or not, you know. Mm. And there's a bit too much of the kind of, whoa, whoa, you know, vocal catch-up on it. Oh, yeah. Even so, you know, you look at this and you listen to this and it still feels well above and beyond the surrounding 1985-ness of which, you know, there's so much in this episode. Yeah, you're right, David. It is apparently Morrissey's favourite Smith song, which is very easy to believe as it's three and a bit minutes of him whining like a big Jesse yeah. about how the music biz doesn't understand him and it's all their fault that his singles mm. oddly ever get into the top ten. I mean, the Smiths' chart run up to now... Mm. 25, 12, 10, 17, 24, 26, 49. Mm. That's level 42 numbers, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Maybe he's going on about mainstream media because, you know, we like to believe that the Smiths dominated the mid-80s, but I had a trawl of the newspaper archives of 1985 and the dominant Morrissey is the Tranmere Rovers winger, Johnny Morrissey. Mm. There's even more references to a singing group in Ireland called the Morrisseys than there is <laughs> yeah. an actual Morrissey. The jazz fusion band Morrissey Mullen get more mentions than him, mm. but I only saw one or two references to Morrissey in the papers. So, yeah, yeah maybe that's what he's concerned about. Yeah, yeah there's a lot of uh, revisionism these days that, that has it that uh, the Smiths were massive in the 80s, that, you know, sort of U2 or Simple Minds kind of size. They mm. were not. They were not. No. They were very much two or three rungs below that. Yeah. Obviously, their impact uh, was huge and it sort of reverberates yeah. down the decades far more than, than, than U2 or, or, or Simple Minds. Yeah. But I think they became popular after they split, really. I think people mm. started to realise what they'd lost and, and started buying up the old albums. But at, at the time, they, they very much did feel like this quite fragile cause mm. that was uh, only just making it into the charts and needed every little bit of support it could get from right-minded people. Yeah. Anyway, this song, fucking cat shit. Mm. I fucking hated this <laughs> song when it came out. This was a song that just put the tin lid on it and my opinions of the Smiths. Mm. Particularly where the end, where he's just reduced to just mewling. Mm. He's just like, oh, fuck off, mate. <sighs> put Cameo back on. <laughs> I'd sooner have wow than... Mm. Well, I've got to disagree. I mean, it's... No, 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 disagree away, man. We live in democratic England, not communist Russia. <laughs> I mean, OK, it's No Single Life by Cameo, but then what is? Mm. I think it's a delightful record. I really do. Right. Yeah, it, it really speaks to me, actually. There's a bit in The Wire, and I, I do quote The Wire almost as much as I quote <laughs> The Sopranos. <laughs> but in, in season four of The Wire, which um, all civilised people agree is the best season of The Wire, that's the one with the school kids. Mm. The correct order of how good the seasons of The Wire is is four, three, two one five by the way right um anyway there's a bit in in an episode of season four and it is all about school kids where one of the kids dookie asks cutty who's kind of their mentor the sort of youth group mentor how do you get from here to the rest of the world it's such a poignant question mm. cutty mm. just says cutty just says i wish i knew mm. and there's a bit in boy with a thorn in his side by the smiths that goes and when you want to live how do you start where do you go 
who do you need to know? Mm. And that really spoke to me as, as a teenager trapped in, in South Wales and not really knowing many people who were like-minded and just reading about exciting life going on in, in, in other places through the Face magazine or, or, or whatever. Mm. It's a lightweight song, uh, mm. but I think that's one of the, the, the delights of it, that, that it's quite flyaway. It doesn't have the attack of... Big Mouth Strikes Again on the same album. Mm. But I think mm. when you take it together with the B-sides uh, of, of this record, Asleep and Rubber Rings, it really proves the depth and breadth of their songwriting at this time. I don't know if you know those songs, but no. Asleep is this incredibly haunting suicide ballad, essentially. And Rubber Rings is this incredibly perceptive lyric about what it is to be a pop star who knows that they will one day soon be discarded by the people who love them. Um, the Rubber mm-hmm. Rings, of course, being records, you know, the, the circular seven-inch single. Yeah. They're both fantastic songs, and Rubber Rings particularly, great bass line by the late, great Andy Rourke, um, yeah. R.I.P. Oh, first of the gang to die. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah, indeed. Um, who, who we see on this clip. It's lovely to see him on there. Mm. This song, um, yeah, I, I, I don't suppose it, it would be uh, Exhibit A if I was trying to convince somebody of the genius of the Smiths. But it's it's part of the picture, definitely. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah, he is second-guessing the way in which he's perceived by the media and the public in, in the lyric here. And and that's always where things start to curdle with any band, when they are too obsessed with their own perception. Mm. But is it? Because, I mean, look at Public Enemy, you know, Don't Believe the Hype mm. and stuff like that. Mm. Or the first Public Image single. Yeah, mm. but maybe with Morrissey, it was always there. Mm. You know, uh, David mentioned Heaven Knows I'm Miserable Now, and that's almost self-parodic, and that's mm. what their third single... I think. Mm. Well, it's his own fault that he's not getting more media attention. Go on Live Aid. Go <laughs> go out with Linda Lasada. Uh-huh. Come on, sort yourself oh, out. Oh, but that's exactly it, though. As you well know, that's exactly the point, that he wasn't that guy. And, you know, mm. David said that Morrissey was almost this kind of platonic ideal of mid-80s manhood, that, you know, it was worth aspiring to be. And I, I completely felt that, too. He, he wasn't the healthy, tanned, mainstream ideal of 80s mm. youth. He wasn't no. a typical kind of boy band pretty boy or, or rock god. You know, he's, he's prognathic of chin and heavy of brow. Mm. But it doesn't matter because he's filled with self-love. Mm. I found something quite subversive about the self-regarding vanity of... of you know, the, the way he touches himself so much mm. in this video clip, you know, he's running his hand in his shirt, which is open to the navel almost. Mm. And men who look like him are, are not meant to fetishise their own bodies, not meant to love their own bodies mm. in that way. And I, I found that absolutely fantastic. Yeah. More memorable to me than this video is the performance they did of this song on Top of the Pops, where yeah. he's got Marry Me written on his neck in eyeliner. Mm. It's this guy who's not classically handsome, or some people would say he was, but uh, he, he wasn't the 80s ideal of handsome. You know, he wasn't George Michael or Morton Harkett or something like that. I think Morrissey would have married himself if it was legal, definitely. Yeah, yeah, fair point. Oh, yeah. He's, but he's, he's wearing a very nice blue sort of paisley patterned shirt in, mm. in this. I was quite mm. envious of that. And he does have a hairless chest, which I don't know if he shaved it. He's, I think he's quite hairy now. Mm. It comes with age. But I just think as, as a sort of an exhibit of non-masculine manhood, mm. but not being ashamed of that. Yeah. Mm. And, and actually, in, in a weird way, sort of fetishising yourself. I thought it was, it was, it was a wonderful 
beautiful thing. I do look back and wonder why I loathe the Smiths so much. And I think it might be something to do with the fact that people expected me to be a Smiths fan because I, I, by this time I'd become this really quiet, introspective youth who kept to himself. Yeah. But people probably just thought, you must like the Smiths. And I'd just go, no, what the fuck are you going on about? Mm. Yeah, I can see that. Because n- not only did I not like the Smiths, I, I didn't want to hang around with people who liked the Smiths either. <laughs> Yeah. In case I caught Smiths off them. You know what I mean? <laughs> like I've said before, by the time I was at college a few years later, you know, there'd be mm. Prince people and Morrissey people, and I always wanted to be around the Prince people. Mm. Well, this, this is the cruel irony of it. I thought, you know, how do you get from here to the rest of the world? Uh, when you want to live, how do you start? Where mm. do you go? Who do you need to know? And all of my hopes in that line were directed towards getting out of Barry and going to university. And I thought once I got to university yeah. in London, I'd be surrounded by all these amazingly erudite people who were probably Smiths fans yeah. well guess what I did get to university I was surrounded by Smiths fans and they're a bunch of cunts mm. <laughs> they're really yeah. like just terrible people and just all my hopes came crashing down really oh. yeah. and nowadays of course they're even worse the, the, the people who will still defend to the death anything Morrissey says you know that rump of his fan base who's still there are almost by definition the worst people on earth mm. and they'll probably come for me now when they hear this but I don't give a fuck yeah. Yeah. They, they are terrible the thing now is though of, of course the only way in which it's possible to like the smiths or to enjoy the smiths for a lot of people is to say oh well i always preferred johnny marr yeah mm. and of course yeah sure johnny marr boy genius mm. an absolute musical genius and he look he, he is a boy he looks so so young in this yeah. clip I, I guess he was still only about i don't know 20 he's or about, something he's about my age yeah yeah. yeah, so there's that kind of tendency of, of, of people now to say, oh, no, I never liked Morrissey. I never liked him anyway. Mm. It was always about Marr for me. But I remember the time, I was always deeply suspicious of people who said that. People who said, oh, yeah, that band, The Smiths, they're not bad. I like the guitarist, mm. you know, because it's basically a way of saying, uh, yeah, don't worry, I don't like that weird puff they've got mm. as a lead singer. Yes. There was that idea among, among lads. And, and I was very, I, I, I'm not going to rewrite history. I was very, very pro-Morrissey. Mm-hmm. I hung on his every word um i thought only he understood me and perhaps only i understood him and uh, earlier this year 1985 i went to see my second smith's concert right. at chippenham gold diggers I, th- I think i've spoken about my first smith's gig in cardiff heckles in bear yeah yeah uh, in, a, in a previous chart music but this one i just remember being transfixed by morrissey i remember standing in the middle of this whirling seething mass of humanity in in the mosh pit and i was just standing still and morrissey actually noticed me and and he thought there was something up you know like and and he sort of like looked at me and sort of did a thing with his eyebrows like tilted his head like you're right kind of thing Mm. right everyone else is moving i'm just stood staring and it must have looked really quite odd but yeah it, it it was almost uh, religious for, for me to, to, to be that close to him. And obviously my view of him as a human being has changed dramatically mm. now. But I, I'm not going to lie and say it wasn't how it was. No, I think that's... I think, yeah, absolutely, yeah. There was a tremendous validity about Morrissey. Mm. It's interesting that lyric that you picked out, which I think, you know, that's a very fair point, but I think for me it shows that part of Morrissey's appeal was to kind of preserve that period prior to him being remotely famous at all, you know, yeah. like late adolescence or whatever. Yeah, yeah. It's almost in a sense... Because Coming as famous as he did is a slight inconvenience, you know, in the kind of narrative that he's often presenting because, you know, I think he wants to preserve perpetually that sense of adolescent exile from things. Mm. I think Simon Reynolds, when he interviewed Morrissey for Melody Maker, it would have been around the first solo albums, I guess, 88. Mm. He asked Morrissey, what are you going to do when you've exhausted the diaries? 
Yeah, and yeah, I right. think I think you know Morrissey kind of accepted that's a pretty good point, and it's essentially what what you're saying mm. now. Yeah. yeah, and and of course the answer is that he'll start writing twee whimsical songs about carry on actors or, or whatever it is you know mm. i mean this ineffectual songwriting of, of the 90s and i think a, a little smith's affection from the 80s carried him a long long way mm. with very little justification in in the 90s i probably clung on longer than i should have done but just stuff like dagenham dave or whatever yeah you know, the one for me fatty yeah whatever, fuck off yeah and that's even before he really outs himself as a you know, well, we we all know what he is. We don't charge yeah. to get sued. Hmm. But one of the things that that I really valued uh, about the Smiths, and this is also tangentially related to this record, is that they were a group that came with a cultural hinterland. Mm. Previous bands had done that for me. You had Dexies, you know, singing about Oscar Wilde and Brendan Behan and all of that, yeah. And 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 you had the Style Council doing a similar thing. There was so much to unpack. Mm. With with, mm. with their records, you know, the record sleeves with how all these kind of quotes from French philosophers and stuff like that. Yeah. And the Smiths come along and, and th- there was so much of that with them. Obviously, the, the two big ones being James Dean and Oscar Wilde. But this record sleeve has Truman Capote on it. And uh, right. I didn't know who he was. Mm. And stuff like that fires your curiosity. It's like, OK, well, it's it's a nod to you as a fan of the Smiths. All right, well, if you want to know where we're coming from, investigate this stuff and dig into it. Mm. And it only took me... 40 years and I did I during lockdown I read Music for Chameleons the short story uh, mm. um, uh, collection by Trim Capote which, which I, I I did enjoy although I admit I only bought it because it shares a title with a Gary Newman song mm. but the value of that stuff can't be underestimated particularly to a, a, a sort of voracious teenage mind yeah absolutely I think that all of that is true and I think there is as I say the tremendous validity you know to the Smiths but retrospectively I think kind of what probably galls me the most is seeing how they broke the relationship between I don't know white, post-punk, whatever, and black music, which had yeah. been something that had been right there at the beginning, you know, of punk, you know, like punky reggae park, et cetera, et cetera, you know, the whole reggae, the funk thing, the pop group, certain ratio, you know, that they'd always, you know, this strong relationship. Well, I know what you're mm. saying, but, but it is in there. I mean, you know, this charming man has, has got a Motown oh, bass yeah. line and, and uh, you know, there, there are bits of sheep mm. like guitar on Big Mouth Strikes Again. In fact, Johnny Marr named his son Niall after Niall Rogers, you know, and mm. there is all that in there. But it's not as kind of overt as it had been before. I mean, you know, yeah, you're right, there are all these kind of slightly motown shows, and of course it's always like, if it is black music, it has to be like very, very historical black music, you know, there's mm. no relationship mm. at all with contemporary black music. No, they, they, they weren't doing what, you know, the Jesus and Mary Chain yeah. or Susie and the Banshees were yeah. doing, which is sort of incorporating hip-hop beats into them music yeah. there's never going to be no 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 and it's you know and it's just the statements that he made about black music you know as, as we know about diana ross and reggae and in vile and the conspiracy yeah, to yeah. Get, you know so it's, it was all of that as well what's it going to be like when morrissey dies is he going to go back to being the morrissey of the mid 80s like elvis became mm. the elvis of the late 50s I, 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 I think i think the word but Will, will happen a lot, mm. you know. There'll be 280 character tweets or, or however many characters you can put on Mastodon or uh, what's, what's the new one called? Uh, threads, yeah. where, where people say, blah, 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 racism, blah, 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 but... And then, yeah. then, then they sort of like say how much she meant to them. I, I think it'll be light and shade. It'll, it'll be it'll be both sides of it. Hmm. Anything else to say? I've remembered exactly where I was when I watched the uh, "Marry Me" performance of the boy with the right. thorn inside. Um, at our school, we had French assistants, assistants, um, who would mm. would uh, come over on I guess their sort of gap year from from uni in France and help to teach us French. There were two of them: one that taught me in the lower sixth, one that taught me in the upper sixth. That ended up being a couple um Corinne and Didier and right. uh, 
Because I was, you know, uh, in the upper sixth, you, you get to that sort of stage where you kind of become mates with your teachers. Mm. And because they were so close to me in age, I guess they were only in their early 20s themselves, they kind of took me under their wing. And, and one time they, they invited me around uh, for dinner at their flat, which Ooh. was uh, above a shop in High Street in Barry. And it was the first time I tasted exotic food like um, couscous and polenta. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Imagine that in Barry. But Didier was a massive Billy Idol fan right and uh, in a way and he was such a nice guy Didier uh, and uh, I, I don't want to mock him I don't really want to mock Billy Idol mm. but Billy Idol is very much a French person's idea of what is cool mm. again do you know mm. what I mean mm. it's that pop in your collar thing yes. whereas the Smiths for me were in a way more rock and roll uh, and more subversive but as a Frenchman I don't think Didier could completely understand that mm. I think that you know the Smiths and Morrissey do have their constituency in America among Anglo files but mm. I wonder if it's it's a, a very very British thing to see what Morrissey did as being subversive and indeed rock and roll you mm. know that that idea that the way to be rock and roll is to abscond and renege and drop out of the aesthetic of the dominant society mm. whereas I think yeah my, my friend Didier was like why isn't he wearing a leather wristband and going <laughs> <laughs> we had assistance also in um, our, our school to help us with our French in the upper six um, but we also had assistance who helped us with our German um, same sort of right, thing yeah. so I remember going to a party of various assistants in Leeds you know because like you say Simon says he can be kind of mates with us and, and uh, got talking to one of them, I think his name was, I don't know, Rolf. And, um, and he said, I'm from Hamburg. And said, Hamburg, wow, you must know all about Faust then. And he says, Faust, I do not know of this. I'm only interested in the important groups like Rainbow. <laughs> Fair enough. Fuck it out. So the following week, the boy with the thorn in his side trudged up five places to number 23, which got them a studio performance on Top of the Pops next week, but then dropped five places and was out of the top top 40 in a fortnight. They dropped out of sight for the rest of the year, resurfacing in the summer of 1986 with the follow-up single Big Mouth Strikes Again, which got to number 26 in June of that year. Mid-twenties again, come on. Here's a follow-up to In Between Days, up 12 places to number 24 this week. The Cure and Close to Me. Formed in Notre Dame Middle School, Crawler, in 1973, Obelisk were a five-piece rock band which featured Mick Dempsey on guitar, Lol Tolhurst on drums and Robert Smith on piano, who played a one-off gig at the end of term review, like Manslaughter. <laughs> Three years later, Smith and Dempsey joined a local band called Malice, who were led by Martin Creaser and did assorted sets that covered Jimi Hendrix, David Bowie and the Alex Harvey band, but when punk came a knocking, they changed their style and their name to Easy Cure after a song written by Tolhurst. After winning a battle of the bands in spring of 1977, they signed a deal with the German company Hansa, like Japan did in the same year, but the label wanted them to do covers, hated their demo of their proposed debut single Killing an Arab, and the partnership dissolved in March of 1978. 
After myriad lineup changes, we saw Smith taking over on vocals. The group, now called The Cure, recorded a new demo, which found itself in the hands of Chris Parry of Polydor, who signed them to the Polydor offshoot Fiction Records and became their manager, finally releasing Killing an Arab in the last week of 1978, where it failed to chart. After putting out their first LP, Three Imaginary Boys, in mid-1979 and supporting Susie and the Banshees on their UK tour, with Smith eventually doubling up on guitar for the Banshees when their guitarist walked out, they made their first dent on the UK charts and their first ever Top of the Pops performance in May of 1980, when A Forest got to number 31. By this point, they'd become a regular fixture on the charts, and this single, the follow-up to In Between Days, which got to number 25 in August, is the second cut from their 6LP, The Head on the Door, which came out last month and entered the album chart at number 7. It entered the chart a fortnight ago at number 44, moved up 8 places to number 36, and this week it soared 12 places to number 24. And here's an all-too-brief clip of the video, which was directed by Tim Pope, who has been the band's go-to video bloke since 1982, filmed at Beachy Head. And fucking hell, I felt like I was given an oral exam to master price there. Did I get anything wrong, Simon? I think he did a really good job of summarising the, the lineup changes in their early days, which is actually uh, way more complex than that. And I ended up writing, mm. you know, probably about six pages just on that in the book because it's ridiculous. Yeah. There are all these people coming and going as lead singer, somebody called Gary X, who's, uh, who's, right. whose whereabouts nobody knows anything of. Peter O'Toole, <laughs> no, not that one, and so on. Who <laughs> fucking hell? Yeah, and, and Mark Chichagno, who, who again is sort of lost to history, and all, all these kind of members of the Crawley, Hawley Mafia. Right. It's, it's ridiculous complex but I suppose it is in in small towns that you know where there's only a handful of people who are into music and people who own a drum kit are even more kind of prized so everybody mm. ends up playing in each other's bands you know and yeah I think there are anything up to 15 people involved fucking hell so well done on making it sort of tolerable in your preamble there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean I think this is really really good actually I mean you know you've got that kind of soft muted mm. feel in the production you've got that lovely little glowing keyboard line and of course you know the way it anticipates George Michael's faith in ripping off the old Bo Diddley riff and, uh. in, and in singing about faith as well. And it's a really good video. Um, and I guess that's a time where there's enough money yeah. sloshing around in the industry that the top tier could make videos like this, which, of course, therefore tended to exclude mm. like these little two-bob indie outfits from the charts who simply couldn't budget for what was becoming a prerequisite for any sort of chart impact. I mean, that made a huge difference. Back in the late 70s, yeah. spend 100 quid on just recording singles, it would have a chance of charting. But mm. we're very much post all of that, of course, you know, post-MTV and all that. But um, I mean, this video, I mean, an absolute claustrophobe's nightmare. Mm. Yeah. I bet Robert Smith wished he'd call the song Ample Breathing Space or something like that, definitely. <laughs> well away from me. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as for the cure, generally, I was just thinking about why they never absolutely riveted. Yeah. In the early days, I didn't like them as much as Susie and the Banshees, but mm. I liked them a lot more than Bauhaus. That's kind of where I sort of placed them in that scheme of things. Right. I mean, I suppose maybe I just find Robert Smith a little bit kind of floppy and swoony. Wonderfully, 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 wonderfully. Well, you know, but mm. Really, I don't think the reason is any failing on their part. I think it's the same reason why I was never absolutely riveted by the Smiths as a rule, much as I appreciated them. It's just that I think the Cure, the sort of group that invited you, regardless of you know gender orientation, 
to sort of become besotted with them at some level, infatuated, you know, that sort of... And I suppose I was never really mm. up for that sort of relationship, you know, which can tend towards the monomaniacal. Mm. And I just never had space for it because I was just listening to such a huge range of music in the mid-'80s. But, you know, listening to this again and seeing this again, you know, I just wonder if I didn't miss out on something. I mean, obviously, Simon, to celebrate you finishing Curepedium, because we've never done them before, I asked you to pick out a Cure single for this episode. Yeah, yeah. So why this one? Well, this is the song that sealed the deal for me as as a Cure fan. I mean, I'd I'd previously enjoyed and admired them. Um, You know, I, I, um, I suppose I was mostly familiar with their occasional forays into the charts so you know stuff like the love cats that david alluded to there mm. um mm. The, the caterpillar the walk stuff like that um yeah. but um yeah this this song um and I, I guess the album itself the head on the door is kind of where i really fell for them and i mentioned before that i was sartorially under the influence of various people whether it's morrissey or prince or ian asprey around this time well robert smith's definitely part of the picture by now because i'd started mm. i remember turning up to one of the aforementioned house parties wearing eyeliner for the first time i thought oh i'll try this out dare i do it <laughs> you know and uh, and yeah it yeah. seemed to work and i carried on with it and i nagged my mum to knit me a massive baggy mohair <laughs> jumper like what robert smith <laughs> would have worn you know i still got it actually <laughs> not so baggy anymore um but uh, yeah this is what sealed the deal for me but it was only after this and i suppose shortly after this you you get the greatest hits album um standing on a beach that everybody had mm. because if you're a fan of alternative music in the 80s there weren't many greatest hits albums mm. you had once upon a time by susan the banshees you had things like singles going steady by buzzcocks and maybe a few others. I think later on, um, Echo and the Bunny Men, Songs to Learn and Sing. But really, if, if you wanted yeah. sort of bang for your buck, value for money in terms of greatest hits, um, there weren't many. And Standing on a Beach by The Cure was a real kind of primer. And it was the, this single and stuff like this single that made me buy it in the first place. But then it had things on it like The Hanging Garden, which then piques your interest. You think, well, where did that come from? And you end up listening to the album mm. Pornography. Yeah, which for me is their greatest mm. album, and um, yeah, I, I was kind of interested that uh, David wasn't sort of really grabbed by by that. I, I would have thought pornography and faith would have been the two for a fan of, let's say, Joy Division, like like yourself, yeah. that that might have spoken to you a little bit. But, oh, yeah, yeah, no, no, no. I mean, I probably just didn't get around to like buying them, to be honest. Yeah, mm. the thing with me is, that, you know, I've, I've mentioned my love of Motown before, and also my love of Motown derived pop yeah. of the eighties, and The Cure mm. at this point are sort of dabbling with that, really aren't they i mean this is the second single from the head on the door it's the second cure single in a row to have a detectable motown influence you mentioned uh, in between days the the single before it mm. um which has more of a kind of crashing exuberant detroit clatter that's boris williams the drummer he was incredible um, he was you know widely considered their, their best drummer there have been many right. but this single uh it's got that kind of wonky Tamla Motown beat. Robert Smith told Record Mirror that it reminds him of Jimmy Mack. Right. Mm. In Between Days was sort of everything in the kitchen sink thrown in. It was a big sort of Motown production. But on this one, you've only got the very barest rhythmic skeleton of Motown. And yeah. It's got this minimalism. It's got this minimalist sort of punch and snap between Boris Williams and Simon Gallup on bass. It's back and forth. Mm. And it's got this exquisite discipline to it, I think. Mm. And... David mentioned the video and how it takes the lyrics very literally. Mm. The song is 
musical onomatopoeia as well because from the instrumentation and the really excellent production from David Allen that's not the guy sitting on a stool with a glass of whiskey and um, you know one finger missing by the way um, <laughs> and, and Robert's very up close and personal vocal the, the way it's recorded mm. so it sounds like what it is it's a song about claustrophobia yeah. and it sounds airless and desiccated and sort of freeze-dried and oppressively intimate I would say mm. but the thing that opens it up and just gives you that little bit of breathing space is the brass section yeah the brass section absolutely makes it for me right that was um provided by a south end jump jive revival band called rent party right yeah. they play these sort of muffled trombones and trumpets and it makes it sound sort of ragtime doesn't it and mm. a little bit in the same way that the love cats had that kind of aristocats feel to it mm. the brass comes in after every musical phrase almost like an answer to a question and it's just wonderful and that's only on the single version by the way if, if you hear close to me in the context of the head on the door you don't get the brass you don't even get you know there's that creaking hinge at the start yeah. of the single mm. that was actually a sound effect from the video which they then tacked yeah. into the single oh, right. um, so uh, it's missing that it's missing the brass and you, you feel a bit short changed when you hear it on the album mm. and the reason that the brass is there it's because there there was internal disagreement about whether it should even be a single. Right. Which seems, seems mad now, but... God, yeah. Yeah. The, the rest of the band were convinced it would be a hit. Robert wasn't so sure. Um, and he agreed to put out a single only with the addition of a brass section. And that turned out to be a masterstroke, I think. Mm. So, yeah, let's talk about the video, because we all know it so well. You know, the band trapped in a wardrobe on a cliff edge at the third most notorious suicide spot in the world after the Golden Gate Bridge and some wood in Japan. But, you know, loads of other things have happened there. It's where Jimmy crashed his scooter yeah. at the end of Quadrophenia, where it could have landed on David Bowie's JCB in the Ashes to Ashes video. <laughs> and for all we know, it could also be on the same spot where Throbbing Gristle did the cover shoot for 20 Jazz Funk Grace. Yeah. Yes. Sadly, the wardrobe doesn't go off the cliff and then fly off like Chitty Chitty Bang Bang did <laughs> in the same location. But, you know, yeah. we can't have everything. <laughs> no, no. It's not even the only Cure video to feature Beachy Head. Oh, um, really? Well, first of all, because there's the part two of this, because they put out the remix version that came from their mixed-up um, remix album. Uh, oh, yes. And, and there was a video for that, which sort of starts at the bottom of the ocean, but, you know, you, you see the cliff falling off the edge. But also, um, Just Like Heaven by The Cure has a video which is also, it's supposed to be set on Beachy Head, but it was actually recreated in a studio. But nah. um, but yeah, it, it was about a real life um, sort of camping trip that Robert and Mary and and some friends had at Beachy Head. So yeah, it, it, it recurs in sort of Cure mythology quite a lot. Mm. For me though, they were the greatest video band of their generation. Mm. I think the only rivals would be Madness for that. Yeah, the mm. Cure and Madness in the eighties were just always brilliant for videos. I think, and yeah, that that is mainly down to Tim Pope, who I think. If we're looking at the Cure's body of work, he's the other genius in, in this story, I think. Yeah. We've spoken about him before, haven't we, when we did Long Hot Summer by the Style Council? Yes. And I think this is the Cure's best video, despite all that strong competition. It starts um, beachy head in that wardrobe, filled with clothes and filled with the Cure. <laughs> and there is that creak that we then hear on the single. The first face you see is Simon Gallup, and he's all trussed up. Mm. And his mouth is lit from inside by a light bulb. The camera then moves to... Boris Williams and he's clapping out the rhythm and this is the thing they're all using objects instead of instruments so oh a Loltolos to be fair does have this tiny little Casio keyboard mm -hmm. but then on the top shelf you've got Paul Thompson nowadays Pearl Thompson um picking out the notes on an orange plastic comb just tink, tink, yeah like that and then finally he sort of rises up through all the jackets and the shirts and the hangers you've got Robert Smith 
And as he starts singing, you, you've got these finger puppets which represent each member of the band. Yeah. And they're, they're made by Tim Pope's uh, company. It was called Glow. And, and he sort of manhandles them quite roughly, Robert, you know. And then um, every now and then we see the, these external views of the wardrobe teetering on the edge. Mm. And in this episode of Top of the Pops, that is all we see is just the teetering, of course. Yes. In the full video, two minutes in during the trumpet solo, it does topple and, you know, down past the chalky cliff and we see the red and white striped lighthouse and you know onto the rocks below but instead of shattering on impact which you'd expect and killing everyone inside it Mm. miraculously hits the sea and begins filling up with water and and soaking and implicitly drowning everyone within Mm. drowning is a sort of recurring trope in cure songs there's loads of cure lyrics about drowning and yeah i I just think it's a masterclass from tim pope and i think robert's acting performance is, is superb uh, in this because mm. the other members of the band they stay quite neutral mm. quite understated mm. instead of sort of mugging or portraying panic they just look quite calm but he does look kind of traumatised apparently Robert Smith has quite the affinity for water doesn't it uh, according to a Daily Mirror guide published round about this time about where the pop stars go on their holidays we learn that Fish goes to Amsterdam whenever he can uh, Roger Daltrey loves West Island for the trout fishing Holly Johnson spends loads of time in away with his boyfriend Wolfgang and the Lake District is Robert Smith's favourite place where he indulges in a go on water skiing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he used to go to Lake District or Wales. According to the article, the Lake District is also popular with fellow spiky-haired person Howard Jones. Yeah. I can just see Howard Jones and Robert Smith water skiing there. Mm. Yeah. Probably on each other's shoulders. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's funny that there are so many um, Cure songs about drowning that I've actually got mm. a, a section in the book just drowning yeah. um uh, yeah. <laughs> it is for drowning it's a recurring yeah. thing but uh, he had plenty of time to think about that in in the video shoot for this because as david alluded to it was, it was kind of horrific mm. by all accounts um right. uh, it, it was robert's least favorite cure video to make and, and partly that was just the sheer discomfort of being in water for mm. such a long time they, they filmed it in this huge tank filled with a thousand gallons of water mm. Ooh, yeah. and the oh, state yeah. of the water didn't help i mean first of all he's thinking about dying a slow painful death the whole time just being in the water but then the tank was filled from a fire engine and the water in the fire engine had been sitting there for two and a half weeks and um, everyone was ill after that apparently um to make matters worse (laughs) lol tolhurst had been for a curry the night before oh no uh, yeah uh, with toxic results as you can imagine um this is i've got a (laughs) quote from tim pope this is what tim pope said later Lol's bowels were a problem in a very confined space. (laughs) Suddenly, I saw the crew retract and the band all shot over the other side of the studio. But Lol was just standing there with his bestial look on his face, grinning, (laughs) and I had to go outside and throw up. Fucking hell. But yeah, the the, the video was, was rarely shown on TV, certainly in full. Uh, there, mm. There's a myth that the BBC banned it. But everyone knew it. I, this is it. How do we all know it? Yeah. I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I sort of spent my 20s in the company of people who had the VHS of the Best of the Cure, so we'd just seen it on mm. there. But yeah, it was on MTV on heavy rotation, but we didn't have MTV in Britain. No. Yeah, so... Yeah. But it, it does seem so familiar, maybe just from tiny little clips like, like this one. But yeah, Robert reckoned, presumably, the BBC was scared it would incite kids to, yes. to climb into wardrobes <laughs> and then fling themselves off cliffs. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, little finger puppets of themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Talking of illness, um, I mean, this is only in the breakers, and, and they never get to perform it in the Top of the Pop studio. Mm. But that's a place that Robert Smith probably wants to stay away from for a bit, judging on their last appearance. Article in the Daily Mirror last August. The cure spiky-haired singer Robert Smith was recovering last night from a stomach complaint, which has laid him up for nearly a week. Robert was struck down after celebrating the band's top 20 single in between days last week. After performing the song on top of the pops, he had a few pints in the BBC bar before really letting rip in a Chinese restaurant, says an aide for the group. He was violently ill the next day, but we ruled out alcoholic poisoning. Anyone who can drink 10 Perno and Blacks can drink anything. Right. <laughs> He's not been well in 1985. He's been quite a stressful year because according to another Daily Mirror article I dug up entitled Love Cures a Nightmare it reads a vivid recurring nightmare turned cure lead singer Robert Smith into a nervous wreck now as the group rocket through their charts with their brilliant single Close to Me he has found the perfect remedy by falling in love with a nurse called Mary It sounds silly, but I dreamed again and again that a plate glass window would drop down on me on Valentine's Day, injuring me horribly. Then I dreamed that the accident would end my life on April the 21st, my birthday. The dream terrified me and resulted in me lying awake at night, sweating. Robert was so distressed that he said he would drink himself senseless every night to forget about them. I don't think it mattered what I did because I wouldn't be alive much longer. When February the 14th came around, I went through the whole day feeling very anxious, but obviously nothing happened again. Just like Chris Needham seeing his own gravestone in a dream. <laughs> a fairly big gravestone, let us remember. Yes. It's a oh, yeah. sloppy well, journalism actually, yeah. there saying that uh, he's found a remedy by falling in love with a nurse called Mary. They were together since they were mm. 14. It's not just these, they haven't no. just met. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, just going back to what you were saying, Simon, about the whole Motown thing, that's really, really interesting that he sort of thinks about Jimmy Mack because it's such a kind of an oblique relationship mm. with Motown because I kind of felt that at times in the 80s, pop was a bit overdetermined by Motown, mm. you know, and you had the whole Phil Collins can't hurry love thing and it almost seemed to be a sort of reproach on contemporary black music and I kind of really resented that. I mean, you got that, but also in terms of the production as well, it's really, really good and you really sort of notice the stark contrast in this between that kind of sort of big, slightly cliched, big boxy sort of Trevor Hornish type production that's kind of very, very prevalent elsewhere in 1985, mm. you know. So I think, again, I think that's really, really appealing. Yeah, and it's a Cure's second most sampled song, right. which is quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, Lady Sovereign, Afro Man, Young Blood. there's 21 different artists have used close to me. So Fucking there's hell. obviously something about that sort of rhythm section of it that, that appeals to people. Mm. Yeah. Um, it's interesting you saying that uh, that year might have been a particularly traumatic and terrible year for Robert. It wasn't his worst. His worst was, or, or maybe his best in some ways as well, was 83. Mm. I've got a whole section called 1983, Robert's maddest year, Robert's craziest year <laughs> in the book. Because, and, and it starts in, in late uh, 82 and carries on through to May of 84 because, it, you know, it's all the same narrative. But what happened was he got himself into three bands at the same time. Right, yes. So um, he's, he's formed this sort of um, spin-off supergroup with Steve Severin called The Glove. Mm. He's um, a member of the band 
Banshees again, you know, for the second time. And this time he wants to make an actual album with them. So he's recording their album Hyena, right. um, as well as making the, the live album Nocturne. Uh, he's still in The Cure and they're making their album The Top. And he's doing various side projects like, you know, um, making a song with uh, Mark and the Mambas. Right. He's touring with all these different bands. Um, when when he was making The Top and Hyena, The Top by The Cure and Hyena by The Banshees, he was travelling back and forth between um, Eel Pie Studios and uh, in London and Genetic Studios in Reading, um, sort of doing right. back-to-back sessions, like not sleeping, basically. Mm. He got on his bike and he looked for work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> he ended up having to quit the Banshees, really pissing them off, but he had to quit the Banshees mm. in uh, early 84 because his doctor basically just took one look at him and said, look, if you carry on doing this, you're going to die, mm. you know. But... On the other hand, he made loads of amazing records in that in that year. So yeah, I had a weird relationship with the Cure. I mean, as soon as they came on the radio, somewhere, I'd just go, Ugh, and then I'd stop and think, why have I done that? This is a fucking tune. Yeah. It's odd. I, I, I probably pinned them down as a golf band, and I didn't like golf bands. I like golfs, but I didn't like the music they listened to. Mm. Well, the thing is, they got it from both sides because they made these pop singles. Um, a oh, lot yeah. of goths thought, oh, they're not a real goth band. They're, they're the soft option because they make these pop records but it's just because they'd gone so far with the album pornography which they described as the ultimate fuck off record Mm. its most famous song probably 100 years starts with the line it doesn't matter if we all die you know (laughs) and it's just this nihilistic record they couldn't take that any further so they sort of you know go and make let's go to bed the walk and the love cats these sort of quite frivolous pop singles Mm. and they've always flitted back and forth between those two extremes and probably their their best albums you know for me things like kiss me kiss me kiss me are the albums where there's a bit of both yeah. on there but yeah if, if you were a, v- a very serious goth in, into the sisters and Bauhaus and the Nephilim and whatever else those sort of people would sneer at the cue and say, oh they're soft mm. of course at this time and I remember because I hung around a load of goths I mean the goths goth especially- expert David, David Bogus. <laughs> I know it was bogus or not no but in America if you were goth yeah I'm a goth I'm a goth and I'm goth I'm proud of it goth to the max mm. goth all the way but in the UK it was all oh we're not goths we're not goths you know <laughs> So they've been a bit weird, like British goths condemning the cure for portraying the spirit of goth, because, of course, well, we're not goth either. You know, so you've got a fucking spider tattoo on your neck. You've got your hair in them. Mm-hmm. The one weird thing about goths, that they were in denial about being goths. I mean, mods weren't like that. It's, you know, I'm not a mod. Mod? But you're on a fucking <laughs> scooter. You know, it's just mm, very weird. Yeah. Very weird. Yeah, it's, it's pretty much how you spot a goth, is they will yeah. say, I'm not a goth. Yeah. 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 You know, I know that's the logic of the witch's ducking stool, that if they say they're a witch, they're a witch. If they deny it, well, just duck them anyway. Mm. And if they drown, well, they're dead, you know. Yeah, yeah. So that that's kind of how it is with God in snake bites. Yeah, yes. yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I, I think The Cure can't really deny being a, a gothic band, even mm. though he mm. has denied it. And other times he's admitted being this kind of figurehead. They went to the Batcave Club, for fuck's sake. They were hanging around there. They were mm. part of the whole thing. You know? yeah. uh, they're definitely the gateway drug for yes. goths, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a good way of putting it. For a lot of the youth. Definitely, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I was never a goth, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Which means he was. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Maybe the reason they weren't seen as a golf band was because they could knock out tunes. Yeah, that's a crime. Banger after banger after banger. They're, they're too pop. Mm. It wasn't just stentorian drones. Yeah. yeah. I mean, really, looking back on it now, I equate The Cure with being in student discos years after the event and the Love Cats coming on and all these people just getting up and dancing and me going, oh, yeah. should I? 
I shouldn't be here. I don't belong here. <laughs> By the way, in the early 80s, whatever, all the goths I knew did the chicken dance. Yes. Did you do the chicken dance? You know, it wasn't just, you know, maybe it's a Northern Stroke Nottingham thing. I don't know. But I've heard other people say, what the fuck's a chicken dance? Yeah, come on. Yeah, demonstrate. Yeah. You know, of course, they think I was taking the piss, but no. Demonstrate now, David, in words to the pop crazy youngsters. Well, it's just a sort of, you know, you sort of flap your arms in a kind of, well, I suppose a chicken-like way as if attempting to take flight. You know, if elbows out, you know. There we go. Um, Simple as that, yeah. kids. By the time I arrived on the goth scene, it was more about this kind of gothic two-step where you'd, you know, do two steps forward and two steps back while flinging your arms <laughs> in the air in sort of at special moments in the song. You'd sort of throw these mystical shapes with your hands in the air. Yes. That was the sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like people did at New Model Army gigs. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And if there was a smoke machine, all the better. Picked up by the ravers a few years later. Yeah, right, exactly. Fucking hell, the rave goth link needs <laughs> to be examined a bit more. Oh, listen... That actually happened. You, you might be joking, but you know, glow stick goth became a thing. And of course, I, it did. That, yeah, that's, that's kind of when I when I lost interest. To be honest, I, yeah. I wasn't having that. That video of the goth youth dancing and someone slapped Thomas the Tank Engine <laughs> over the top. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anything else to say? No, amazingly. No. <laughs> Buy the no. book. Read more, read more yes. about it, yeah. <laughs> so the following week, Close to Me stayed at number 24 and would get no higher, ending a run of four singles on the bounce, getting into the top 20. I think if we had asked the pop craze youngsters to guess mm. which chart position Close to Me by The Cure got to, they'd have gone way higher than mm. number 24. God, yeah, yeah. 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 Because this is this is such you know it's like immortal iconic universally loved Cure song mm, yes you know, it's probably if you ask people to name a Cure song this is probably in the top three yeah mm. and it only got to number twenty four it's extraordinary isn't it yeah I suppose it just had a long afterlife yeah yeah however a remix of Close to Me was put out in nineteen ninety and entered the charts at number fifteen in November of that year eventually getting to number thirteen. The follow-up, a remix and re-recording of their second single, Boys Don't Cry, got to number 22 in May of 1986, and they'd have five more top 40 hits before the 80s ran out. Talking of breakers, this next song was a breaker a couple of weeks ago. This week is at number 22 in the charts, and they're here in the top of the pop studio. It's Renee and Angela, and I'll be good. Back to Davis, the Bisto kid, standing in front of the wrought iron and tube lighting. There's some sort of staining on his lapel, presumably caused by one of the maidens of the studio floor laying her head on his chest, as he tells us how <laughs> prescient the breaker's section is, because here comes one of its alumni, I'll Be Good, by Renee and Angela. Born in St. Louis in 1955, Angela Winbush was a part-time gospel singer who recorded a demo in 1977, which was heard by the New York DJ Gary Bird, who passed it on to his mate Stevie Wonder, who invited her to move to Los Angeles and join his backing singers, Wonderlove. While she was in LA that year, she linked up with a local singer called Renee Moore, and they began a career as a duo with a songwriting side gig for the likes of Janet Jackson, Rufus and Shaka Khan, and Odyssey. 
After signing a deal with Capitol Records and notching up a string of hits on the Billboard R&B chart throughout the first half of the 80s, they moved to Mercury earlier this year and their first single on the new label, Save Your Love for Number One, was their first strike on the charts, getting to number 66 in June of this year. This is the follow-up, which entered the charts at number 54 in the first week of September and took two weeks to get to number 31, which led to an appearance in the top of the pop studio a fortnight ago and a seven-place jump to number 24. This week it's jumped another two places to number 22 and here they are again. Again, well, chaps, I have to admit that this totally passed me by back in 1985, and it kind of did again when I watched this episode again 38 years later, mainly because of what we're seeing on stage. Mm. Rene's costume, fucking hell. Yeah. It's Purple Rain costume, isn't it? Yeah. He's taking off prints. It's blue instead of purple, yeah. but there's that. that blue he's got the, the rough sleeves and he's got the yeah. frothy cravat thing. Yeah. You're trying to be Prince, mate. What's going off? Yeah. Unnecessary, really, you know, because they've kind of got their own identity, yeah. If Lenny Henry was going to take off Prince yeah. with Big Ron out of EastEnders in the Chink Huntsbury role, mm. th- th- this is the outfit yeah. he's going to wear, isn't it? Yeah. Talking of Lenny Henry, it appears that Renee's massively influenced by him because in the video, he wears this shiny tiger print jacket, which was beloved of the Zimbabwean comedian Joshua Yarlong. Mm. You know, Katanga, my oh, friend. Oh, yes. Yeah, I'm yes. surprised he didn't dress up as David Bellamy for one of her videos but anyway once you've seen it you cannot take your eyes off it you know Angela might as well be bollock naked as opposed Mm. to the baker foil overshirt with the sleeves hoiked up Mm. that she's chosen to wear with this amazing bouffant it's like Mm. a a quiffy girly mullet plastered with glitter on the side this is the trouble I was listening to this kind of stuff all the time as I've mentioned before but the outfits were always always awful I just had to avert my eyes basically yeah yeah Rene's attention to detail of trying to mimic Prince in Purple Rain extends to violence against women unfortunately yes there is the story that he Mm. hit Angela on stage uh, which Mm. was kind of the beginning of the end for them as a a joke yeah yeah, so he's dressed like a minor member of the revolution. Um, yes. But um, you would have thought, because I was so obsessed with Prince, I'd have thought, oh, brilliant, this is for me. Mm. And, you know, I, I might have made it sound earlier as if me and my mates were just lapping up black American pop willy-nilly. But mm. if Cameo and Colonel Abrams were willy, then this is nilly, I'm afraid. <laughs> uh, it, it does nothing for me. I mean, for what is nominally a modern soul record, it's cold mm. and soulless to me. It's got a similar kind of register to... The, do you remember Loose Ends, that Brit funk band? Yes. They had this kind of ding, 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 ding kind of noise that was their recurring motif. Yeah, hanging on a string. Mm. Oh, tune. Right, see, I didn't like that stuff. It just froze me out. It just sounded cold. Yeah. But I feel weird saying that because sometimes I like chill in in a record but mm. I suppose it all feels very professional I mean you've you've spoken about their backstory they they were jobbing songwriters they're basically um, a shit Ashford and Simpson in in mm. that respect aren't they but yeah yeah um it it didn't didn't really work for me um how about you David I mean I definitely think that this is the best ever duo whose name begins with Rene and dot dot yes. ever to appear on top of the pops <laughs> yes. and to record a song with the words save your love in the title you know I think at yes. least say that, that much. would have confused yeah. a lot of people well, is it yeah. 
So my, my ex, Dara's mum, Roshi, she's doing this show up in Edinburgh at the festival called um, Ramalama mm. Ding Dong, just to plug it a bit. And uh, at one mm. point, she makes a reference to black lace, except when she does the read-through, she keeps calling him black grape by mistake. I mean, you know, oh, nice. I mean, that's kind of understandable, but more so black grape. Well, imagine black grape doing Do the Congo. Well, exactly. It's, it's like, you know, more so black grape had recorded a song called Agadoo, very unlike the original yeah. Agadoo, but purely coincidental use of the same verbal motif, you know. Imagine Black Lace doing England's Irie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, doesn't bear thinking about. Well, no, I mean, it's, I think we've got the whole Colonel Abrams situation in reverse here because I did like this. I, I think she's really, really good. I mean, you know, you mentioned that she started mm. off with Wonderlove, you know, Stevie Wonder's backing singers, and, and that's a great foundation course in, like, electric funk and composition. Oh, yeah, you can't be shit if you're in Wonderlove. I mean, this is it, you know, she's connecting from right back in the day, the kind of inauguration of electricity in, in funk, you know, right through to the present day, you know, where she's getting sampled or whatever. Mm. And I think she does probably a, a great deal more props than she ever got, actually. And, and as Simon alluded to, yeah, the reason they didn't uh, continue as a duo is probably because of the uh, old Prince Boy's twatty violence. Mm. I mean, I think one of the particular aspects I like about this is this sort of viciously viscous synth bass thing chomping all the way through it. I mean, you know, for me, mm. this is serious stuff, you know, with a decent pedigree. And I think it's the sort of thing that gets... You know, definitely gets harked back to. Like the SOS band. Mm. This is something that I like now. Yeah. But back in the day, I would have just conked my nose up it because, you know, synths, oh, that's not proper music. Yeah, but mm. SOS band, I mean, you know, Just Be Good To Me is this all-conquering steamroller of a record. You know, this, yeah. you know absolutely yeah. just drives this into the ground, to be honest. I don't think you can even compare the two. Yeah. I mean, both Renee and Angela have synths on stage, but they might as well be an ironing board <laughs> because they remain pretty much unused for about... 90% of the performance, but you know what synths are like, chaps? You know, you, you just push a button and I'll be good comes mm, out. <laughs> Anything else to say? I don't think so. No. So the following week, I'll be good stayed at number 22 and got no further. The follow-up, Secret Rendezvous, was immediately rushed out, but it only got to number 54 in November and they never troubled the chart again. In 1986, the partnership began to crumble when Angela Wimbush linked up with Ronald Isler and was drafted in as a songwriter and co-producer for the Isley Brothers LP, Smooth Sailing, which led to violent disagreements between the two backstage and onstage, particularly during a gig in Cleveland, and they split up, refusing to communicate with each other without attorneys being involved. Moore embarked upon a solo career and would co-write jam for Michael Jackson while Wimbush started her own solo career, continued to work with the Isley Brothers and married Ron Isler and wrote something in the way you make me feel for Stephanie Mills, which is a fucking tune Mm. especially the hip hop remix oh that's astonishing Right now, here's the top ten on video. Six places, two number ten, Colonel Abrams and Trapped. It's the same fucking thing as the Top of the Pops yeah. performance, this video. What, yeah. What's the point of either of them? Weird choice. Ooh, Marillion's dropped two places to number nine this week with Lavender Blue. Singing Dilly Dilly with this look of seriousness on his face. Dilly Dilly! Like, angrily. Taylor's karaoke song. <laughs> Where we are, five places to number eight. Billy Idol, Rebel Yell. 
They're looking good at number 22 this week, says Jordan, still with his hand in his pocket, as Davis introduces a top ten through the medium of video clips. But as Michael Hurl is clearly keen to jam in as many acts as possible, a couple of them get an extended play, and the first one is Rebel Yell by Billy Idol. Born in Stanmore, Middlesex, in 1955, William Broad was relocated to America at the age of two, where he spent four years before his family returned to the UK and moved to Dorking. In 1975, he started an English degree at the University of Sussex, but he only lasted a year and started knocking about with a gang of youths who caught an early gig by the Sex Pistols and started to follow them around. And when Caroline Kuhn devoted an article to them in Sounds when they travelled to Paris to see the Pistols in September of 76, they were given the nickname the Bromley Contingent. Soon afterwards, Broad, who by that time had adopted the name Billy Idol after a negative school report, had become a guitarist of a new band called Chelsea and was encouraged by lead singer Gene October to ditch his glasses, dye his hair blonde and be a bit more rock and roll. However, musical differences set in very quickly and Idol and bassist Tony James fucked off to form Generation X. After three LPs and three top 40 singles, Gen X split up in early 1981 and Idol was immediately persuaded by their manager Bill O'Coin, who was also managing Kiss, to return to America and start a solo career where he was teamed up with the guitarist Steve Stevens and signed to Chrysalis Records. His debut LP, Billy Idol, was put out in May of 1982 to moderate success in the US, but the first cut from it, Hot in the City, only got to number 58 for two weeks in September of that year over here. And when this single was belatedly put out in March of 1984, after it got to number 36 on the Billboard chart 11 months earlier, it struggled up to number 62 and no further. He visited the UK in June of that year and reintroduced himself to the pop-crazed youngsters on Radio 1's Round Table, where he immediately necked a bottle of champagne and was escorted from the building after 10 minutes and then (laughs) popped up on top of the pops for the first time in five years, but only in a guest appearance, where Steve Wright asked him what he was doing there and he said... I'm here to rock and roll. (laughs) But he finally landed a hit in Britain with the follow-up, Eyes Without a Face, which got to number 18 in August of 84, which led to Chrysalis relaunching his career in the UK by putting out the remix compilation LP Vital Idol in June of this year. And the lead cut from that, a revamp of his 1982 single White Wedding, got to number six in August. This is the follow-up of sorts, which entered the charts at number 38 in the middle of September, then soared 13 places to number 25. After an appearance in the Top of the Pop studio, it soared another 12 places to number 13, and this week it's nipped up another 5 places to number 8. And finally, chaps, Billy Idol enters the arena. Mm. 
Yeah, mm. Billy Idol. I mean, he's root daft, as no one says up north. But it's, you know, <laughs> in, I mean, it's it's kind of a two Ronnies take on punk. You know, it's kind of Sid Snot, mm. whatever. But it's, I mean, I guess he's just got this kind of slickness, which I guess gave him a, a particular American appeal. You know, that kind of lack of finish, and I dare say the French. But mm. Um, mm. but you know, and I think the British audiences might have been a little bit more sceptical of it. It's odd because, as Al mentioned, he's the real thing. He's part of the Bromley contingent. Yes, but it's a bit like I don't know how Jones turning out to have like recorded with early Cabri Voltaire back in the mid-70s or something, you know, because it's just weird because he's essence of punk cliché, you know, yes. and, I mean, and a dream of punk, whereas, in fact, by and large, actual punks at the time were dressing in flares, had centre partings in their hair, crap jumpers, and, you know, little scabs with the try to put safety pins in the, in the noses. Mm. Yeah. I think then is now that the whole idea of any sort of rock music would be to take Billy Idol as your point of departure and depart as far away as possible from him. <laughs> he says as much to me about my life as Disco Tex and the Sexolettes said to Morrissey's, you know. <laughs> but th- then again, but that's redeeming features, they really are. I mean, for thing, I what I'd really like about it is he's he's the same age here as is the Billy Idol he plays in The Wedding Singer, you know, that 1985 mm. self. And, you know, and I did enjoy that film, I've got to confess, you know. But um, right. anyway. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I hated Billy Idol at the time because mm. he'd gone over to America and sold out to my mind. Mm. Never mind that punk actually started in America and never mind that Billy Idol was actually fucking there in 1976. And never mind even more that I wasn't and had never been a punk. It just felt wrong to mm. me. I mean, I wasn't aware of the term at the time because he didn't exist, but if I had done, I would have dismissed him as a Quincy punk. <laughs> An example of Americans getting punk all wrong long yes. after the yeah, event, oh, you know, which Quincy, yeah. obviously was named <laughs> after that episode of Quincy yes, MD in 1982 yes. called Next Stop Nowhere, mm. you know, where Jack Klugman takes time out from making police cadets vomit on the floor to investigate <laughs> the know. death of a punk lad at a club and deduces that the nihilist worldview of punk had a factor in his death but not as much as the ice pick that someone hit him in the back with <laughs> yeah that's got to go on the old youtube list that yeah. but discounting the punks on the punk cd oh, yes. of the 90s mm. which had fucking karma chameleon and mm. hold me now by the thompson twins in their <laughs> punk <laughs> compilation but the greatest quincy punks of all were pain the punk band in that episode of Chips. Did you ever see yes. that? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No. Oh, Simon. Fucking hell. There are a load of meat-headed jocks with Mohicans who nick a load of instruments off a new wave band called Snow Pink, and they throw one of those bases off a roof onto a car, and then they enter a battle of the band's contest and trash the club toilets before singing their song, I Dig Pain, which is fucking mint. It goes... Get a hunk of concrete and stick it in my face. <laughs> I like to play with razor blades. <laughs> I hate the human race. <laughs> I dig pain, the pain in my brain. Uh. The smashing, the bashing, the clawing, the trashing, <laughs> the giving, the getting, and the total blood letting drive me insane. <laughs> I dig pain. Pain. You've watched this a lot. I know, I was going to say, yeah, yeah. It's the classic what kids think punk sounds mm. like song, you know, along with Gob On You by Mel Smith. <laughs> yeah. You know, but luckily Chip sort it all out and the episode ends with Ponch as special guest at the Battle of the Bands singing Celebration by Cool and the Gang. So, yeah, disco has won again. <laughs> it's like, uh, do you remember that episode of The Sopranos where Adriana starts managing a grunge band and uh, they're called Defiler. Right, yes. Get out of my 
away and don't be so gay because I'm going <laughs> to defile, defile you. <laughs> yeah, this whole genre is something that, that really is, is uh, of interest to me when mm. um, mainstream film or mainstream TV uh, tries to do kind of alternative culture and gets it yes. slightly mm. wrong. You know, like if there's a scene in uh, Beverly Hills 90210 where, the, where they go to a nightclub, like a bit of an edgy, sketchy nightclub. Or mm. I think there's, um, there's Crocodile Dundee, you know, you know when yes. you go to a nightclub. Terminator 2, you know, whenever that happens, it's, it's always an absolute joy. It's always a bit mm. like the Baby Sham advert, you know, hey, I'll yes. have a Baby Sham. <laughs> everyone's wearing fucking <laughs> leather and stuff, mm. you know, and everyone's like super mean and nasty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And the punk band in Milk's got a lot of bottle. <laughs> exactly. Fronted by Daniel Peacock, I believe. Mm. All right. So, yeah, to my mind then, you know, Billy Idol was Rod Vicious. You know, he <laughs> crushed punk down into a sneer and a fist. Mm. Yeah, he absolutely did. And The Cure literally pissed all over Billy Idol. I've got to tell you this, right? No. Um, <laughs> I'm going to read to you from Lol Tolhurst's autobiography, Cured, A Tale of Two Imaginary Boys. And uh, the setup for this is that The Cure were on their first national tour as support to Generation X. Right. OK, so, right, here's what Lol has to say about that. Two nights later, the highlight of the tour occurred. I was searching desperately for the gents to relieve myself of several pints of free Gen X lager consumed after the Bristol gig at the Locarno, a throwback 1960s mecca ballroom complete with sparkly curtains and glitter balls. It was the kind of place that was more accustomed to hosting beauty contestants in bikinis and grass skirts than punk gigs. I finally spied the men's toilets and burst into the room, unzipping my flies as I entered to save precious time, as the pressure had built up substantially. As I rushed towards the urinal, I saw, out of the corner of my eye, Billy Idol perched somewhat precariously in the next stall with a young lady clasped to his bosom, or maybe he was clasping her bosom. Time distorts such distinctions. A guttural (laughs) sound passed from my throat, which might have been recognised as, Hello, Billy, were I in a more sober mood, but it just sounded like (laughs) a low grunt after that much alcohol. The young lady looked somewhat startled by the fact that there was another musician in the vicinity of their love nest. So the ever chivalrous <laughs> Mr. Idol tried to calm her down with a valiant, don't be nervous, love, or something to that effect, while she anxiously eyed the toilet door. Unfortunately, by this time, I'd reached the point of no return. And no. a stream of urine shot outwards to the porcelain bowl next to Billy. Regrettably for me as well as Billy and his date, my aim was not improved terribly with the consumption of so much cheap lager. And as I looked down towards where I assumed the urinal was, I realised I was, in fact, urinating on Billy's leg, pissing on the idol. (laughs) Oh, no, the Bromley (laughs) piss. (laughs) (laughs) He gave me one of his trademark sneers and I hastily zipped up and hightailed it out of there in a flurry of drunken apologies. On the drive home, as I sobered up, I'd already perceived that this event might not be seen in the jolly japes or lads together kind of way one might hope (laughs) however i thought not unreasonably that someone who was bathed in spittle every night wouldn't find much wrong with a little urine on his strides as he was caught in flagranti delicto (laughs) with a local lass it might even be seen as punk camaraderie of sorts right how wrong Mm. i was on that count and uh, yeah basically um it goes on and, and and the upshot was that billy idol 
didn't see the funny side and the cure were booted off the generation x tour oh yeah no. yeah yeah and, and, wow. and at the time this is a bit of a disaster um w- one thing i found out when researching my book curepedia if i've mentioned that yet um is that um <laughs> the, the billy idol golden shower wasn't even the only incident involving lol tolhurst and pissing by the way, uh, there was one where he nearly got shot by Margaret Thatcher's special branch officers while pissing in the bushes. What? Yeah. They were up in Scotland um, at the same time as Thatcher was in town addressing a conference and uh, and Lowell was pissing in the bushes and, and uh, he noticed a red dot, on, like a laser dot on his leg. And uh, yeah, Shit. yeah. There's another incident where he needed a piss in the middle of a gig and went behind the curtain to piss in a bucket, but the lighting cast a shadow against the backdrop. So... The entire crowd saw a silhouette of his cock. Um, oh, man. There's another one where the cure got thrown out of a bar in Rotterdam because Lol pissed in a phone booth thinking it was a toilet. No uh, wonder they didn't want to be in a fucking wardrobe with him all afternoon. Exactly. Exactly. Um, th- there's another also in the Netherlands where Lol went on a drunken rampage around a hotel that annoyed Robert so much that Robert pissed in Lol's suitcase. And so right. normally when a, a young rock band out on the road can't control their penises, it's fornication. With a mm. cure, it's urination. Urination, yes. So, so uh, inevitably, like... there's a whole section in Curepedia yeah. just called pissing glorious Brilliant. anyway back to billy idol uh, yeah um so my frenchist assistant didier uh, aforementioned would have been punched in the air in an imagined studded leather glove when this came on yeah and quite rightly so mm. oh I've, I've got a couple of gross out stories involving billy himself by the way the first one i've told Excellent. before on chart music that's the one where yes. where billy approaches david bowie in a nightclub and halfway there he vomits all over himself wipes his mouth on his sleeve and then shakes bowie's hand but <laughs> the other one now. is that story of when he was to not not to sort of put too fine a point on it, fisting somebody after a gig, mm. and she kind of clamped up and he couldn't extricate himself, and he had to dangle his fist oh. in an ice bucket to bring it back to normality. But what I love about both of those stories is that they feed into our folk memory of Billy Idols. He's kind of dumb blonde bozo who's sort of puking and fisting mm. his way through 80s america you know mm. occasionally yes. crashing his motorbike or getting busted for drugs and and making millions along the way and mm. I, yes. I, I use the word dumb about billy and it might feel like i'm dissing him there but i, I think dumbness in rock is distinct from stupidity yes the, the mm. ramones for example did dumb better than anyone right and mm. joey mm. ramone blatantly a genius i think right so yeah billy idol and this this becomes really apparent from his his book um, dancing with myself he is more thoughtful and articulate in real life than you might have expected despite those stories mm. but even without that he was clearly a smart bastard with a canny knack for self-marketing you, you've talked yeah. about yes. how he pitched up in america i mean it's kind of masterful what he does after the end of generation x because generation x kind of fizzled out really he didn't leave mm. them on a high let's put it that way you know they weren't top of the world no so he turns up supposedly with only one suitcase and a Gretsch guitar and a pink Elvis jacket, um, which sounds a bit like self-romanticising, but that's what that's his story. But importantly, that face, that beautiful face, he's, I think he's a really beautiful mm. man. And yeah, he hooks up, as you mentioned, with Kiss's manager, Bill O'Coin, but also Blondie's label, Chrysalis. And if you think of it, mm. he carved out a career that combines the pop-punk hooks of Blondie and the cheap thrills of Kiss, showbiz-wise. And mm. so yeah, he, he did sell this kind of airbrushed, streamlined version of punk 
to mainstream America. Very much so. And he was the perfect sex god for the MTV age, really. He's a sort of peroxide Presley who never got old, fat and dead. He was the Sid Vicious who wasn't going to murder anyone, you know. <laughs> and I, I also think he was reassuring, even though he's beautiful, he was reassuringly macho among the more effeminate cockatoos of the second british invasion so therefore he could bring heartland america on board yes and if yeah if, if you look at the timeline that, that you gave us the fact that uh, white wedding was originally from 82 the americans caught onto this way before we did yeah we weren't ready for that dumb macho approach to things in 82 but by 85 maybe british culture had changed enough mm. billy Idol was always seen as a retrograde chancer because you know while the clash was singing no elvis beatles or rolling stones in 1977 generation X was singing about Elvis Beaklers and the Rolling Stones and Kathy McFucking Gowan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and by the mid 80s, he's having massive success in America, but over here, he's still seen as a bit of a prat, particularly in the music press. At the end of an NME interview where he banged on about rock and roll again, Matt Snow wrote, I mean, have you ever read such crap in your life? Billy has become a big star through his looks, his expensive videos, his ex-Kiss manager and his well-established record company. Yet just because he's stuck to that bottled hairdo for the best part of a decade, he reckons he's still a punk, whatever that is. But at least he's never sold out. For the only difference between 77 and 84 is that now Billy Idol is a dickhead on a cosmic scale. Mm. You know, a lot of this stuff that we're talking about, the dumbness, is very much at surface level, and the songs are actually lyrically a little bit more interesting than that, you know. Mm. So I think, yeah, there is that little bit more to him, and I think, as, as someone again pointed out, there is definitely a sort of a canniness in terms of, like, the kind of career yeah. he made for himself. I don't think there's any... I mean, like, part of the problem for me, actually, I, th- I realise now, is that I always had him down as the idiot who sang bebop a Lula, I've got a Luger on You Don't Need a Gun. <laughs> <laughs> Only to... Yeah, and I thought, fucking hell. Eh? Only to Google the lyrics and to realise some 30 years on that he sang no such thing. Oh, oh what? Wow. I know, it was something the Stud Brothers made up. So basically it turns out that <laughs> I'm the idiot. <laughs> I'm the idiot who thought Billy Idol was the idiot who sang Beep Up Lula, I've Got a Luger on You Don't Need a Gun. That is so Zig Zig <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I just think in pop, you will never be forgiven for being pretty. Mm. You certainly won't be forgiven by David Stubbs. Well... Like- Bauhaus are the other example of this to me mm. because yes. to my mind Bauhaus are this incredible inventive experimental post-punk group who should be thought of on a par with Public Image Limited or Wire or Magazine or any of those bands Joy Division even mm. but mm. to David they're these kind of you know preening idiots because they're good looking and because Peter Murphy was in the Maxell advert am, am I right I mean that's that's how you think of them, I, right, well David? I don't I don't think of them as highly as, as you do certainly I mean I, I like you know Bella Lugosi's dead you know, is kind of quite a sort of got a kind of dubby thing going. But I probably find it a bit facile, whether it's some sort of unacknowledged prejudice against cheekbones. Um, yeah, yeah. Know, but, uh, <laughs> uh, no, maybe, maybe so. Maybe well, so. I'm, I'm glad you partly copped to that. But yeah, Billy Idol, I think, again, I'm not really pointing the finger at David here, but... Mm. Waving a fist, you mean. Waving a fist yeah. at David. But uh, yeah, the, the music press in general, um, certainly the, the Inkies were suspicious of him because he was so slickly presented. He mm. was so good looking. And mm. it, it was very 
much um, a package. And it was um, a bit of a sort of throwback idea of what punk is, you know, like studded leather and all that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. You know? and, and never actually was, you know. Yeah. Mm. I mean, but what, you know, what can you say? That's the thing. It's Billy Idol. What are you going to do? I mean, it's silly to get sort of steamed up about it. It's like having a fight with a cardboard cutout outside a record store, you know. And, yeah. and actually, <laughs> unlike Morrissey, he's probably brought nothing but fun to the world. You know, yes. Anything like that, ultimately, really. And of course, you know, in 1985, the UK have finally caught on, presumably to a generation who can't remember anything about punk or their older brothers and sisters who just couldn't give a toss about all that and just want to go a bit mad in the dance area of the wine bar every now and then. Mm, mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I do like in the lyric, though, that, like, you know, the rebel yell at this woman, you know, the rebellion isn't, you know, extinction rebellion, you know, just stop oil, but rebels against the hegemony of not wanting sex with rock stars, you know. Yes. <laughs> None of that bourgeois <laughs> restraint for her, you know. Yeah, she wants more, 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 even if they're being pissed on by Lowell Tollers yeah. for material, <laughs> yes. you know. Yes. yes. Yeah, yeah, fucking hell. In this video clip, apart from Billy himself... Obviously, it's Steve Stevens who catches the eye with his... Uh, yes. His, 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 you know, he, he's the long-serving guitarist with... Yeah, the, the Randy Rhodes to Billy Idol's Ozzy Osbourne. Exactly. And he's got that Motley Crue hairdo and he's got mm. the ankle-length shoulder-padded success coat. Um, yes. But I, I want to talk about the unsung hero here, who's Keith Forsey, right? Uh, the right. producer. The thing with Rebel Yell is that it's not a rock record, really. It's a dance record. And, mm. Yes, it is. And that's all because of Keith Forsey. Yeah. Um, so mm. Keith Forsey was a producer, but first and foremost, he was a drummer. Um, he'd, he'd been around since the 60s. He played with Udo Lindenberg. And there's there's a Krautrock connection as well, because he played percussion with Amon Dool too. Um, mm. But... Um, well, then, what, Eamon Dull 11? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but then he, he, he joins up with Giorgio Moroder and plays drums on Donna Summer Records, like Bad Girls. And uh, he played on Number One in Heaven by Sparks. So right. he knew about the metronomic, OK? And uh, mm. you can hear that the very first time he works with Billy Idol because that's the 1981 album Kiss Me Deadly by Gen X, as they were then called. That's right mm. before they split up. It's like when Ultravox changed the name to Uvox for a bit. Yes. Uh, but um, that album included the single Dancing With Myself, which was later rebooted as a Billy Idol solo single, which might be about wanking, but it's very much a dance tune. You know? <laughs> oh, yeah, and, it is, um, yeah. And, and You can do both. Mm. You can, well, yeah, you can. Depending you can. on what club you go to. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kind of clubs where you get fetish sporans. <laughs> yeah, Berghain, basically. Um, mm. But, yeah, Keith Forsey, as much as Steve Stevens, is the musical architect of Billy Idol's yeah. solo career. And you can hear that metronomic precision through everything they do together, Rebel Yell being no exception. So um, for all the kind of lip curling and that fist, that big swollen mm. fist, mm-hmm. uh, and, and for all the, the, the rock guitar riffing, Rebel Yell is a dance record in the same way that Eliminator by ZZ Top is a dance album. It, sound, yeah. mm. it sounds machine tooled. It, it doesn't mm. swing. It doesn't rock. It's got a mechanical shudder to it. And some people will dislike that about it. I love it. And I guess C.C. Mm. Sputnik take that on still further, mm. don't they, with their kind yeah, of Yeah, his old machining. mate Tony James. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I think David's right. You just have to love Billy Idol, even mm. if you, you wouldn't sit down and listen to his records. You, you wouldn't sit down and listen to his records, but you'd sit down and listen to him. Oh, God, imagine. In a pub. Imagine, mm. yeah, yeah, Jesus. And I, I just think there's something badly wrong with anyone who doesn't enjoy Billy Idol as a great pop thing. 
you know like i mean david mentioned that bit where it makes a cameo appearance in the airplane scene in the wedding singer which i think is a bit of a ropey film to be honest but billy oh, in I'm that like moment it. it just lifts the whole film and i just yeah think yeah oh, it that, does that's yeah. what he does billy idol just cheers everyone up just by existing yeah. i think yeah he's a good interview Billy Idol is. You know, he's got a lot to say about rock and roll. He he evangelises about it. It, Here are a few quotes I pulled out, uh, which sound like Facebook inspirational JPEGs. Rock and roll is a pair of dice. (laughs) Rock and roll is a thing of beauty and velvetness. Rock and roll is flecks of human fire. (laughs) And rock and roll is one man's heart jump-starting another's. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah brilliant and of course at the moment he's getting absolutely coated down by his peers who think he's a knobhead you know boy george has called him head without a brain mm. and uh, john lydon famously called him the pericomo of punk <laughs> Mm. That whole rock and roll thing, are you on side? Yeah, he's on side. Yes. <laughs> yes. Billy Idol is on side. That song, I mean, Boy George can make fun of Eyes Without a Face, you know, whatever, Face Without a Brain. But, yeah. but that is a magnificent track, Eyes Without a Face. That, mm. uh, it almost seems that, you know, if, if, that, if that was recorded by someone with a bit more gravitas, like, I don't know, Talk Talk or the Blue Nile, yeah. mm. everybody be, be rhapsodising about it, but because it's Billy Idol. It's yeah. Nice. yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, I, yeah. I actually agree with that, yeah. So, the following week, Rebel Yell nudged up two places to number six, its highest position. The follow-up, To Be A Lover, only got to number 22 in November of 1986, but he'd have one more top 10 hit when his cover of Moni Mone, which was his debut single in America in 1981, got to number 7 in October of 1987. And of course, later this year, a version of Rebel Yell was used in an advert for KP Honey Roasted Peanuts because apparently if you had one of them, you'd want more, more, more. She never quite made that number one spot. Now this week she's down to number seven. Bonnie Tyler holding out for a hero. In 1985, I probably rather pompously detested Bonnie Tyler. She's clearly a great human being. Down one at six. Here's Madonna, an angel. You know, it's this, right? Um, Bonnie Tyler gets, oh, for not getting to number one or whatever. Madonna gets, oh, from Gary Davis there. It's really weird. Last week he was at number three. This week he's at number five. Stevie Wonder, part-time lover. This is all right. It's not bad. It's a good week for Redbox. They're up two places to number four with Lean On Me. Gary Davis's reaction to Madonna, though, fucking hell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's not very smooth, Gary. No. Oh, can you imagine that uh, Gary Davis would probably flicker in his tongue oh my. while he said that as well? Yeah. <laughs> Formed at the Polytechnic of Central London in 1978, Harlequins were a student band who changed their name to Red box after a scarlet receptacle which had been left behind by Slade after a college gig that the group stored their microphones in. After most of the band had graduated, they signed a one-shot deal with Cherry Red in 1983, which produced the single Chenko. Despite plenty of airplay on Evening Radio 1 and a session for Janice Long, it just missed out on the top 100 and the deal expired, leaving the band looking for a new label. 
and when a potential deal with MCA was put on hold, most of the band pissed off to get proper jobs, and the lineup had slimmed down to a two-piece, Simon Toulson Clark and Julian Close. However, the single had caught the ear of Seymour Stein, who signed them to Psy Records in 1984, and their first single on that label, a cover of Buffy St. Marie's Saskatchewan, also just missed the charts. This is the follow-up, which is immediately played out by Radio 1 and entered the charts at number 79 at the beginning of August, where it took four weeks to enter the top 40 at number 30, Bagsy in a slot on the breakers section in that week's Top of the Pops. The following week, it soared 12 places to number 18, forcing Top of the Pops to bring them into the studio that week, which helped it soar once again to number 6. This week, it's nipped up two places to number 4, and here's a longish clip. And oh, boys, this feels like the real 1985 has descended upon us, doesn't it? Oh, I mean, fucking hell. Mm. You know, I mean, good on Julian Close, a.k.a. Prince Edward, for breaking royal precedent of being one of a pop team, yeah. but you know, <laughs> it looks like a sort of botched laboratory attempt to create a go west, and um, you know, yes. it should have been sort of dispensed with out of hand. Clearly, they're well intentioned. You know, there's a lot of mm. we are the wilderness about them. You know, and they're yes. they're anti-American militarism. You know, but it's like, why must the angels have all the worst tunes? It's it's um, yes, I don't know. It's sub tears for fears. I mean, but also mm. I don't know, just the confidence to be these boxy, this empty of everything except decent intentions. I and mean, I just tried to yeah. their other stuff. I just cruised around YouTube, you know, it was intriguing. I just drew an absolute blank. I mean, they just seem to be running on absolute empty, and they're still running. You know, and they've got mm. the nerve to criticise the American media for its style over content approach, when they've got neither style or content. It's just... Yeah. Simon? Have you heard the good news about Jesus? what it is right they really creeped me out Mm. Redbox because they seemed like evangelical Christians yeah Mm. I don't know if that was actually their agenda but it seemed like their tour bus was a Jesus army bus right every time they were on the radio or on TV I felt like I was being groomed to be part of some kind of cult yes I felt like you know um, if if you get too close to the band Redbox you're going to end up at some kind of happy clappy summer camp where everyone's sitting around the campfire singing Kumbaya or swinging their pants Mm. yeah they just made me feel weird in in a way I couldn't Mm. quite their their expressions were beatific that's the word yeah and it just seemed all wrong for pop yeah I disliked them disproportionately maybe maybe they they weren't as evil as, as I thought but sort of made my skin crawl maybe Simon it was the fact that one of them went to Harrow mm. well there is that Simon Tolson Clark yeah. I mm. actually looked up the surname Tolson Clark to see where the family fortune came from right. um, didn't really come up with anything but I did find somebody who does a lot of eventing as in horse eventing right so that's clearly the sort of social milieu that they come from mm. um, you know me though I would never hold somebody's privately educated background no. against <laughs> them and it, um, frankly Al I think it's beneath you to imply that I'd have a problem with that <laughs> Hmm. So, the song... I've looked at the lyrics online. I I still don't know what the fuck they're going on about. Can you help me? Together we are strong, a flame that can't be dimmed. You know, lines like that and Hmm. lines like... You've got to lean on me. You can fight alone without solidarity. I think it's really important to have lyrics like that in 1984, yeah. 85, the time of, of the minor yeah. strike, you know, class... Stri- oh, mm. oh, wait, oh, 
Oh, no, hang on. Sorry. That's the red skins lean on me. Oh, shit. <laughs> always, uh, I mean, in the lean on me league, this trails far behind lean on me by Bill Withers, mm. lean on me by the red skins, yep. and rap summary lean on me by Big Daddy Kane. Yeah. But you get the feeling that this is what the BBC and Radio 1 in particular wants pop to be in yeah. 1985. You know, a couple of nice, sensible young lads who use sims but aren't gay about it with, with a social <laughs> conscience. Mm. It's been played to death on Radio 1. They've already been on Wogan, which has become the TV show to get your acts on. But, you know, this isn't real kids' issues, is it? No. I mean, I don't know what it is. It just seems, yeah, it's, it's, it just seems to be filling some sort of required space, but um, it's, just, it's just empty. I zoned it out mm. completely at the time. Yeah. The video, what we see of it, looks expensive and glossy with images of naked babies with their bits tastefully obscured and the duo arsing about on a playground roundabout on a park bench with a big clapperboard with assorted people of the world. Yeah. But to me, the really disorientating thing is the overlays of words throughout the video because they look massively similar to the band names that Top of the Pops uses at the end of performances. And it just threw me. Even though, you know, some of those words were in foreign, mm-hmm. but it's like, oh, what's going on? I don't understand this. Yeah. Mm. They are quite a post-Live A band, and it's all very one world, isn't it? You know, they've, they've got a bunch mm. of Chinese teenagers holding on to the singer guy and, mm. uh, yeah. and all of that. A band just waiting for Q to be invented. Yeah. One world with them mysteriously at the top of it. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah, it was all very happy-clappy. It was all very... It reminds me of when I was in uh, infant school, junior school, we'd always have a trendy teacher who, who would do our and make us sing Lord of the Dance. Yes. It's very Lord mm. of the Dance, all that. From the very, mm. very young to the very, very old, all that sort yeah. of stuff. Oh, God. Oh, oh my God. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think maybe the Harrow thing is it just gives you kind of this unearned confidence, basically. Mm. And the fact that they have red in the name. At that time, mm. bands with red in the name, you, you, you thought they were kind of on the right side of the political divide, um, whether mm. it's Simply Red or, or, or the Redskins, or Well Red, I think, was another one. When those bands who were yeah. always playing events that were sponsored by the Greater London Council. Mm. And I thought, OK, give them a fair hearing. Maybe they're one of those. But, yeah, there, there's just something a bit off about them. And the fact that even I, uh, a man who analyses pop far too much, can't quite figure out what it is no such mm. thing Simon ah uh, yeah <laughs> that in itself unsettles me it's almost like meta unsettling I'm unsettled in the first place then I'm unsettled because I can't quite work out why but, it. but I do just think they're not quite non-singers but they are just trying to enlist us <laughs> religious cults don't show their hand immediately you know, they, yeah. they they always appear to be very sort of feel good and very innocent. And yeah. it's only when they've got you in their grip that, that their dark agenda yeah. comes to the fore. And I just thought there was something like that going on. Yeah, with like that massive poster you used to see in tube stations in the early 90s of a drawing of someone on a motorbike and someone else playing a guitar. Yeah. And at the end it says, check out the facts down at the tab. Oh, the tab, the tabernacle. Yes. Yeah, oh. God, I remember that one. Yeah. yeah. But yes, they are being inclusive, Simon. You know, as an article in Kid Jensen's pop column in the Sunday Mirror bears out. Headline, silent protest. Eagle-eyed viewers of the video for the red box hit Lean On Me will have noticed the girl in the lower right-hand corner giving a sign language performance of the song for deaf people. Lean On Me is about communication and Simon Toulson Clark and Julian Close tell me they were concerned that deaf people were missing out on videos. But I can reveal that the hard of hearing get more than a straightforward version of the song. Halfway through, the girl deserts the lyric to protest, Hey! 
I don't know what I'm doing here. I really don't think I'm being paid enough for this. <laughs> and it's really weird because she's semi-opaque, isn't she? Mm. So she just floats around the, the bottom right-hand corner of the screen. She's not as full-on as the woman who does the signing at that public enemy gig, but, you know, never mind, it's a start. <laughs> Anything else to say about this? Just, just that if if they are sort of you know sort of not playing their religious hand, then they've not been playing it for a very long time. Fad Santa mm. still knocking around. Yeah, I mean, obviously, my accusation just doesn't bear much mm. close analysis, but it's just how they made me feel at the time. <laughs> oh yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Mm. So the following week, lean on me, our Leo nudged up one place to number three. It's high. Number as... three, fuck me. Yeah, I know. It's high as I know. position. After taking the rest of the year and most of next year off to work on their debut LP, The Circle and the Square, they re-emerged in late 1986 with For America, which spent mm. two weeks at number 10 in November of that year. Fucking hell, a year later, they do nothing, release a song. Ah. Back in the fucking top 10. Who's buying this? Exactly. Yeah, it's extraordinary. I mean, you know, number three, pissing from on high on the cure. Mm, it's yeah, exactly. And for America was another fucking swing your pants campfire number, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. USA. Yeah. They all had that kind of karma chameleon feel. Or mm. um, do you remember the single Passengers by Elton John? Oh. It was that. Oh, oh. God. Fucking hell. But the LP only got to number 73 the following month. Their next single, Heart of the Sun, straggled up to number 71 in February of 1987. And when a revamp of Chenko only got to number 77 in August of 87, they were dropped from the label. Julian Close took a job in A&R for EMI and Tulsa Clark pissed off round the world. The latter was tempted back into reactivating the Red Box brand in 1989 by East West Records, and he put out their second LP, Motive, in 1990. But band and label had a serious falling out, and the LP was pulled from the shelves very soon after its release, and the band split up for 20 years, coming back with the LP Plenty in 2010. Number one because Bowie and Jagger are down to number three. On the streets of Brazil. <laughs> Here's the biggest climber on the chart this week, up 13 places to which means we have a brand new number one. The last time he was number one was together with Band-Aid, and he now has his first solo number one. Here's Mitch York, If I Was. Yeah. 
fucking hell, I wish I'd gone to that Elkie Brooks gig now. <laughs> Davis and Jordan, the latter with his hand out of his pocket, but now behind his back, tell us that we've got a new number one and we've been spared an extended stare at the state of Mick Jagger and David Bowie in 1985. Mm. What is wrong with Paul Jordan's hand? Is he, has he got a swastika tattoo on it or something? Mm. Yeah, I noticed in an earlier link, he had his hand in his pocket and he's doing gun fingers. Like, whoa, yeah. Yeah. Do you think, do you think I, this is why he's been airbrushed out of pop history? Do you think there's the connect? You know, it's to do with the hand in some way. A cab across the knuckles. Yeah. Unfortunately, the new number one is "If I Was" by Major. Born in Cambuslang on the outskirts of Glasgow in 1955, James Ewer was a trainee engineer at the National Engineering Laboratory in East Kilbride in the late 60s when he joined a Glasgow band called Stumble. In 1972, he joined the covers band Salvation as a guitarist who played the Glasgow and Edinburgh club circuit. But as the bassist was already called Jim, they got him to change his name to Midge, Jim spelt backwards, and the name stuck. In 1974, when Salvation's lead singer left, Ur took over as front person and the band linked up with Shangalang songwriters Bill Martin and Phil Coulter, changed their name to Slick, signed with Bell Records and went to number one with Forever and Ever in February of 1976. When diminishing returns rapidly set in and teeny bopper bands fell right out of favour, they dismissed Martin and Coulter, went a bit punky and changed their name to PVC2, putting out the single Put You In The Picture. But in October of 1977, he was poached by Glenn Matlock for his new band, forcing a relocation to that London where he soaked up every post-punk influence that came his way. By 1978, Ewell was getting right into synthesizers, and he and drummer Rusty Egan were on one half of a rift against the more traditional Matlock and Steve New, which led to the breakup of rich kids. And as mentioned in Chart Music 71, Ewell and Egan approached Steve Strange to fill the studio time he was owed by EMI to create Visage. Thanks to Visage bulking up their lineup to include Billy Curry, who joined after the dissolution of the original lineup of Ultravox, Ewer and Egan were invited to join the band in 1979, which he did full time after a stint playing keyboards on a Thin Lizzy tour of America, resulting in a run of 14 top 10 hits from 1980 to 1984, including a number two with Vienna. On November the 2nd, 1984, while Yule was in Newcastle sound checking for a live performance for the Tube with the Vox, he was called over to the phone by Paula Yates to discover Bob Geldof on the other end, who went into one about Michael Burt's BBC News report on the Ethiopian famine and that something ought to be done about it. Working on lyrics provided by Geldof during a meeting in a restaurant three days later and eventually lifting the tune from a song that had been lying in his drawer for a while, he and Geldof eventually bashed up Do They Know It's Christmas, which ended up being produced by her when their original choice, Trevor Horn, couldn't get out of other commitments. 
you know the rest. (laughs) In early 1985, with Ultravox having a break and their only commitment being their appearance at Live Aid, which you're co-organised with Goldoff and Harvey Goldsmith, he returned to the solo career he began in 1982 when he took his cover of the 1968 Tom Rush song No Regrets to number nine in July of that year. And he spent the first half of this year working on his debut solo LP, The Gift, which comes out on Monday. This is the lead cut from that LP, which came out in the first week of September and entered the top 40 as the highest new entry at number 29 the week after and was immediately bunged onto Top of the Pops, which helped it soar 21 places to number 8. A second Top of the Pops performance moved it up to number four, and this week it scaled the summit of Ben Chartis, deposing <laughs> Dancing in the Street by Jagger and Bowie. And here he is, the Peter Taylor of Band-Aid, mm. in the studio to receive his triumph. Yeah. Or is he? Because to me, this seems like a repeat from a fortnight ago. Because, you know, Top of the Pops, they're very fond of having the camera sweeping from the presenters to the stage. Mm. But this time, it looks like the cameraman's just finished having a quiet piss Mm. underneath the scaffolding Mm. on the other side of the studio, just in time for the performance to start. I I think it is Mm. a new performance, but... It's hard to say, really, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's funny, with mid-year, I always used to have him down as this kind of really evil, scheming, moustached sort of bandwagon jumper and pop cynic or whatever. Mm, the Zelig Yeah, he'll be there, exactly. But he's, he's actually a terribly nice fellow. You know, if you listen to interviews with him, in, in the way that Jim Kerr is actually, very quite mm. similar to him, very disarming when you hear him being interviewed nowadays. But the fact is, this is just a mystifying waste of everyone's time. I mean, really, mm. what sort of mediocre soul buys a record like this, surges with vicarious pride as they put it on, swells their chest and stands tall. If I... I mean, it's... <laughs> Al mentioned, you know, he's the Peter Taylor of Live Aid, and perhaps there's a sense that he hasn't had quite his due, he hasn't had quite his, the recognition, mm. didn't quite get to number one, of course, with Vienna, and and, and he, I, you yeah. just suspect that maybe, just maybe, the, all these megastars, they had a bit of a whip round backstage, you know, 50,000 here, yeah, <laughs> half a million there, thank you, Elton. And then basically used the money to dispatch Boy Scouts and Girl Guides posing as pop fans to buy this up from Virgin <laughs> and HMV en masse. Because I can think of no other reason why it could have ascended to number one. Yeah. And the weird thing is he looks himself a bit surprised to be up there. You know, it's, <clears> it's like, I don't know, something like Steve Koppel being cajoled on stage to deliver a sing-song. And, hey, well, are you sure this is switched on? You know, there's, there's just something... He looks as bewildered as anybody. Well, this is a question that's always been on my mind. Is it a sympathy number one? Mm. Poor old Midge, good on him. Oh, he, oh, he deserves it. Oh, go yeah, on. Yeah. When I was a kid, about five years old, my mum and me would walk from town across the uh, forest recreational ground to get to Ice and Green. Yeah. And every now and then there'd be some lads playing football and my mum would walk out onto the pitch, talk to the referee and say, can my lad have a kick of the ball? <laughs> and every time they'd stop the game and go, yeah, go on then. And I'd run up and give it a massive hoof, or what I felt was a massive hoof, and everyone would go, hey! And then the game would continue, and I'd walk home with my man feeling massively proud mm. for <laughs> scoring a winning yeah. goal. And I get the feeling that this is what's being done here by the music business and the media for mid-year. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, this single, I mean, the, there's loads of soppy ballads getting to number one in the latter half of the 80s, but at least, or worst, they lodged in your brain. But... Mm. 
This one's massively forgettable, even mm. for Midge. Yeah. yeah. Because in an article in John Blake's White Hot Club later this month, quote, Midge Yore has a confession to make. He keeps forgetting the lyric to his own songs. I made a real prat of myself on Wogan recently. I was singing If I Was, and I just couldn't remember whether it was Soldier or Sailor or whatever <laughs> came next. It was terribly embarrassing. Even when Midge is on tour with Ultravox, he can't remember the words to their hits. Mm. I know Vienna was a huge success, but I still find the lyrics a problem. Mm. No, lyrics, they mean nothing to him. <laughs> yeah. Okay, pop music is always in two minds about the conditional tense, right? Um, for every mm. If I Were a Carpenter by Tim yeah. Hardin, there's an If I Was Your Girlfriend by Prince. For every yeah. If I Were mm. a Boy by Beyonce, there's an If I Was by Midge Ewer. Or <laughs> If I mm. Was a Sculptor, huh. But then again, no, by Elton John. <laughs> Fucking hell. But grammatical inaccuracy is far from the worst offences committed by this song. I just had to put that in there because mm. my wife's an English teacher and she tells me that it's the second conditional is what we call this tense that Midjo gets wrong in this song. Mm. But um, oh. uh, the, the lyrics are basically, you know, kind of river deep, mountain high or ain't no mountain high enough. It's it's all about prowess. It's mm. this elongated boast or, 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 you know, I will always love you by dolly slash whitney it's it's all about how devoted he is to his woman mm. but it has none of the the charm or or passion of those songs so it's written mm. mostly by danny mitchell of the messengers who are this scottish band who, who midge discovered and produced and it's got weird moments in the lyrics there's that bit where it goes if i was a stronger man carrying the weight of popular demand would that alarm her that's an odd little couplet mm. there mm. the bit that gets repeated a few times if i was a soldier captive arms i'd lay before her so what he'd, he'd show off like look at all these grenade launchers we stole from the russians now yes. how about a shag you know is that it <laughs> you know mm. the, the thing with midge is and you mentioned the, the the zelig factor that he turns up in different eras of pop but in any of those incarnations whether it, it's slick or rich kids or Visage, Ultravox, whatever. I never feel that people are buying into the idea of Midge himself. They aren't buying mm. it, whatever it is, because it's him. He's just this sort of mm. competent, pencil-tashed singer who's fronting it. Until now, mm. and I think you're right, Al, I think they, they very much are now buying If I Was because it's him. And yeah. you say the Peter Taylor, I say the cat from Hong Kong Fooey of Band-Aid or Live Aid. Oh. And it does feel like a sympathy number one because he never did much after this chart-wise. I mean, still, he, he, did, no. he did better than Bob Geldof and the Vegetarians of Love, I suppose. Mm. Yes, God, yes. So, he can cling to that, I suppose. But the massive success coat, uh, the second success coat we've seen on this episode, mm. that he's wearing um, seems symbolic. It's making yeah. the point that he doesn't need to ride on anyone else's coattails. He has massive coattails of his own. Yes, they are very yeah. long indeed. A very sober success coat, though, isn't it? It's not adorned with any brooches or anything. No, it hasn't got sort of diamante shoulder pads or anything like that. But No. Just when I was watching him in this moment of triumph for him, I just kept thinking... Imagine if Joe Dolce had a surprise second hit in, oh God, in October yes. 85 and kept it off the top. <laughs> that would have been fucking amazing, wouldn't I it? I don't get what all the fucking fuss is about anyway. I mean, Forever and Ever by Slick was number one. Yes. He's had a go, you know, so what's the problem here? I mean, there is a feeling.
feeling that Midge has been hard done by. Not least, it turns out, by Midge himself, although uh, oh, he's yeah. keeping it on the download by now. I found an article in the Daily Record from October 2004, which goes... He's one part of the duo who created the greatest musical fundraiser the world has ever known. But despite kickstarting a massive humanitarian aid project and helping to bring life to the starving children in Ethiopia, Scott's music legend Midjor has carried a 20-year grudge over the way he was treated at Live Aid. The former Ultravox singer has kept a lid on his resentment after he was left feeling like a second ranker, pushed to the back as Band-Aid co-founder Bob Geldof gloried in the limelight. But now the Glasgow-born singer has confessed he felt snubbed when asked to move down the Live Aid bill at what is now known as the greatest show on earth. Midge said, I didn't realise it had happened until the press boys round the bar pointed it out afterwards. One of them came up to me and asked how it felt to be shafted like that. I had no idea what they meant, as I'd been told a story about having to swap round the order of appearance because Adamant was having technical problems. At the time, it didn't bother me in the slightest who went on before who. But as the dust settled, Midge couldn't shake the feeling that he'd been done over. (laughs) Midge is convinced the swap was arranged so Bob could play before Prince Charles and Princess Diana left. Midge said Bob wouldn't give a shit if he was performing in front of royals or not. In fact, I'm sure he's blissfully unaware any of this happened because it wasn't his decision. But I realised it was all so that the Boomtown Rats could perform before the Royals had to leave. Bob was being pushed forward and I was being pushed back. So of course my nose was a bit out of joint. Mm. But it was pure ego. Nothing could have spoiled the day for me at the time. But the more I thought about it in the months afterwards, the more it ate away at me. (laughs) In the weeks leading up to Live Aid, I felt increasingly sidelined. I could feel the whole thing change. I spoke to my manager about it during that period, and he agreed that there was something going on. That sounds like an interview rewritten in tabloid ease, mm. doesn't it? As I guess they all were. <laughs> The performance, I mean, no synth or any form of instrumentation and no Tash Mm. either. It had gone by late 1984, which makes him look weird. Yeah. He's kind of replaced it with some pointy sideies, though, so, yeah. Yes, he has. And he has got rid of that ponytail as well, just at the moment when twats in the media were taking them up with big, thick red glasses. So, you know, he's progressing. In a way, yeah, um, he's progressing as his hairline is regressing. And uh, I remember mm. in the early nineties, you know, it's it's a uh, his comeback. Then he was very much in the hat wearing brigade, um, you know. Mm. And fair enough, I've been there, done mm. that. But um, yeah, very heritage chart. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So if I was, would only spend one week at number one, giving way to. <sighs> The Power of Love by Jennifer Rush. Oh, Jesus. Mm. But would spend oh. two weeks at number two before slipping down the charts, while The Gift got to number two in the LP charts, behind Hounds of Love by Kate Bush. Yeah, that really fucking offended me. The Gift. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think The Jam had an album called The Gift. Three years previously, Midge. Yeah, I thought that. Why mm. don't you call it fucking All Mod Cons? Yeah. <laughs> For fuck's sake. The follow-up. 
that certain smile would get to number 28 in November of this year and diminishing returns set in on his solo career, which he tried to maintain with the reformation of Ultravox, who will put out one more LP before splitting up in 1987. And if I was next week on Top of the Pops, Steve Wright and Mike Smith. Yeah, that's more or less it. Thanks for watching tonight. From Paul and myself, we hope you have an enjoyable evening, the rest of it. And we'll leave you with the number 28 record at the moment from Five Star and Love Takeover. Bye bye. See ya. Jordan who now has his left hand on display and we can see it hasn't been mutilated (laughs) or has an offensive tattoo on it, tells us that it's so good to see Midjor at number one. That was the um, general opinion. Isn't that nice? Mm. He then warns us that it's Steve Wright and Mike Smith next week, leaving Davis to tell us that he hopes we have an an, uh, uh, enjoyable evening, the rest of it, which (laughs) makes Jordan smile evilly, his supposedly more experienced co-host fucking up. (laughs) Eventually Mm. they sign off and leave us with Love Takeover by Five Star. We came across Shaking Shalimar in Chart Music 24 when they took Find the Time to number 7 in August of 1986 and this, their sixth single, is the fifth cut from their first LP, Luxury of Life, which came out in July and is currently number 43 in the album chart. It's a follow-up to Let Me Be The One, which got to number 18 in late July and was written by the Dutch production duo Bernard Oates and Rob Van Schalk, who called themselves The Limit and had a number 17 hit in the UK with Say Yeah in January of this year. It entered the back end of the chart three weeks ago and slid into the top 40 at number 38, but this week it's jumped seven places from number 35 to number 28 after an appearance on top of the Pops a fortnight ago, and here it is again, being played over the credits as the kids shuffle with a bovine grace and glide in syncopation. Oh, let's get the song out of the way first, chaps, because, you know, it's perfectly acceptable R&B that would sit nicely on Channel 4's Soul Train or or at the end of Top of the Pops, you know. Obviously got a clear eye on America. Mm. You know, Doris could easily have been in Janet Jackson's position if they hadn't lumped the rest of the family in with her. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I, it's perfectly decent. It's, as Five Star always were, you know, just very bright, bubbly, sort of bubblegummy, chased brick funk for all the family, you know. Mm. But I was surprised, really, at, subsequently at how precipitously they declined. Yeah. The, the slightest hint of sleaze was enough to wipe them out like a virus. And, of course, they did sort of make that decision to change their image and go a little bit more kind of, you know, rocket, whatever. But, you know, for me, they were clean cut or they were nothing, to be honest. Mm. I guess that accounts for it, really. But, yeah, it's nice. I was really surprised to see that this single only peaked at number 25 and also that uh, 
it was their sixth out of seven singles in a row that didn't make the top ten. I didn't realise there was such a long build-up with mm, Five Star. Yeah, 1986 was there, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I sort of perceived them as being sort of instantly massive. But yeah, the, the record label showed faith with them and, and kept them going a long time. They're obviously determined that this group is going to be big no matter what. Mm. That surprised me. But when they did, they, they did seem like this sort of unstoppable hit machine. And, and it was, mm-hmm. you thought they were never going to leave us alone. Janice Long said that on Top of the Pops. They never seem to go away. <laughs> like the wasps of pop. Yeah. I didn't hate them, but we'd, we'd already, by this point in the 80s, we'd had uh, musical youth in terms of a family-based uh, British pop group. Um, and mm. then there'd been New Edition, who are the sort of manufactured, non-family American version. And mm. I think I was of an age now where I was very aware of the process. I, was, yeah. I wasn't just accepting, oh, well, this is what pop has thrown at us, uh, either like it or, or don't. Um, I was very much, oh, I can see the strings. And, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty well publicised anyway that, that Buster Pierce yeah. and that their dad was the Svengali behind it all. And mm. I suppose I was still enough of a precious alternative slash indie kid that I didn't like it when people were trying to hoodwinkers and and trying to pull a fast one whereas you know Mm. once i got over myself a little bit and got a bit older i just thought oh you know just enjoy it for what it is so i think Mm. i i resented five star at the time i think i thought they were part of the forces of evil but Mm. in hindsight that seems a bit ridiculous you know they they were Mm. a decent enough british take on american r&b and some of those records actually pretty good systematic i would stand up for yeah Mm. that's a good one remember systematic was the name of a a little known romo band (laughs) and i'm saying that i'm thinking Who were the who were the well known but yeah, um, yeah, they were all right, weren't they? And mm. in a way, it's a shame that their fame didn't endure long enough for mm. when um, Stedman had his public indecency incident that they could have done yeah. what George Michael did with the outside yeah. video and mm. really owned it and maybe sort of changed attitudes. But yeah. yeah, but this song, the fact that I'm not even talking about it. Um, yeah. does sort of tell you a little bit it's just you know in one ear and out of the other to be honest with you mm. it's mm. alright it's functional uh, and we can see the function that it's performing is to make people dance and that that's why yes. that's why actually it's perfect for an end of Top of the Pops song Definitely. rather than a during Top of the Pops song yeah and speaking of which Simon this is a glorious opportunity to have a good hard stare at the youth of 1985 oh, yeah. and uh, oh dear mm. all the girls look like Claire Scott got in Grange Hill. <laughs> All the boys look like they're wearing the new clothes mum bought them for the summer holiday. And, you know, we do see the remaining members of City Farm up on a podium like the cool fifth years at the school disco yeah. who clearly can't dance for shit. Mm. This little group of four have got something nice going. I mean, yeah, the camera panning across the audience is like a sort of audit. It's a survey of 1985 youth. And, and yeah, to be, mm. you know, they are the Australian's nightmare we've become grimly accustomed to. If we're not yes. But I have to say, look, I do admire their enthusiasm. I mean, you know, which I think they got yes. over-enthusiastic in the early 80s. But, I mean... You know, it's all right, it's a bit go for it in places, but at least it's not like the bloody 70s audience where they all look like they'd much rather be at home drinking tea and watching Crossroads. Yeah. Even as David Bowie's got his arm draped around Mick Ronson during Starman, you know, that's, so there is that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, by this point, City Farm have been expunged from the credits and, and rightly so. Their time is up. Mm. The thing with City Farm is when I teach about uh, the disco era and I teach about. Don Cornelius and Soul Train and all that stuff. The wonderful thing Mm. about Soul Train is that the audience 
and the stars were kind of indistinguishable because everybody looked like a star. Everybody could yeah. dance. And that's the whole mm. point of the disco movement. You know, the best case scenario uh, way of, of describing disco was that it was uh, a way in which everybody on a Friday or Saturday night could be the star in their local discotheque. Mm. As long as you had, you know, just one outfit, decent glad rags, and you had a few moves. And then the rave movement is often described as the opposite of that because nobody is a mm. star. And that's seen as being this great positive thing that everyone's just very normal and everybody looks the same as each other and uh, mm. nobody's really showing off. They're all losing themselves in their music. Um, I feel like in 1985, mm. we're in this kind of mid period between the two. Oh, yeah. So what's happened is you've got City Farm who are you know, nominally professional dancers and are meant to look the business. And you've got the audience um, and they don't look particularly starry either. Everyone's just kind of merged together. I honestly couldn't tell you which were the the professional dancers Mm. and which were not. And that's not a compliment to anybody involved. Mm. But also in 1985, there's a very clear fashion difference between the people on the stage and the people in the audience. Yeah, there's nobody wearing success coats or purple rain outfits <laughs> on the studio floor. Mm. Who stood out for you in this melange of clock tower at CNA wearing youth? There, there, there was this intriguing little chap with blonde hair. Oh, yeah. He looked a little bit in his own world, you know. Do you remember that episode we did, Simon, from the early 70s with the Lulu? Of course, on it? of course. And all those students were dancing and there was one lad who looked like Gareth out of the office. <laughs> I think I spotted his cousin here with an extremely lank mullet, dancing mm. like an old man trying to catch a fly, next to his leering mate in a shit jumper and an awful blonde rinse that makes him look like a future member of Birdland. Oh, yeah, yes, yeah. Having a wonderful time. Yeah. Can't dance with shit, but who cares? Mm. Get down. In a way, a bit of crapness as opposed to slickness does seem quite welcome in the context of 1985 yes extremely so Mm. chaps if you were in the audience for top of the pops in 1985 and you know that a camera swept past you while you were dancing to five star would you tell your mates about it before it was broadcast yeah, probably. Would you brag on? Yeah, yeah. Mm. Even though you look like a complete knob. I'd mentioned it offhandedly, yeah. I don't think I'd watch it back. <laughs> yeah, I would yeah. just say, I have been on top mm. of the pops. I don't know, I think I'd hide it. If I was getting down to five star and a camera swept past me and I just thought, oh God, I better look a right bell end here. Yeah, I'd keep it quiet and hope mm. my peers were uh, nipping to the pantry for some toast toppers mm. or <laughs> going out to play football or something before that came on. Mm. I would say to all my classmates, always remember and never forget... I've been on top of the pops more than you have. <laughs> mm. I think if my mate Steve Turner had seen me on that, I'd have had fucking grief, you know. Fucking <laughs> hell, in the fucking swap now. <laughs> fucking Morris, eh? <laughs> the cameramen are doing the usual upskirting trick upon the maidens of the studio floor, but mm. they're being roundly defeated by the fashions of 1985 because it's all collots and yeah. very tight and long dresses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No gossip for you, Dad. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So the following week, Love Takeover nipped up three places to number 25 and stayed there for two weeks, its highest position. The follow-up, RSVP, only got to number 45 in November, but they roared back at the beginning of 1986 when System Addict, their seventh single from Luxury of Life, got to number three in February and they'd have three more top ten hits throughout the year. Paul Jordan, on the other hand, would have a less successful 1986. 
He went on to present five more episodes of Top of the Pops, the last one being in February, but was immediately bombarded with other television work, including being offered the first CBBC presenting gig in the broom cupboard, but turning it down, forcing them to go with Philip Schofield. This and a stray comment to a secretary at Radio 1 that he didn't listen to music at home and he didn't own a stereo. Yeah, uh, DLT must have been disgusting. We started to put <laughs> extremely big noses out of joint at Radio 1 who started to see him as a DJ who wasn't into his uh, music <laughs> and was using the station as a stepping stone to get into tele because that's never <laughs> happened before, has it? Imagine oh, that, no. yeah. No, like every other cunt, honestly. <laughs> By mid-January, he was eased out of his Sunday afternoon slot and replaced with Chart Busters, where Richard Skinner showcased the latest releases about to breach the top 40 and chart tips from the other DJs. In April, his option wasn't picked up by Radio 1, although they offered him the Janice Long slot, which he turned down. So, after his Friday drive time show on May the 2nd, he put down his headphones, left the studio and never returned to the BBC again. As he wasn't on Radio 1 anymore, all the TV offers dried up and he went back to Radio City in 1988, moving on to Rock FM in Preston in 1992 in a managerial role, as well as doing The Breakfast Show, before moving around the digital radio landscape and he currently does The Golden Hour on June Radio in Southport. Better music and more of it. <laughs> he got shot on there, didn't he? Mm, the absolute fucking nerve of that generation, the previous generation of Radio 1 yeah. DJs. This is a time when British TV is just, you know, basically owned by the likes of Mike Reed, but especially Noel Edmonds. Noel Edmonds, I mean, mm, say yeah. what you like about Paul Jordan. He didn't fucking kill someone. Mm. All the other people <laughs> in Paul Jordan's generation, you know, Simon Mayo, Nicky Campbell, well, they've never done yeah. any telly, have they? Mm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Justice for Jordan, Justice for Jordan. As far as late 80s Top of the Pops presenters go, he's not done too bad. Better than Simon Parkin. I mean, he does make me nervous with that trying too hard thing. There was a bit in the link to Midge where Gary Davis looks at Paul Jordan with this sort of disbelief as if to say, stop shouting, Mm. you know. (laughs) Television presentation is fucking hard though, Simon, because, you know, in acting, they say, oh, well, if you're doing film or television, you've got to dial everything down. Mm. In television presentation you you've got to turn everything up a bit you've got to gesture more you've got to be a bit clearer and a bit slower and a bit louder and you know if you have to walk as well fucking hell i guess yeah i've done bits and bobs of tele presentation only local stuff i've seen you yeah walking and talking yeah but it's mm. fucking hard man because you, you you basically got to train yourself to be inhuman yeah you got to walk around you got to gesticulate like a bastard talking to no one that's there mm. and you've got to walk at the same time. Yeah. I watch telly now and if I see a good presenter walking around, I, I go, oh, that's textbook. <laughs> that's fantastic walking, mate. Yeah. If you're walking towards the camera, do you have to sort of practice that by walking away from the camera while doing your bit so you know how many steps to do so that you, yeah. you hit the spot? Is that how they do it? Well, that's how I did it, Is yeah. it? Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And the worst thing of all is that I was doing this in Nottingham City Centre where you've just got <laughs> everyone looking around going, oh, look at that cunt, he thinks he's summer yeah. on, mm. on fucking Tallet. Yeah. Mm. 
And that, pop craze youngsters, closes the book on this episode of Top of the Pops. What's on telly afterwards? Well, BBC One kicks on with the televisual event of the week as EastEnders finally reveals who's got Michelle up the stick. Ah. It's Dirty Den, if you weren't aware. Spoiler alert. (laughs) Nearly 80 million viewers that got. Fucking hell. Yeah. Han... Philbin, Stableford and McCann look into the latest developments in construction and introduce a disaster spot feature in tomorrow's world. Then loose ends pop up on the Lenny Henry show doing a cover of Golden Years. Mm. Oh, the only thing I can remember about the Lenny Henry show was the theme tune. Because if one of my mates started eyeing up or going out with a younger girl, we'd all sing, Lenny, Lenny, Len, Lenny, Lenny, Len, Lenny Fairclough Show. Oh, for fuck's sake. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. After the news, it's a repeat of Just Good Friends, the sitcom about the interracial relationship between Jan Francis and Paul Nestor Nicholas <laughs> Owen. <laughs> <laughs> then it's the proto-true crime podcast series Rough Justice, mm. the air and spelling drama series Glitter about an entertainment magazine, a repeat of the documentary series The Past at Work about the Industrial Revolution, and they close down at 10 to midnight. BBC Two has just finished The Taste of Health, the healthy eating show presented by Judith Han. If you think healthy food has to be brown and boring, you're in for a surprise, it says here in the Radio Times. Charles Bowman is taken to somewhere he doesn't know and goes on a five-mile walk with the writer Anthony Burton and attempts to work out in what part of the country he's actually in in the geography show Lost Souls. You can't make that nowadays, man, unless you take the phone off. Mm. That's followed by the curious case of Victor Grayson, the former socialist MP for Colm Valley, who was tipped as a future prime minister before he went missing in 1920 and was never seen again. Then it's the Windsor Davis sitcom The New Statesman about a museum curator who unexpectedly inherits an earldom, followed by the last in the series of Alec Clifton Taylor's English Towns, where the recently dead architectural historian has a good doss around Durham. After part two of Dennis Potter's adaptation of Tender is the Night, it's news night, the weather, and they round off with a bit of open university before closing down at 25 past midnight. ITV has just started Give Us a Clue, with Cheryl Baker on one side and Mike Nolan on the other, or hope there's no more brawling, (laughs) followed by Up the Elephant and Round the Castle, where Jim Cunt Cunt Davidson leans on his mates to help repair his house, but they're all cunts too. After Mickey Spillane's Mike Hammer, TVI interviews Margaret Thatcher and asks her why everything is so shit and why she doesn't just fuck off. (laughs) Then it's the news at 10, regional news in your area, and then an hour and a quarter of more snooker before closing down at quarter past midnight. Channel 4 is still halfway through Channel 4 News, then the Bandung file is taken over by Linton Quasi Johnson, who is dead good, as always. Then we're whipped open to the Openshaw Lads Club in Manchester for the last quarterfinal of the Intercity Boys Club Boxing Championship in Henry Cooper's Golden Belt. After the final episode of the Australian drama series The Flying Doctors, it's a repeat of Dream Stuffing, the sitcom 
about two women on the dole in an East End tower block. And they finish off with Tube Extra, the great Hollywood swindle, where Jules Holland nips over to Los Angeles and meets Malcolm McLaren, Brian Ferrer, Lone Justice and the Red Oak Chili Peppers, closing down at 25 past 12. Probably the first time we'd ever seen the Red Oak Chili Peppers. Yeah. Thanks, mm. Channel 4. Mm. So, boys, what are we talking about in the playground tomorrow? I would say cameo. Mm. Um, and maybe the cure, but we don't see enough of the video to get the full effect. So, yeah, for me and my mates, it'd be fucking hell, did you see cameo? Yes. Eyes, mm. right. <laughs> I mean, you know, at this point, you know, in, in the playground, I'd have, um, we've probably had a wide ranging conversation, you know, I'd, I'd have actually been wondering how many copies of George Orwell's 1984 had been sold so far in 1985, you know. Good point, You'd get mate. a bit of a drop off, wouldn't you? So, I mean, you know, like digressing. But other than that, um, yeah, Cameo. Um, actually, a little bit of the cure, although it was only an extract. But um, I think Cameo primarily, yeah. What are we buying on Saturday? Um, I can state with some confidence, because I still have these records in my collection. Um, so I bought two alternative rock records by white British people, The Cure and The Smiths. And I also bought two dance funk records by black American people, Cameo and Colonel Abrams. And I bought one Anglo-American hybrid, Ooh. Billy Idol. The rest can fuck off. Mm. All of those, minus Biddy Idol and Ooh. Colonel Abrams, <laughs> and plus um, Renee and Angela. Uh, and what does this episode tell us about October of 1985? You know, I was I was going to say something about how it, it teaches us that it was a time that you had to cling to the good stuff because there was so much shit out there, mm. but that there still was good stuff. But mainly I just thought that Paul Jordan existed. Mm. I almost feel like I've been sort of gaslit by somebody doing a, a deep fake that, you know, somebody's invented <laughs> by AI, some kind of uh, TV presenter from the 80s. And there he is doing his, his pigeon-necked grooving over Five Star at the end. And I just thought, mm. I must have watched this episode of Top of the Pops. Mm. So um, he's trying so hard with his shouting and his finger pointing and his, his hand in his pocket and, and you know, all his pigeon-neck grooving thing to make an impression and he's making none mm. all i can say is that i probably walked out of the living room like the trade unions eric heffer out of the conference hall when red box came on <laughs> that's the only thing i can say really but um <laughs> yeah i think for me right there's a feeling that we're deep we're very very deep into the 80s the 80s started a long time ago like mm. Thatcher, and it's a long way since they began and they've got a long way to go yet. I think that's kind of the feeling mm. of it, you know. And that brings us to the end of this episode of Chart Music. Usual promotional flange, chart-music.co.uk, facebook.com slash chartmusicpodcast. Reach out to us on Twitter, and yes, it is still fucking Twitter. I still call them marathons. Fuck off, Elon Musk. <laughs> at chartmusictotp, money down the g-string patreon.com slash chart music thank you simon price you're welcome bye curepedia and a to z of the cure it's really good god bless you david stubbs bye bye folks and don't forget different times a history of british comedy on favor my name's al needham and i'm here to rock and roll <laughs> <laughs> Sharp music. Fucking Britain and a welcome visitor to the top.
of the Fox studio. He's Billy Idol. How you doing? Uh, I'm doing fine. What you doing while you're here? I'm here to rock and roll. I'm here to find out where we're going to play later on this year. Great. Well, rock and roll. I love the hair. KP Honey Roasted. Yeah. Now a honey roasted peanuts from KP. They're strangely savory. You know what really makes us mad is wasting money on CDs with only one or two good songs. Yeah. Talk about punk. Yeah, we got the CD called Punk. It's loaded with our favorite tunes, man. Yeah. Just listen. Hey now, hey now, don't This punk CD has 36 tunes, man, and I'm telling you, they're all great. Yeah. You also get Huey Lewis in the news. Romantics. And the fix. You can only get this CD by calling this 800 number, man. Yeah. So call now. of these great songs on two CDs for only $26.95. Or two cassette tapes for just $21.95. Here's how to order. To order Punk, call the number on your screen or send $26.95 for two CDs or $21.95 for two cassettes plus $4.95 shipping and handling to the address on your screen. Rush delivery is available. Remember, this special offer is not sold in stores. Hey, pop craze youngster! Do you love chart music but hate London? Do you want to see our new live show but would sooner stop at Tom and Doss about in your pants on a Saturday? Are you going to our live show but want to see it again and again and again and again for a week or so? Well, it seems to me like you need to get booked into our live stream at this year's London Podcast Festival. See that keyboard. Use those fingers. Mash out tinyearl.com slash cmlive23, all lowercase. Step up to the pay window, lay your money down and get ready to see Team ATV Land throw down live and direct on Saturday, September the 16th. That link again, tinyearl.com slash cmlive23, all lower case. Come on, pop craze youngsters, stick that money down this G-string and watch Team ATV Land grind and thrust just for you. No wanking, though, okay? Rock expert David Stubbs! Rock expert David Stubbs! 
Hi, I'm David Stubbs. Rock expert David Stubbs. Rock expert David Stubbs. Rock expert David Stubbs. Bringing you a hard-driving mix of hard rock and hard facts. Today, I'm here to talk to you about the Maiden. Iron Maiden. Riding high in 1985. Literally putting thunder in our bellies with running free. Formed in Leighton in Crosstown, East London, just 5,000 miles from Los Angeles, California. Iron Maiden were named after Britain's Prime Minister, Margaret Hilda Thatcher, who ruled the Kingdom of Britain with a fist of steel, the way Maiden ruled the Kingdom of Heavy Metal. The biggest beast of all in the jungle of the Iron Maiden discography is Number of the Beast. Catalogue number 6666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.